Greetings and good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be here to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program, our last program for 2023, December 30th, 2023. We welcome you. We are so grateful to have you with us for the true planetary and galactic history, history, and true history, history of Nasara. Blessed be. We're going to do our opening meditation. So please join me by going into your heart center, going into that heart portal to all that is. As we center in, we call forth for the full emergence and integration of our soul, of our higher self, of our monad, of our mighty I am presence, and all of our multidimensional being through to our God presence and God's presence. We see ourselves in our pillar of light, filled with a beautiful gold, silver, and platinum light. The divine masculine and Christ consciousness, <clears throat> the divine feminine, and divine feminine wisdom and the platinum of unity consciousness as we anchor our pillar directly to source, directly to the heart of Mother Gaia, feel it strengthened, feel it empowered, and expanding it as we open our hearts, our beings, to the entire planet for this ascension work, for this planetary healing work that we are doing here today. And we wish to connect with everyone across the planet. Doing so through the following prayer, please say with me, I am my I am presence. As my I am presence, I am one with the I am presence of all humanity, I am one with every man, woman, and child. I am one with all my family members and loved ones. I am one with all that is. And allow yourself to connect heart to heart, high heart to high heart, cosmic heart to cosmic heart with every man, woman, and child. All of us connecting to the cosmic heart of all that is. We invite in for everyone all of our soul extensions, planetary and galactic. All of our ancestors, all of our genetic lineage, our ancestral lineage, all the generations past, all the generations forward, our spiritual lineage, <clears throat> our soul families and soul pots. We welcome as well, for one and all, all of our guides and teachers, our healing team, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our ascension council, our mission council. 
so we welcome for everyone <clears throat> to receive this, the maximum that they can receive ever expanding to perfection. As we call forth the assistance of all the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the diva kingdom, the elemental kingdom, the fairy kingdom, all of the kingdoms of nature, the whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, and all magical kingdoms. We welcome all of the realms of the angels, from the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim, and all angelic healers and healing teams. We welcome the ascended masters, the brotherhood of light, the sisterhood of the rays and rose, the order of Melchizedek, the radiant ones, all of the enlightened masters, all divine mother emissaries, divine father emissaries, all of the planetary and cosmic hierarchy of light, and all ascended master healers and healing teams. And we welcome as well all of our precious friends from the Galactic Federation of Light and their healing teams, especially those that we work so closely with, from Arcturus, from Pleiades, from Sirius, from Andromeda, from Chiron, from Venus, from Lyra, and beyond, as well as all cosmic, galactic, universal healers that can be of service. We welcome the assistance of the entire company of heaven, asking Mother, Father, God to overlight all that we do. And to magnify, magnify, magnify in divine order all that we receive 999 trillion times 999 trillion times in alignment with divine will and divine law. To do this, we call forth all of the rays, all of the flames, all of the universal laws, all of the ascension waves. And with every energy and frequency, every prayer and invocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, we ask that it be received individually and collectively through every cell, chakra, meridian, and layer of our auric field multidimensionally and through the conscious, subconscious, and superconscious minds of all. We ask to easily and effortlessly digest and assimilate, ground and anchor, integrate and embody all that we receive with the greatest of ease and grace and joy and peace and bliss and ecstasy, serenity and tranquility, balance and equilibrium, without resistance on any level, without discomfort on any level, without fear on any level in love and light and laughter. We call in everyone and everything from our circle of support from the very first name that created it. To every man, woman, and child, to every family member and loved one, every friend, every neighbor, every community member, every pet, every animal, each and every group and organization, each business and corporation, each institution, each and every nation, each military, each government as we call forth for the transformation of all governments around the world, 
to come into divine governance. The legislative aspect of each government, we call in all the rays, flames, universal laws, and ascension waves into each and every Congress and Parliament and legislature on federal, state, and local levels, the U.S. House of Representatives, the U.S. Senate, all legislative bodies, all state legislatures, all city councils, school councils, school boards, and library boards, and so on, every lawmaking body. And we ask that each and every law considered and enacted and decision made be made based on divine law, divine justice, divine love, divine governance, divine government, and heaven on and reflecting heaven on earth. We call for it the same for the executive aspect of each government. Each and every president and prime minister and head of state, each vice president, each cabinet post and cabinet member, and all who work with executive offices, including all decision makers, <clears throat> all advisors, and we ask that every decision that is made is based on divine love, divine justice, divine law, divine governance, divine government, and reflects heaven on earth. We call for it the same for the judicial aspect of each and every government here and in each nation, the highest court of the land in each nation, all international courts, the U.S. Supreme Court and all of its members and all of its cases and decisions, each and every aspect of the legal system in each nation, each judge, each jury, each grand jury, each prosecutor, each defendant, each court case, each court decision, as we ask for all decisions to be based solely on divine law, divine justice, divine love, divine governance, divine government, reflecting heaven on earth. We call in all the weather patterns and weather situations, asking them to come into balance and harmony and perfection. Each and every man, woman, and child in their life conditions and situations to ensure that all humanity enjoys <clears throat> equality and justice, enjoys the fulfillment of all of their needs on every level of being, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, including uh, good housing, um, good work opportunities, uh, everyone's well-fed with clean water, with heat, with the clothing that is required, and so on, and that everyone recognize who they are as a divine being and recognize the divinity in all people, that from this moment forward, peace on earth is created by the honor and reverence of all life and goodwill toward all people. That is what we're working on with our world healing meditation here today. 
So we asked for the assistance of the entire company, Heaven, to help us hold that blueprint as we recommit ourselves to being that bridge between heaven and earth, the anchor for the new golden age, and the open door that no one can shut, holding the divine blueprint, especially with Mother Mary and St. Germain and all of the beings of the hierarchy of light, that we are manifesting easily and effortlessly more quickly than ever before heaven on earth. And we call in all of the energy of this holiday season, all of the December holidays, all of the energy, like I said, around football that everybody's focused on, and New Year's Eve and New Year's Day and so on, all of the energies around the sacred dates of this time, as we go ahead and ask that energy be placed in our collective cup of consciousness for the transformation of the planet, for the raising of consciousness of one and all, for everyone to shine as their divine Christ self and honor everyone else as the same in unity consciousness. We call forth Gaia to receive all that we receive through every chakra and meridian and layer of her auric field multidimensionally through every ley line and song line, through the grid system, the love grids, the light grids, the unity grids, all of the multidimensional grid system, through every portal and vortex and monument and sacred site, every stargate, every city of light, and through every molecule of soil, molecule of air, molecule of water, molecule of fire, every aspect of this planet and her consciousness as we continue up this amazing spiral of evolution. And Gaia takes her rightful place as Freedom Star. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. So we're going to begin with the World Healing Meditation from John Randolph Price. And this is scheduled to be done every, since 1986, I think was the first date, December 31st, scheduled to be done on the 31st of December, 12 noon Greenwich time, so that's 7 o'clock a.m. in the Eastern time zone, and so that would be 4 a.m. in the Pacific time zone. Uh, but we're there since there is no time or space. We're going to go ahead and anchor this right now. We'll do that again tomorrow evening on the Ascension call. So just surround yourself with the gold, silver, and platinum light as we begin. In the beginning, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Now is the time of the new beginning. I am a co-creator with God. And it is the new heaven that comes as the goodwill of God is expressed on earth for me. It is a kingdom of light 
love, peace, and understanding. And I am doing my part to reveal its reality. I begin with me. I am a living soul. And the spirit of God dwells in me as me. I and the Father are one. And all that the Father has is mine. In truth, I am the Christ of God. What is true of me is true of everyone. For God is all and all is God. I see only the spirit of God in every soul. And to every man, woman, and child on earth, I say, I love you. For you are me. You are my holy self. I now open my heart and let the pure essence of unconditional love pour out. I see it as a golden light. So visualize with me. I see it as a golden light radiating from the center of my being. And I feel its vibration in and through me, above and below me. I am one with the light. I am filled with the light. I am illumined by the light. I am the light of the world. With purpose of mind, I send forth the light. I let the radiance go before me to join the other light. I know this is happening all over the world at this moment. I see the merging lights. There is now one light. We are the light of the world. The one light of love, peace, and understanding is moving. It flows across the face of the earth, touching and illuminating every soul in the shadow of the illusion. And where there was darkness, there is now light the light of reality. And the radiance grows, permeating, saturating every form of life. There is only the vibration of one perfect life now. All the kingdoms of the earth respond. And the planet is alive with light and love. There is total oneness. And in this oneness, we speak the word. Let the sense of separation be dissolved. Let humankind be returned to Godkind. Let peace come forth in every mind. Let love flow forth from every heart. Let forgiveness reign in every soul. Let understanding be the common bond. And now, from the light of the world, 
the one presence and power of the universe responds. The activity of God is healing and harmonizing planet Earth. Omnipotence is made manifest. I am seeing the salvation of the planet before my very eyes. As all false beliefs and error patterns are dissolved, the sense of separation is no more. The healing has taken place. And the world is restored to sanity. This is the beginning of peace on earth and goodwill toward all. As love flows forth from every heart, forgiveness reigns in every soul. And all hearts and minds are one in perfect understanding. And it is done. And so it is. And as always, we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Take a nice deep breath. We'll off for sky and take the fun to anchor this individually and collectively for all people. Because 2024 will be a year of transformation and a shift in consciousness. We're going to visualize that right now. Again, this visualization is also from John Randall's place. So just imagine yourself. Follow along with me. As we see the following transformation taking place. It is almost dawn. And you are along on a country road. There are hills on each side of you, as far as the eye can see. And you notice the shapes of the trees standing tall in this first one. Smell the fresh cleaning. As you begin to walk briskly down the road, you can hear the songs of the birds, the music of daybreak. And you feel the delight of a magnificent new day. You are so full of life and love that you exclaim, Thank you, God, for the world that you have created. A world of peace, love, forgiveness, and understanding. Help us all to see this glorious reality to know it. Let every member of your family on this earth awaken to the glory that has been ours since the beginning of time. And let this world reflect only your vision, your truth. Let the dream be healed. And suddenly you catch sight of the brilliant sun rising in all its grandeur and majesty. And out of the corner of your eye, 
he sees someone walking down the hill to the road, followed by other men, women, and children. You look to the other side, and more and more people are streaming towards you. They join you, and you walk and step together, a spirited march of gladness and jubilation. You look into the smiling faces, and you realize that in the procession are Christians, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, people of all religions, all nationalities, all races, colors, and cultures. And as you look ahead, you see that the hills are now overspread with people. And you hear their songs of joy as they descend upon the road to merge with the assemblage. You continue through the villages and towns. And without asking a question, the residents stop what they are doing and merge with the parade. You reach the busy highway connecting the cities. And the cars and trucks pull over and stop. All of the occupants joining in the march. For just a moment, you think about the immensity of this gathering. And in your mind's eye, you see that it is happening everywhere. In all the nations on earth, the people have united, all moving as one and following the sun, intuitively knowing that the old days, the old ways, will soon be gone forever. As nightfall approaches in each country, the processions stop and the people rest. They know it is the last night of darkness, and all over the world, people are gathered to spend this time in grateful prayer and joyful meditation, waiting upon the birth of the new day. The final hour arrives, and the people of the planet stand together, awaiting the dawn. It comes. Slowly the light breaks through the darkness. The celestial voices heralding the commencement. The music of the spheres proclaiming the new beginning. The people look into each other's eyes and lovingly embrace. The lambs and lions are now united and harmony reigns. The healing light pervades, and sickness and sorrow are no more. The bountiful land feeds and nourishes all, and hunger is forgotten. There is now only perfect peace. It is the time of the new world the new civilization, and the people are exceedingly glad. And so it is.
And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Focus your energy on your heart once again. We're going to do affirmations for ourselves and one with all humanity. We do this for everyone as well. As we anchor these energies for the new year. Feel free to repeat them after me. And these are also from John Randall. God is right where I am. And I am eternally aware of his presence. God conceived within his mind an idea of itself and expression. I am that idea made manifest. God is expressing as me now. I am the expression of God. I am the expression of the divine. I am the creator. The law, the creative energy of God mind, is flowing through the idea that I am now living. That idea Christ, this self-expression of God that I am, and my world becomes a reflection of that idea. As Christ is the healing principle, so the law reaches my body according to the perfect pattern. As Christ is the abundance principle and all sufficiency of supply now manifest for my use. As Christ is the harmony principle, all of my relationships are lovingly viewed and strengthened. I am now the living truth of wholeness and fulfillment. And so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. As we anchor this for ourselves, we anchor this for every man, woman, and child. As we call for that expansion of consciousness to take place now for everyone to in this year of 2024, in complete peace, love, and harmony. And so it is. As we integrate this, and we ask to integrate this easily and effortlessly for all life, for every man, woman, and child, And I thank you for your divine service here this afternoon. I invite you to service every Sunday and Monday evening for the Ascension Meditation and Activation Call. We are meeting tomorrow, New Year's Eve, 
as well as New Year's Day at the regular time. We begin at 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time, 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time, and start with about 25 minutes of greetings, and then we have Tarn Rama come in for a brief update. By 9.30, we begin our work at 9.30 Eastern, 6.30 Pacific Time, we begin the meditations, our activations, our visualizations, our decree work, our prayers, our meditations, and each of the calls is unique. We're still working with the seven sacred weeks, so we'll be working with Melchizedek in the Christ energy amongst uh, the four beings that we are working with. And each and every uh, evening is um, completely different. This is a teleconference call, so I'm going to give you that number to dial. The number that we recommend is area code 480-660-2224. The access code is 946-7441-POUND. 946-7441-POUND. And we would love to have you join us. You can also join us um, on on any number of... I have a a long list of local numbers. I have international numbers. You can join us on the computer at uh, freeconference.com. And there's an app under that, uh, freeconference.com as well. So there's so many ways that you can join us in being a part of our uh, family of light that is working to truly transform the planet, bring heaven to earth. <laughs> Let us know that you heard about the program from the Saturday calls. We'd love to hear from you and know where you're calling from. And I thank you, thank you, thank you for all of your service of 2023. And again, invite you for another full year of service um, as we truly bring heaven to earth in all of our work and bring heaven to our lives and each moment through our consciousness. So we want to take this time to thank Tar and Rama for their divine service. And thank Rainbird for her divine service, as we thank each and every one of you for your divine service and BBS radio as well. So infinite blessings in this year ahead. I look forward to hearing your voice on the call uh, Sunday and Monday this week and throughout the year. Uh, May it be an amazing, amazing year for everyone. May magic and miracles fill each and every moment, but make major changes in 2024. Uh, That is indeed my intention. And uh, so infinite blessings to you all. The happiest of New Year's. 
Um, may it be blessed with uh, the abundance of every good thing, including good health um, and prosperity and all that we require to create heaven on earth. Thank you, everyone. I'm going to pass the talking stick. Dan has that amazing gold, silver, and platinum energy, as well as all of the rays and all of the kingdoms that we worked with. Everybody's working with us. And so we give thanks to them as well as we pass the talking stick to you, Rainbird. Thank you, Jim. Oh, thank you. I'll take that talking stick. And thank you for your divine service as well. We're so grateful for your offerings every Saturday and Sunday and Monday. Just, just, it's amazing. So lots of gratitude for you and Happy New Year. So I'm here to do the housekeeping as we are a listener supported radio program. And I'm so happy to give the best report ever. <laughs> we have completed our commitment for December with BBS Radio Services, and we are a little bit in the black for the month of January. So um, for that month, we'll need $1,036 to cover our BBS Radio fees, and we have $34 already, so it's just 1002 and that's my report. And I will show you how to make those donations. You simply go to BBS Radio. Well, first go to your heart space, see what it's yours to give, and then go to bbsradio.com. And you'll see schedule at the top of the homepage there at bbsradio.com. And on that schedule, you see listings for Radio Station 1 and 2. Our programs on Radio Station 1 are at the 8 o'clock hour on Thursdays. It'll be listed at uh, the 8 o'clock hour, uh, night at the round table with the panel. And then on Fridays, the hard news on Friday night uh, with Tara and Rama. So either one of those icons, as you click on it, takes you directly to our account with DBS, and you can make your donation there. So in the program we're on now is at the 3.30 hour, and these are all central times. And, uh, yeah, the icon will be sitting there on the schedule, and you click on that icon, and that takes you to our account. Same, the same deal for this program, The True History History of the Sarah and Our Galactic Origins with Tara and Rama. So, there you go. There you have it. Easy peasy, simple. And we are so grateful to be caught up. What a good day it is. <laughs> uh, and so much gratitude to all, uh, Don and Doug and TJ and and all the good services they bring us, and we wish them a happy new year as well. Uh, we are so grateful for all that they do for the best radio in the land. So we got that covered, and now we've got Tara and Rama that we're working with and assisting with their needs. And they have a couple of bills paid already, so they just have two left, and they're $227 to pay those two bills. One's the GEICO and the other is the electric. Um, so those are due in January near the beginning, and so they would be good to take care of that. And they also require $200 each week for their living expenses. So here's how we make a donation to Tar and Rama. You want to go to the web address for Rainbow Roundtable, and that is rainbowroundtable.net. N-E-T. So, if you get .com, you get a different kind of rainbow. 
So we want that one. And there on that homepage, you will see on the right-hand uh, end of the of the menu on on across the top of the homepage, you will find the list the donate link there. And if you have a menu grid, you can click on that, and it'll be near the bottom of the list next to the last of the donate link. Click on that donate link, and it takes you to the Rainbow Roundtable PayPal account, where you can make a donation in any amount using your bank card. If you want to use the friend option, you have to gift uh, directly to this email. And this is the email for the Rainbow Roundtable, and it is Coran, K-O-R-A-N. 9999 at hotmail.com and that is your access to the friends option so you don't have to pay the commercial services that you would for um, just put pay it normal like that <laughs> not finding that that particular aspect so if you have any trouble we'll always can check out support and you can learn how to make a gift to a friend um, but once you do it, you're pretty much linked in that way, and, and it should come up every time with that. So just remember, this is their email, Koran9999 at hotmail.com. That's the email you want to use for that gifting. Okay, so as you're sending something, please let Rama know. His email, Koran, K-O-R-E-N, 999 at net. Let him know what you said and when you sent it. So he can plan around all that. And then um, as you need it, the mailing address is Rom D. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Post Office Box 280-280. And that's in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, the zip code 87567. I'll say it again. Post Office Box 280. 80, Santa Cruz, New Mexico, and the zip code 87567. So there you have it, all the information. We are so grateful for your contributions. We're grateful for all the ways you show up in your life. We're grateful that we get to gather each week this way. So we have another whole year to look forward to. <laughs> and it will be our 14th year, I believe. Um so, with that, I'm going to pass this talking stick, and it, there's still a lot of fireworks hanging around because of the New Year's celebrations that are are going on and all kinds of bouquets that are bouquets of fireworks. It's very exciting. They like sparklers a lot. There's lots of fairies and lots of feathers and um, lots of magical ones. It's at the dragons, of course, and the unicorns and Sasquatch, and all the beautiful beings. Uh, so greetings, Tara and Rama. Here comes his talking stick. Happy New Year. Happy New Year back to you, sister. <laughs> Happy New Year. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you, Rainbird. Thank you, everyone. For being here, we are so grateful. And thank you, everyone, for helping us to yes. take care of Don and Doug and BBS Radio. Yes. <laughs> and uh, we're just going to have a wonderful time tonight. 
All I can say is give peace a chance. <laughs> oh, we it are really feels like give it's, peace a chance. Didn't you say that your people kind of told you that? Yeah, I, this, this is going to be wrapped up pretty darn soon, huh? Yeah, I got a text from Lady Master Nada, and she is up there in the Weesock Valley with the Nameless One, and since October 7th, there have been 3,000 lamas chanting and spinning the prayer wheels, Omade Padmihum, and the Om Triumbakam Yajamahe. These are called Maha Mantras. They change reality, space, time, physical matter. They've been doing these mantras for thousands of years, and it makes a difference on the planet. What Freddie Silva and so many other folks sound, light, color, vibration. This is what we're made of. Scalar waves, <laughs> along with atoms and particles and the force. <laughs> <laughs> and um, right now, what Lady Nada is saying, uh, South Africa has taken Israel to the ICJ for international war crimes and crimes against humanity. And Lady Nada may show up at the UN Special Security Council today, uh, Russia, the fake Putin, and our deep state have been playing between Russia and Ukraine, supposedly escalating the killing of innocent civilians. And uh, I gotta just say, you know, Joe Biden, along with Mr. Yahoo. Blaze the Violet Fire. These are part of the 500,000 that are going on those cargo ships that are in orbit. And I'm not kidding. I don't know how to talk about this because it is a sci-fi movie right out of Star Wars. I just wish Han Solo and Chewbacca would show up soon. <laughs> we need a little help down here as if it ain't Enough, but, you know, I mean. Well, I think that the energies that are becoming part of us that are coming in. So that's called galactic intervention right there. Yes. And the energies, we're going to play a two and a half hour piece tonight, everybody. In other words, from 10 o'clock to 1230, the 46th Annual Kennedy Center Honors. And I kind of flipped through it. It is spectacular. <laughs> uh, so. What I could say about the big story right now is um, the astrology is shifting us into this time where, you know, they may not be talking about it 
in the forefront, but Aquarius, we're moving from Capricorn into Aquarius, and there are going to be new energies pouring in for a little while, then Aquarius goes backwards, and we kind of go back into Capricorn, talking about Pluto, and Pluto is a very big deal, because it, it, Hades um, is the other name for Pluto, and he's not really a bad guy. It's the underworld. It's what we got to heal with our shadow, and Black Moon Lilith is in there. She is a sister to our moon. They don't talk about her much, but Black Moon Lilith coming up here in the next few days, she's got a lot to say with the moon, and it's a big deal. Mr. Kepacha going to talk about it. Okay. So let's get started. How about we do that? Okay. This is um, Doncia Patrick, Pretty Intense, How to Enter the Golden Age. Is uh, this Aurora Ray? No, this is Dr. Robert Gilbert. Oh, okay. Biogeometry, alchemy, Rosicrucianism, stem cells, golden age. Yeah. Here we go. <laughs> All right, here we go. Welcome to the Pretty Intense Podcast. If you'd take a second and hit the subscribe button, I would really appreciate it. Today on the show is uh, Robert Gilbert. This is his second appearance now, but after he came on last time, I just, there's just so many aspects that we needed to cover still. So we actually started talking about stem cells, exosomes, PRP, and anti-aging things, which then led into a, a very quick high-level understanding of biogeometry, which is one of the things that he teaches. And we also delved into what I really wanted to talk to him about, which was Rosicrucianism. So he goes into the history of it and where it came from and really covered such a wide base of the integrity of it and what what it is to be in the practice. When we go into these practices and learn beyond where we're at, we're really just trying to figure out how can we just be happier more of the time? How can we have more joy in our life? How can we understand not only ourselves, but others better? Why it is so needed right now and what our potential really is as human beings and the world that we live in. If you've been following me a while, you know that I've been drinking AG1 all year. No matter where I go or what I do, if I'm at the racetrack, if I'm in Europe for six weeks, no matter what, I'm drinking AG1 every single morning. When I started drinking AG1 daily, what I noticed was that my gut health improved. I could eat so many different foods without it bothering me. My skin has gotten better. My hair is healthier. So many functions that everybody wants to get better, got better. It's so awesome, and I've been bragging about it so much that my friends and my family have also started taking it, and they love it as well. AG1 is the supplement that I trust to support my body's daily needs, and that's why we've been partners for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, plus 
five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash pretty intense. That's drinkag1.com slash pretty intense. Check it out. How have you been? I've been great. Uh, things have been very exciting. We're currently working on bringing Dr. Ibrahim Kareem, the founder of Biogeometry, back to North America for the first time in many years to give presentations on his latest research and uh, a lot of projects going on. Oh, that's a big deal. That reminds me, when I was in, in Europe this summer, I spent part of the trip with one of my girlfriends who loves to learn new spiritual practices of all kinds. But one of them that she started doing was biogeometry. Oh, fantastic. Your course on biogeometry. And so she had the book and she was going through the level one and we did some biofeedback stuff for a couple of people and I found it super cool and super fascinating. So that's pretty exciting that doctor, isn't it Dr. Cream? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That he is coming to the States. Yes. Uh, he's going to be coming in March to present uh, just a short presentation at the Gaia conference in Boulder, but oh. uh, then we're having him for a evening public presentation in okay. before that in March, and then followed by a three-day intensive with new information he hasn't uh, given out before uh, for people that have been trained in biogeometry, and we're expecting people from all, all over the world to come here to Las Vegas for that, so we're really excited about it. What level do you have to be at to be able to be a part of his event? You'll need to have completed the foundation and advanced trainings, mm-hmm. which can both be done online okay. uh, before that time in March. How old is he now? I'm not sure. I think he must be in his later 70s, but I'm I'm not certain. Later 70s or 322. We're not really <laughs> sure. <laughs> Yeah, he's an old soul, so. Didn't people used to live a really, really, really long time, according to old scripture? According to some old scriptures, yeah, people lived a very long time. Even some of the modern Taoists say that, uh, you know, they have relatives who are like 140. So, you know, apparently it's quite possible. Do you think that that's true, that they lived that old? Uh, I think it's certainly true for the Taoists uh, today that they, they lived to these well over 100 ages using their Taoist internal alchemy. In the ancient world, I certainly think many things were possible according to what's often referred to as the secret doctrine based on Blavatsky's work, like the ancient knowledge. Uh, there are ways in earlier times when people's internal energy configuration in the body was quite different than today uh, for people to have expanded lifetimes. And I've actually been doing research recently with uh, the latest developments in stem cell, exosomes, these types of things, which is developing very quickly. And the public doesn't really know everything that's happening with it. But it's absolutely amazing what's being done with the stem cell-derived technology. And I think it's going to lead to uh, a real revolution in healthcare and particularly in longevity. So just recently, myself and the director of the Vesca Institute, Jennifer Barnes, went to a clinic in Utah, which does one of the most comprehensive full-body stem cell rejuvenation things in the world. It had previously been covered by Ben Greenfield and uh, uh, by the fellow that does the Bulletproof podcast and these things. They've done it. 
And, and Dave did it like uh, three times. Yeah, I went down to Costa Rica with Dave and did stem cells um, earlier this year. So I've done exosomes. I've done stem cells. They were not mine, though. So I really I I didn't think we'd get in this little spot we're in. But I'm so fascinated what you have learned about this. Well, it seems that, you know, it's kind of the Wild West in the U.S. The uh, although the FDA, FDA is somewhat controlling with it, there is a lot of innovation being done by different researchers. And they have very, very different approaches. So one of the things hard to get information on, you kind of have to do your own research and follow up with people. I don't know any textual sources that go into it. There's the different approaches that different clinics are taking. And uh, they can have very different viewpoints on how to approach this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But again, the one that we just did in Utah is supposed to be one of the most comprehensive in the world where you get every joint in the body injected as well as cosmetic and sexual injections. It's Mm -hmm. over a 100 injections, and you have to be under IV sedation to do it because it takes a prolonged period of time. But, you know, they've had remarkable results. Again, Dave's done that particular one uh, three times himself already. Mm -hmm. And I just found out yesterday meeting with a stem cell clinic here in Las Vegas that they've been working on a method where using a modification of CPAP machines, not for how CPAP machines are normally used, but to be able to deliver various types of pharmaceuticals or things directly into the lungs, that they found that they can rejuvenate lung tissue. So people with like COPD, long-term lung damage, these types of things are getting reversals from getting the exosomes put through the CPAP machine directly into the lungs themselves. And, uh, it's just fascinating to see everything that's going on with the field. Gosh, yeah. Yeah, I've been, I work with various different companies that develop devices that do like the highest grade PRP, which is another yes. sort of aspect. Yes. They usually say to, to pair PRP and stem cells together a lot of times when you're uh-huh. doing joints and orthopedic-like injections, as well as another company that I work with that does more cosmetic-like procedures with equipment. They use like the highest grade way of extracting the PRP. Another, oh, that's the exosome. Sorry, that's the PRP. The other one is exosomes because there's Uh a certain amount of bioavailability that the exosomes can have. And there are many companies that actually don't have really any viable exosomes in the product. And so this is sort of like a very high level certification that the exosomes are that there's a high amount of available exosomes to actually be delivered. So, wow. Do you think that the ancients had this sort of technology or is this sort of modern day humans that are coming up with new ways of longevity? I think this is a a modern development because we're so based today on physical and chemical analysis. Mm-hmm. But in ancient times, it was much more based on energetic analysis. Mm-hmm. And so they would be using methods that I'm sure if we studied them today in our modern methodology, we would see that what's happening is that their energetic methods are simply a different route to be able to activate the stem cells and exosomes and these different types of natural substances in the body. So I was very impressed with the book uh, that is called The Spark in the Machine, uh, in which a person did quite a bit of research uh, that uh, in this particular text, they describe how 
you can find a very clean relationship, a very clear relationship between the acupuncture points in the body and the branching points for stem cell differentiation in the body and basically makes the uh, the statement that the acupuncture meridian system and the acupuncture point system are actually the controllers for all stem cell activity in the body and actually is what gives rise to the differentiated body parts that we have, which I find very fascinating. And similarly, a, a conclusion very close to that has been reached by my friend, Dr. Jerry Tennant, who developed uh, the series of books on healing as voltage. And in his work in Dallas, he's also come to the conclusion that the meridian system is a, a master controller of all of the voltage gates in the human body that lead to all the rejuvenation and regeneration. And that would also then apply, although that's not his focus on stem cells and things of that kind. So I think the thing we're going to be finding in the very near future is an incredible overlap between these more ancient sciences like the Taoist knowledge of internal alchemy and the human internal energy system with the meridians, acupuncture points, etc., and what we found through empirical discoveries in the last 30 years having to do with the activation and direction of stem cells, exosomes, injection of PRP, and things of that kind. Wow. Oh, another thing that just came to mind when you said that is that one of these companies I work with that does not only PRP, but stem cells as well. And they do like the sort of threading to harvest the stem cells from the bone, from inside the bone. And we were talking about where you get them from or where you get the stem cells from. And uh, there is a very big difference between different parts of the body and the quality or the composition of the stem cells uh-huh. and that you take it from basically like lower back on the top of the hip there. And that's the best place to take the take stem cells from not sort of like the arm or the thigh or the anything anywhere else. But like but back of the hip. Isn't that fascinating? That's absolutely fascinating. I hadn't heard that before, that the back of the hip has the best stem cells to harvest in the body. That's quite that's quite amazing. You know, the whole stem cell revolution in the U.S. got catalyzed as they were able to move from fetally derived stem cells to using umbilical cord derived. And mm-hmm. I understand that there's much more advanced work being done and permitted in Europe than in the U.S. today having to do with much of this technology and mm-hmm. how they're able to differentiate the stem cells and come up with the highest quality stem cells to inject into the body. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's one of the cutting edges of this whole field right now is to get more clarity about the different quality types of stem cells, exosomes, things of this kind, uh, which I think is going to add a tremendous amount to the field. It's one of those things that when you see what's actually happening with people who are getting some of these treatments that the general public knows nothing about, that it's just absolutely revolutionary. Well, look at Dave. I mean, we're talking about Dave, Dave Asprey. If you look back at old videos and pictures of him to where he is now, it's really amazing. And and this is only just, this is just sort of anecdotal in my life, but people are like, wow, you look great. Like, what are you doing? And I'm like, (laughs) I guess I got to give credit to the stem cells and the exosomes and all the things. Um, So I think because I've been doing it probably long enough for it to have sort of at least a wave of an effect after a year, year and a half that maybe it's really working. 
I, I really do think that that's probably the case. You do look very radiant, and uh, I, I do believe that the stem cell technology is one of the most powerful things that we can can use today for regeneration. I really want to talk about the Rosicrucian order and the Rosicrucianism and and that whole. I I I want to. I I think we could take another moment with biogeometry and just sort of touch on that because of the event that you have coming and and also just because we're talking so much about stem cells and and exosomes and 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 the way that the body is informed to heal or rejuvenate so maybe go into sort of like a little bit of a overview of of biogeometry and like what people would learn and uh-huh. what 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 it actually is cuz just as sort of my experience with my friend who's taking the course is that that you know, we're looking through the book and doing the biofeedback with for someone to figure out what areas of the body they need help. And there are unique, very interesting symbols that correlate with all the different parts and aspects of the body and healing. And so I found that incredibly fascinating. Then, of course, sent the pictures to the people that we did it for, for them to look over themselves to trace with their eyes as well as where and have on them. So that's, again, just my own small experience with it, um, just to kind of give people a taste of and also confuse them a little to make them curious, like, <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? So um, I'd love to hear from your perspective what the overview of biogeometry and learning about it looks like. Great. Thank you. So I first met uh, Dr. Kareem around the year 2000 when he began to come to the United States to teach some courses in Florida. And I was absolutely amazed by what he was doing and what he had developed. He really had rediscovered from a modern perspective many of the lost secrets of the ancient Egyptian temple science. He will often refer to biogeometry as being nature's own design language of shape, sound, color, motion, angle, proportion. The way that all of these natural qualities actually control and direct the life forces in every living being on the planet. And as an architect, what he's been able to develop is an understanding of the way that shape information is able to generate vibrational forces that affect living beings at both consciousness and energy levels. And he's developed this very, very far with very original research One aspect of this is what you were describing as the types of forms or shapes that we're using. And one aspect of this is what's called biogeometrical shapes. So something like what we refer to as a 45-degree emitter, a, a backing of a certain length with two arms coming off of a certain length at a 45 degree angle will create a concentration of a specific vibrational power between them that we refer to in biogeometry as the BG3, which is essentially a concentration of the universal harmonizing force. Now, this is not something that's well understood in many different traditions. Many traditions focus on polarity energies like yin and yang in Chinese medicine. And the way that we balance the two polarities by adding the opposite polarity if you have too much of the other polarity. So if a system's too cold, you add some warmth to it that type of thing. But there's actually a universal harmonizing force that restores everything to its balance point 
restores it to the center. It actually activates the center of all biological functions and all systems. It's an amazing discovery by Dr. Kareem. And, you know, again, he's very clear about the fact, you know, he didn't invent it. This is something that nature uses all the time, but he's simply been able to clarify through his research discoveries and what he finds for these different shapes, sounds, colors, motions that are able to generate this particular force for a practical application. Then he was able to, using our radiesthesia methods derived from the French research of the early 1900s, which itself was derived from the Egyptian knowledge and application of vibrational science and vibrational testing from thousands of years ago. Radiesthesia is the ability to detect subtle radiations or subtle vibrations. And so using the radiesthesia methods that we teach in biogeometry, Dr. Kareem was able to discover the actual movement pattern of energy in the human body that generates specific biological activities. So, for example, the way that energy moves inside a person's liver may be one of, uh, this isn't the actual number, let's say a dozen different energy movement patterns. Every one of those energy movement patterns generates a specific biological activity. Mm-hmm. And so basically we have the concept of energy as a, a proteus. It is the, the prima materia. It is the original source energy behind everything. Just like stem cells can become anything, right. energy can become any, anything. Right. And so just as the stem cells get programmed in the body by particular triggers to become certain things, yeah. again, one of the things that's, that's discussed in the Spark in the Machine book that's so fascinating So the functions of the organs and systems in the body is actually uh, created by the way that the energy moves in a specific energy movement pattern. So one of the first things we learn in biogeometry is not to think of shapes as some type of thinnest static external form, but Mm -hmm. rather to think of them as dynamic energy movement patterns. Mm. And so... It's the dynamic energy movement that creates the effect. So the shape is like a circuit that mm-hmm. the energy is moving dynamically inside of. And so all these biosignatures are simply flattened two-dimensional images of an original three-dimensional energy movement pattern that Dr. Kareem was able to trace out using radiesthesia and to then create the mapping of hundreds of different what he calls biosignatures. Mm-hmm. these energy movement patterns in the body that create biological effects. Mm-hmm. And the ones he's actually published many of these biosignatures in his book on biosignatures. Uh, however, in the classes that we teach, we're able to go much further and we're able to teach people how to energetically test any person for which biosignatures they need at a particular time to help mm-hmm. reinforce that energy movement pattern in the body that creates that effect. Mm-hmm. And also how to uh, be able to apply the biosignatures in a variety of other ways. Oh. But that's only one small part of the training. There's so much to it in understanding the actual science of shape, sound, color, motion uh, that can be practically applied, whether it's for the human being or in any type of design work. Because a lot of the work that we do is balancing the energy in homes, offices, etc., mm-hmm. in a very different approach than is done by most other traditions. 
because we have the ability and we teach people themselves to be able for the rest of their lives directly detect all these energy qualities, whether it's in their body or another person or in a location. Again, we make no medical claims for it, but it is something that is absolutely remarkable. And so we offer both a foundation training that gives people all the fundamental skills that uh, currently is being done as an online class. It takes place as something where people have the material for around five weeks. And after the first couple of weeks with the material, we start having once uh, a week uh, meetings for about four hours where we can assist people with any questions they have, any issues with doing the hands-on testing and applications. And so there's three meetings and successive weeks for that. And that's the foundation training. And then there's an advanced training that's run along the same lines. And so in the question you had before, to be able to work with Dr. Kareem when he comes on this extremely rare uh, trip to the United States next March, we're still working on the exact dates. We know it will be in early March and it will most likely be in Las Vegas. There will be a, a public week uh, or public evening where Dr. Kareem will present for people who have not taken the advanced training, who want to see him and hear from him live. But then there's going to be a three-day intensive where he releases new information. Because currently we have the foundation and advanced training. After you do both of those online, you can work with him directly. And the the new material that's coming out, if people want to get a sense of it, it's extremely deep, having to do with how energy works through space and time and can then be practically applied in ways that are really mind-blowing. It was recently published by Dr. Kareem in his book called Hidden Reality that was published recently and is available on Amazon. Uh, it is a remarkable text. But if people want to start learning about his work, in addition to what's on the Internet, I have videos about it on YouTube. He has some videos. And also there's his book that's Back to a Future for Mankind, which is his introductory book on biogeometry, which is quite remarkable. In addition to the new book, which is extremely advanced, called Hidden Reality, but uh, when he comes in March to Las Vegas, and I'm so grateful to be able to sponsor him for that, myself and my team here, that uh, he's going to be offering not only new techniques and new concepts, but also new tools. Uh, the work is developing very, very quickly. So to get a chance to work with him directly in North America is going to be a very rare opportunity and really excited about it. What? is the most extreme way that you could experience the highest use of it. If you were to like, have you, do you have any stories? Is there anything where you can share what sort of what this technology, what this, uh, what this knowledge can do for someone? Yes. The the challenge of this is following our principle of not making any medical claims, <laughs> uh, which, which is very, very challenging. Get that box is smart. <laughs> But uh, again, the possibly use, what could be done? <laughs> well, I, I'll just give you an example uh, to avoid the medical claims issue that uh, of what happened for me. And so I had had a couple of very severe car accidents uh, before I met Dr. Kareem. And one was extremely severe. The combined force of the two cars impacting head on, including the car that I was in, the combined force of impact was around 160 miles an hour and uh, had a lot of damage to my neck and my spine. And I'd done a lot to, to work on it, but it still was affecting my quality of life extremely dramatically. 
and was a, a major issue for me. Mm-hmm. And so when I met with Dr. Kareem for the first time in Florida, one thing that he did is he had just had people come up and he would test them for what biosignatures they needed. And he would engrave the correct biosignature pattern on a piece of metal mm-hmm. that you could wear like a medallion. Mm-hmm. Like today you can buy biosignature medallions that don't have all the biosignatures on them because there's a huge number, but have like a, a set of some of the most important ones that everyone needs. My friend had a necklace that had a, a one symbol. It was a it was a symbol of sorts, and she wore it. That was probably, they have some biosignature pendants that are of a one specific biosignature mm-hmm. that does a precise mm-hmm. thing. And then right. they have what we call the biosignature medallion, which has many different biosignatures on it to get their composite effects at the same time. Although, again, there's so many biosignatures that doesn't have all the biosignatures. They're yeah. ones that everyone tends to need. I'd be wearing one like this big. It'd be like a... <laughs> Dr. Kareem has made some giant plate. ones before that he's uh, like I'm not as big as like a human body <laughs> that he's like shown before in a, in a TV show that he did from Egypt years ago, these kinds of things. But mm-hmm. uh, what he did was he was able to find for me uh, particular biosignatures that I needed for my my neck and my spine. And he just engraved it on this thing for, for me to wear. Mm-hmm. And it really had an incre- such an incredible effect for me. It really gave me my life back. I was like, well, this is unbelievable that a particular, again, people will just think of it as like some external shape, but it's an energy movement pattern that works in resonance to activate that, that movement pattern in the human body. And it was so dramatic, the effect I got from it, that I began to go to every course he taught anywhere that I could get to. And I was so dedicated to the work, and I literally transcribed all of his talks word for word, and then I reorganized it into a, a more comprehensive uh, linear system that uh, he invited me three years later to be the first person outside of Egypt to teach his work publicly. And so that's kind of how things developed there. But it was like that's an example of what's possible with this. Again, your mileage may vary. We don't make any claims for what the effects of any of this will be. But uh, this has happened for a lot of people. Hmm. And in addition to that, I've, I've had a lot of people get the results from having their home and offices balanced so that the detrimental vibrational effects of all the things we're surrounded by in our environment today get modified and harmonized by connecting it to this universal harmonizing energy or vibratory force. Mm-hmm. We've gotten all kinds of remarkable testimonials about the changes of people's lives and wow. things of this kind. Uh, again, not making any medical claims. One of the first stories I heard from someone I started teaching things publicly was that they had a friend who had had a motorcycle accident and they were in a coma and they went to go see them and they were hooked up to all this different medical equipment. Well, the medical equipment is monitoring them and these types of things, but anything that's electrical that's plugged into the wall has a very specific vibrational quality that's known technically as the vertical wave of negative green. It's too complex to go into here, but it's part of what we teach people about the different vibrational qualities and biological effects. Mm-hmm. And so the person did exactly what I taught them to do in the class, which is put specific biogeometric forms on all of the electronic equipment in the space to take off the vibrational quality of the vertical negative green coming from the electrical circuits and to replace it with this harmonizing energetic force. And the person said in the class at the moment they put the last correction on the last piece of electronic equipment that was surrounding their friend, 
that at that moment their friend came out of the coma. And so the theoretical basis behind that, again, not making any medical claims as theory, is that by taking off the suppressive effect of the electromagnetic blanketing energies, the person was able to have their own life forces recover to the point that they could come back into consciousness. I have three different EMF reducers in my house spread out because they have a range. And that's one of the things that I'm sensitive to is fields and energy. I don't feel people's emotions too much. I'm aware of them. (laughs) God, I don't feel them. I'm aware of them. But I feel frequency uh, very much so. So is that something that that would help reduce that negative green, negative, uh, that negative, what do you call it? What's the... The technical name of it is negative green because on a particular way of charting the complete spectrum of the energies in a circular format, it's diametrically opposite positive green, or what we think of as the green color quality in the qualitative scale of energies. So they, the, the French referred to it in the early 1900s as negative green, and they said that it was actually known and used by and counteracted by hmm. the ancient Egyptians, Chinese, Easter Island. They gave all types of examples of how they worked with this energetic quality because it can be used beneficially, but in the way it appears in like electromagnetic circuits, it's quite harmful. So the Mm. good thing about biogeometry is it does have its own tool line that you could use for balancing these effects. But in addition to that, it's not just a matter of selling you another tool out of many different tools on the market. What we do in the biogeometry training is we teach people how to, for the rest of their lives, test for themselves or others the specific vibrational qualities coming from any person, place, or thing. And then when you place a vibrational tool, whether from biogeometry or from any other source, onto the problem area, you can now test and know whether it's a, it's actually transforming the quality of energy or not. Because there's many good vibrational tools on the market today, and there's many that do absolutely nothing, and there's quite a few that actually increase the toxic energy. And sometimes when I talk to the people selling those tools, they just like say, oh, hold this. You can feel the energy. And I'm like, yeah, I can feel the energy, but that energy is not a beneficial energy. But the people making it don't know how to test and differentiate energy qualities. So one of the things that's been a huge breakthrough with the biogeometry is we can teach anybody how to be able to directly detect the energetic quality coming from anything. So when you actually do, like let's say a feng shui correction to a space, One thing that's been discovered is that I love feng shui. It's a great system. But that if you try to apply the stuff that was done a couple thousand years ago in non-electromagnetic environments, and you think that's going to correct the electromagnetic energy in the space, we can show you that it doesn't. But again, this is something that requires more discussion to really get into the technical aspects of it because it's a qualitative science. And the quantitative aspect of the electromagnetic wave is still there because the the trick of this, of what Dr. Cream had always explained to people when he did things like balance the electromagnetic fields for the whole city of Hamburg, Switzerland, back around 2003. That's a baller move. <laughs> incredible work that he's done. He was able to describe the way that, you know, if, if I was blocking the electromagnetic circuits, people would like get an EMF meter and say, oh, no, the EMF is still here. Look on the, the meter. He says, yes, the EMF is still here because if I blocked the EMF, None of your communication devices or energy devices would be working, and you wouldn't allow me to do that. We had to sever the Gordian knot, like with Alexander the Great, to find a lateral thinking solution to this, 
which still has the electromagnetic circuits in place, because otherwise our technology won't work, but to change the energetic quality of them so that the effect on the human mind and body Mm -hmm. is no longer destructive, but may even be beneficial because it is actually increasing the broadcast of this harmonizing, universal harmonizing wave. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we have to train people in biogeometry to think in a completely different way about it, that we're going to be testing and transmuting the quality of energy on the wave. And it's not a matter of changing the quantitative aspect of the wave, because we wouldn't be allowed to change that. So there's a there's quite a bit in the training about how to do these things on a practical level. The Rosicrucian order. This is something that came across in an interview after an interview. It was with Rhonda Byrne um, from The Secret, and she started talking about it like after we were done with the actual interview. And I was fascinated and it wasn't part of the interview, but she sort of had sort of said, I can help you out and like put you in touch with someone. And anyway, I just was too busy to proceed with it, but it's still been in my mind and still been something very, I'm very curious about. And I've reached a point where I, I feel like I know a lot about myself. There's always more to learn, but I want, I want to be able to do magic basically mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> and something tells me if i were to learn it that i would now be able to practice what people would call magic and magic being real but it's just sounds not real to people because that's the word we use for stuff we don't understand yeah. so so uh, I would really like you to get slightly granular about the process and, and, and what it takes and, and, and even like, I think we could start with the history of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's been, it's known as like the path of the mystics. Is this correct? Yes. Uh, so let me just uh, preface what I'm going to say by saying this is my personal perspective. This is my experience and other people may see this a bit differently. I have my own particular approach to it. So take what I say with as many grains of salt as you like. But if you look at it historically, the idea of the Rosicrucians began around the early 1600s, as far as the public is concerned, mm-hmm. where certain books began to be published in Central Europe that talked about the existence of a Rosicrucian order of mystics of adepts who were capable of all kinds of remarkable things and doing it within the context of the Christian tradition. Now, we need to state that because at that point, particularly then, you know, Europe was entirely Christian, other than, you know, the small groups of Islamic and Jewish, but, you know, the control of Europe was completely Christian tradition. And so often we think about adepts with highly advanced skills, like even today we tend to think about them as being Eastern adepts, like certain masters from India or China mm-hmm. or something like that. The idea that there were living amongst us these incredibly advanced mystics with great powers was something that led to a tremendous popular movement in Central Europe in the 1600s of interest in what is the Rosicrucian tradition? How do you find these great hidden masters? What can you learn from them? What is their method? These kinds of things. And so... This then led to, in time, the development of public Rosicrucian organizations 
Okay. Now, in the creation of public organizations rather than what was happening behind the scenes, which I'll get to in just a moment with the Rosicrucians, is that to create these organizations, they needed to have some type of pattern to follow. And so one thing that happened that I personally think is a bit of a mixed bag is that it often would connect with uh, Freemasonry. And so uh, at the same time as this is happening, Freemasonry is undergoing its own revolution historically for what was known as operative Masons, which are the people that actually built the cathedrals. If you became a Freemason, let's say back in the 1400s, you became an apprentice to learn how to actually build cathedrals and things like that. You were an operative Mason. Okay. Now, it was based on metaphysical principles, and you learned all kinds of amazing spiritual and energetic things that the public would never know. Uh, but you are being trained to be a, a brick mason and to build buildings, a literal mason. Okay. But uh, particularly by the time we got to the 1700s, this had changed, and operative masonry really was dying out, and it became what is known today as speculative masonry. And so speculative masonry, which is what most of all Freemasonry today is, is where you join some fraternal organization and you go through a number of rituals and rites to get initiated into higher and higher grades in, in uh, linear Are they still degrees? Is it still like yeah, they're degrees, degrees? Yeah. Like, is there 33 degrees? In, in some forms of masonry, there's 33 degrees and some forms is over 90 there, there's various forms were developed. It's going to take a while. <laughs> yes, exactly. Or not this interview, but I'm saying like uh, to be a 90 degree Mason. Oh boy. Yeah, but those forms, the 90, the 90 plus degree forms, are not very popular today. It's hard to find those forms. The 33 degree is the main one that 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 dominated. But the idea with this is that uh, you would join this organization. And you would work your way through these grades, through these degrees over a period of years until you reach the highest level of initiation, etc. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I have to state my own bias up front that uh, I kind of follow the pathway of the, you know, the joke made by Woody Allen years ago, that I wouldn't want to join any organization that would have someone like me for a member. So my basic approach to this is I'm not really so much of an organization follower. Yeah. And I do think that's a bit of the the ethic of our age, that uh, as we develop public Rosicrucian organizations, many of them began to take on these types of Masonic organizational fabrics. That mm-hmm. <clears throat> that the challenge of it is people can get caught up in the working through the actual politics mm-hmm. of this organization of human beings mm-hmm. and. I have no interest in that whatsoever. I mean, less than zero. So uh, it almost some, starts feeling like organized religion or something, where there's probably all rooted in a great start, and then man gets a hold of it, and politics come in, and money, and power, and and ego, and I'm a higher degree than you, and you have to do this, and that again, no appeal to me for that. And if people choose to to work within Masonic or Rosicrucian external organizations, that's fine. Now, in the United States, some of the largest organizations are quite old. Things like AMORC and Rosicrucian Fellowship, they're quite old at this point. People want to work in those frameworks, and that's what helps them to have something that is that clearly delineated and that you can work through with the external help of other people. 
great, those forms still exist, and you can do that. Uh, that's not my my orientation, and I'm not going to be teaching people about that. My orientation has always been toward what the Rosicrucian organization was originally, and that was it wasn't part of an external physical organization. It was, as was discussed in the early text in the 1600s, it was a group of people that had direct spiritual connection to the beings behind the Rosicrucian tradition. So let's clarify for everybody right now something that's extremely fundamental but not often spoken of. And uh, this is a definition coming from a person I learned a lot from, Dr. Samuel Sagan, a French medical doctor who later became a translator of Sanskrit texts into French uh, back in the 80s, who developed a school called the Clair Vision School that mm-hmm. I trained with in Sydney, Australia for a time. And he had this, he had many brilliant summarizations of esoteric realities. And one of Sagan's ideas with the Clair Vision School is that whenever we talk about a spiritual tradition, you're talking about a group of human beings with a group of non-physical spiritual beings that are working together for a particular goal, for a particular pathway. Now, as you drill down deeper into this, one of the things that you find that this group of spiritual beings behind that tradition, so there's a group of beings behind the Buddhist tradition, behind Mm -hmm. the Taoist tradition, behind the Christian tradition, whatever it is. In some cases, there's overlaps. That gets a little complex. But that group of beings is working with human beings. And one of the things that's happening invisibly, if you're choosing to train in, let's say, the Buddhist system versus the Taoist versus the Christian, etc., is that the training systems are having the basic cause and effect result that what you're doing with your mind in these spiritual practices, what you're doing with your energy in the spiritual practices is structuring your energy body, structuring your subtle bodies into very literal geometric formations that are going to give you certain siddhas or powers. Siddhas is a term coming from the Himalayan tradition. And so the there's an infinite number of spiritual practices that we could do. And one of the things that's happened in recent times, I often refer to as our modern blessing and a curse, which is that we have access to more incredible, deep spiritual information than we've ever had in any other time in recorded human history, like things that used to be highly secret. You can now buy the information about it for 1695 in a paperback book. Like that's what happened in the Taoist internal alchemy traditions. So it's unbelievable. That's only happened in the last 40 years. Okay. So that's a great blessing that we get access to all this previously hidden information. The curse of it is that a lot of people don't have the the contextual background to be able to differentiate and sort through the flood of information from all these sources, which sometimes comes out in a somewhat twisted uh, way that doesn't make it actually clear what the real thing is, mm-hmm. uh, to put the, all these fragments that have come out from all these traditions into some workable format that actually leads to a tangible result in the structuring of the subtle bodies and the core spiritual development of the person in a way that we can take through the gate of death and into the subsequent incarnations. That's really the key thing here. Hmm. So the Rosicrucian tradition really began as completely independent forms of initiation 
And by independent, what I mean by that is that the person was an autonomous human being that did not have any other human being who was over them as a guru mm. or a director of that kind. The person was completely autonomous. Mm-hmm. And their connection for the initiation was literally straight above the head in the vertical axis of energy that runs from high above us, enters into the crown center, goes through the midline of the human body, out the perineum, down into the earth. There's many different energy flows and axes in the human body, but this is the most important of all of them. And so many of the most advanced techniques have to do with learning not only how to activate areas of our own brain and consciousness to be able to be more conscious and to work through many things, but also to be able to put our attention above the head and to be able to activate the centers above the head in subsequent stages. I have an online course about activating the stages above the head, which is called Connecting to Spiritual Realities. It's very hard to find information on that particular part of things. But again, this is part of the larger classical context. And so the Rosicrucians, in my view, the real Rosicrucianism, the original Rosicrucianism, isn't in any external physical organization. Again, if people want to create those and work within that and it helps them, God bless you. But I'm just saying that my particular prejudice is toward the original form where everyone is autonomous and free, which is where we're going anyway. There's been a huge movement toward that in the last hundred years. Yeah. Uh, just historically. Now we have millions and millions of people on a free spiritual path. We now have more people on the free spiritual path in most industrialized countries than we have in any specific religious tradition. It's just, it's, it's an incredible change in human history. And so the Rosicrucian tradition is actually preparing for this back in the 1600s for that independent form of spiritual initiation. So one of the great teachers of this, an external teacher that actually came forward and began to teach, uh, was Rudolf Steiner. And so Rudolf Steiner made the statement that that all advanced spiritual initiation today, by and large, is actually independent initiation, Mm. people being able to connect directly to spirit. And someone else on a similar path to you can be kind of an elder brother or sister on the path. They may have gone mm-hmm. farther than you, and mm-hmm. but they don't they don't tell you what to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be a, a violation of a person's spiritual freedom. You never get told what to do by some external authority figure. Mm-hmm. You have Example to under- being like what would be being told what to do to go like you, do a sacrifice or if you join any spiritual religion, any religion or many spiritual traditions. It's like a very crafted out thing. Okay, you've got to do this. You can't okay. do that. Mm-hmm. It's like all these rules and regulations about this is mm-hmm. how your path's going to run. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, sure. It could be just going to church at a certain time, and then you do yes. this during the ceremony. You stand up and you kneel, or you do that, or you go here and you do this. And as opposed to your own, you're talking about your own sort of navigation naturally through, you know, what your intuition, energy, and even what the universe brings you is just sort of leading you on the path. It's far more organic and it's led by you and you and you. Exactly. Because what you find very often is when, when anybody teaches, like, here's how you advance spiritually, then it's going to often come down to these are the things I found were useful for me, and in my particular form of internal structure, that's what makes sense to me and works for me. But you may be giving that somewhat hardened or rigidified structure, you must do this, you can't do that type of thing, to someone who doesn't have the same type of structure and may not have the same destiny. They may not be developing the same faculties 
in their consciousness and energy to do the things they're meant to do that you are. So that's why we can learn from a tremendous number of people. But it really comes down to a combination of contextual understanding. Now, if you're going to follow just like one external religion, and that's fine if that's what you choose to do, or one particular spiritual tradition, then you don't necessarily have to understand everything. And in many of those cases, they don't explain a lot to you. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they're even hostile to questions. I've seen that yeah. in many spiritual traditions. You start like asking question this. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but again, I find that's not only true in certain religions. It's mm-hmm. very true in some modern spiritual traditions or <clears throat> groups as well. If you start mm-hmm. questioning things, they don't, they're not very happy about it. And so. Damn you go. It's it's so much easier then for a person to just join a group that's going to tell them what to do, where there's an authority figure above them that says, do this, don't do that type of thing. You're giving your will over to them to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. I don't want to overplay this. If people want to do this, that's fine. But you need to understand what's at stake when you make that choice, I think, is, is the key thing that's not being discussed today in metaphysical circles. Let's just be clear that there's there's ramifications of the choice that you make. So Great. ramification. The ramification of the choice that you make, if you're giving your power over to another human being that you're giving that authority of a guru to, is that you're going to be taking on whatever is their system. And if that's not the optimal thing for your structure or your purpose, then you're kind of caught into somebody else's trip. I so was, I was having a conversation about this just so people can kind of like hear from my perspective as an example like I was talking to somebody about the spiritual path, essentially, and really to know more about yourself, to find more happiness and joy, to get more into alignment, you know, just to enrich in your life. And I said, I'm pretty sure that because there's no path. You can't just tell someone, go do this, go do that. You can say what's been the most helpful for you. But I said, I'm pretty sure that for me, it feels like your interest in wanting to know yourself and know more and growing spiritually is that's that that's it that is the path and then you kind of let things sort of come to you or you get led to something but just wanting to know and then you're open to all the paths and all the ways that it could go you know it's not a book it's not a practice it's not a regiment it's like i just want to know myself and i want to know more about the world and how it works and i want to grow i want to evolve Yes. So uh, I want to be even handed with this. I totally agree with what you're saying. But to be even handed, I want to clarify that the advantage of following the classical method of I'm in a specific tradition. I'm going to be there the rest of my life. I'm going to follow one grade after another, one degree after another, whatever their system is. The advantage of it is what's often described by people that support these systems coming from a and I think it's an old Indian saying that, uh, you know, if you dig a lot of shallow holes, meaning if you look into a lot of different traditions, but you don't do much with them, then you'll never find water just digging a bunch of shallow holes. If you dig one hole and go deep, then you'll find the water, which is the actual spiritual essence and transformation you're looking for. Okay. So the, that's, that's the argument on that side, yeah. that, particularly for people that don't have a a good contextual understanding, if there's some person or group that they find trustworthy and that they resonate with, then following their directions for everything can potentially lead to 
going deep in one direction that leads to actually achieving quite a few things spiritually. So many people do achieve things on that type of path. Mm-hmm. But I'm just saying that's not that's not my path. But that is a path. So again, be aware that the benefit of it could be that you actually do achieve something because it's they've had time to figure it out and this path does this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the downside is that they may not teach you absolutely essential things that you need to learn for your very different needed form of subtle body structure and the things that you're going to move toward in life. And they may have all types of embedded things within their social norms that aren't things that you want to be restricted by. So that's, that's, that's one side of it. The other side of it is that on the independent path, the benefit of it is that you're able to understand the actual effect of any practice from any tradition. doesn't mean you can't do the practices from different traditions. You can do practices from any tradition, but you have the challenge of the independent path is you have to have contextual understanding of what particular practices create what effects on the mind and the body. And they're doing that by structuring the subtle bodies in a particular way. And so the independent path requires a lot more investment of time and energy to mm-hmm. be able to understand things mm-hmm. independently because mm-hmm. now you're not giving your power away to somebody else who you think understands more than you mm-hmm. and is going to guide you because they understand more than you do. Mm-hmm. You're bringing yourself up to the point that you have to understand more mm-hmm. to make informed decisions mm-hmm. that are going to literally affect your destiny. Mm-hmm. When you reach your destiny point sooner or later, whether you follow what the Buddhists would call skillful means and get there with the minimum of suffering and the least amount of time, or unskillful means where you learn through the school of hard knocks and get hit around a lot because you didn't figure it out correctly. But it does require you to really understand things contextually mm. to a deep level to make an informed decision. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to use a dumb example. This is like yeah. um, going on a cruise. And it's all set up for you. And you go to these stops. And you might not like them all. You might like some of them. Or yes. you go, okay, I'm going to go to that area, but I'm going to plan it out. I'm going to find all the right spots, the right cities, the right hotels, the right uh, the right activities. And it's totally curated. It takes way more time than just signing up for the cruise that has all the stops set on it. And you might still have a good time on the cruise, but you're going to know that you are you you're going to be well informed when it comes to the one that you pick every stop. That's and my dumb might, example. Now that's a great example <clears throat> because then you might find that there's and this is very true when you're traveling. If you just stay on the major parts of the tourist travel route, you'll never see the most incredible hidden things that the locals know about, but that then are going to direct you to as it's a tourist moving through. So that deeper contextual understanding allows you to find the most critical things on that pilgrimage that you're you're going on. It makes it a pilgrimage rather than just an entertainment that doesn't lead to anything. So for me, I've always had an orientation toward that independent path. So it does require a certain level of spiritual maturity. It does require a lot more investment of time and energy. And you have to take the responsibility for the outcome. Before, you can put that responsibility on somebody else. It's like, oh, that, you know, they told me to do that and it didn't work out. It's their fault. But at a certain point of growing up as an adult, you get tired of blaming other people. Mm-hmm. And, but to, to get to that point, you're no longer blaming other people you got to take responsibility onto yourself if things are not right. working out in your life. And that's certainly true when it comes to spiritual development. 
So, bringing us all back to our main topic here of the Rosicrucian tradition, although many people adapted Rosicrucianism into organizations where you could join and you could go through grades and this type of thing, and many people may benefit from that. Again, I think, by and large, the movement today is for people to have independent forms of initiation, and that was very much set forth as a pattern by the Rosicrucian tradition back when it became public back in the early 1600s. So I do want to make this clear to people because I find it's very rarely made clear. When people talk about Rosicrucian tradition, like, oh, where is it? I want to join it. It's like, let me send in my membership. Mm. It's like, well, you can find somebody that's running a Rosicrucian organization, and you can do that, and you can become a member of something. But I, I just want to emphasize that from my perspective, that's fine if you do that. That's not the key thing. The key that thing is not Rosicrucianism. That's not what that that's not what this is. It's not core Rosicrucianism because core okay. Rosicrucianism requires you to be independent. This is my perspective. Yeah. To directly connect to spirit, okay. not go through a human intermediary right. or give the power away to a human intermediary. Mm-hmm. And in that path, you will necessarily have to become extremely conscious of all kinds of non-physical realities that other people are not because to connect when we talk about this as something literal it's not metaphoric you're literally connecting up the column of energy above the head to specific energy centers that give you the capacity to perceive and have a communication with non-physical beings and to perceive non-physical realities Mm -hmm. Rudolf Steiner referred to this as clairvoyance as a kind of controlled psychosis and so it may not even be that safer path for a person who has serious mental issues, people mm. who are psychotic or yeah. bipolar. That might not be a sure. they need to like get stability in their earthly life before they try to tackle something like this. Mm-hmm. Because if you're perceiving non-physical things right now, but it's coming from a, a, mm. a state mm. that is yeah. bad brain chemicals, mm-hmm. uh, that may you don't have the physical foundation to do this in a grounded and healthy way. Mm-hmm. So it requires being fairly well-grounded and well-adjusted mm-hmm. to to take on this independent path. But we have to simply accept the fact, we have to just acknowledge the historical reality that the time we live in now is when millions and millions of people are voting with their feet to go this direction. It simply hasn't been clearly delineated, I don't think, in modern metaphysics. The the the, the choice here between the organizations, because within modern metaphysics, we still have all these different gurus and teachers and organizations. Mm-hmm. But the difference between that and the independent path, that's that's a whole thing. So the Rosicrucian tradition in its original form, that I believe in its true form, is all about a modern form of independent initiation. And that doesn't mean you're doing it by yourself, but it means that the authority that you're working with is not on the physical plane. Right. It is literally spiritual. Okay. And so this requires the ability to start perceiving. But again, using a great piece of terminology by Dr. Sagan from the Clear Vision School, he called packed thought forms. Because in our physical lives, in the physical body, we process thoughts through the machinery of the physical brain. But the human higher consciousness is not brain-oriented. In fact, there's even been brain research, like the work of Sir John Eccles, who won a uh, Nobel Prize for his brain research decades ago. And he said, I looked for the place that initiated the firing of neurons that created a thought in the human brain, and I found there wasn't any. It actually comes from a higher holographic field of energy around the human head that then interacts as a field of energy with the brain to initiate the firing of neurons. 
That halo in all the ancient photos. It's exactly what it is. And this is someone who won the Nobel Prize for brain research saying this. So we have to get to the point then that we start working at the energy centers above the head quite consciously. Mm -hmm. And that allows us to start working with packed thought forms. So the packed thought forms are essentially where it is the pure content of mind substance, of the thought substance itself. It can be transmitted in the form of images, in the form of sounds, in the form of direct internal kinesthetic knowing. Okay. But is this it's the Claire's a, basically? Is this the Claire audience, Claire sentient, Claire? Exactly. Okay. Claire cognizant. The key thing is that it doesn't have to get reduced from that direct perception, immediate knowing state into words because word thinking is extremely powerful on the physical plane. Mm-hmm. It's a type of digital thinking. It's mm-hmm. an extremely binary. Mm-hmm. And so thinking in words is a lower form of thinking and communication. Mm-hmm. People who have done any type of Zen meditation, Vipassana, transcendental meditation, they'll understand what I'm talking about. Higher consciousness states are not based on thinking one word after another. Mm-hmm. It's not what they call the monkey mind chatter. So it East. like comes to you. It's like arrives as a pack a thought. Is that, that that's the pack? Yes, it does. Because you you don't have to actually take the linear time that you would hear to know the information. It all arrives at the same time. And it's like an awareness to something new or an idea. That's how it feels to me. It's like it's not like somebody says the words this. You're going to do this. And like how about it's more like and it almost is paired with the it's a it's it's it also is like locks into almost like an embodiment as well. There's it's a it's an actual experience on more levels than just the words and thinking. It's like a whole full it's a full experience, body, mind, soul, the whole thing. It's it becomes a knowing. Absolutely. It's a type of immediate transmission. Yeah. That leads to an immediate knowing and reception. Mm. So this is what they call things like transmissions, like in the Indian tradition. Like when the you're getting a Shakti transmission. It's an instantaneous transmission. And so a pack thought form is the most condensed form of the direct knowing of that thing. It gets transmitted in an instant. So this is that eureka moment where you get the download in an instant and you get the whole thing. If you had to describe to somebody else the information you received in that moment, yeah. it could take you days of trying to unpack it one word after another. Yeah. And there's, you're still not going to be able to fully convey in the unpacked words which take forever to get out. Totally. The direct experience. Totally. So to be able to receive the packed thought forms is essential to be able to have direct communication with non-physical beings and non-physical realities because that's how they communicate. Beings that are not on the physical plane, and we're surrounded by them all the time. This is something that is like one of the very weird things about the current state of humanity that – we're like, I often use the example that we're like fish in a, in a sea, that we're surrounded by water, but we don't know water exists. The water yeah. is this, the spiritual world. We're embedded in the spiritual world. But if we don't have the eyes to see it, we haven't developed the internal organs of perception, we'll never know that we're surrounded by spiritual beings all the time that are conveying information to us. And those spiritual beings are of varying levels of reliability, just like <laughs> human beings are. And quality. <laughs> exactly. So you have to 
just like you have to have some discernment with the company you keep on the physical plane, you have to have discernment of the company you keep in the non-physical world. It's not a naive, I'm just opening up to any old thing that wants to come in mm. and type of thing. It's like you need to talk to the, the reliable beings. And there's different ways to differentiate that when we get in. That's a different topic. But that's a very important idea that we need to develop the capacity to receive the pack thought forms from the higher beings where they can give us a lot of information in a second. Mm-hmm. So, again, that's nonverbal. Verbal is a lower level for us to be able to communicate it by breaking it down into bits. But mm-hmm. it's super slow mm-hmm. in comparison. Mm-hmm. And it can be super frustrating to be mm-hmm. able to do that. People who are good speakers are good speakers because they've learned how to receive or to hold pack thought forms and to be able to bring it in a constant trail into the unpacking in the brain to form words, which then they can make some sense out of it to be able to convey to other people. That's actually what's happening behind the scenes. When someone's able to speak extemporaneously in a, in a eloquent manner. That would be you. Well, I appreciate that. I'm working on it. That's all I can ever <laughs> say, but I'm working on it. You're so uh, good at it. Well, thank you. But I want people to understand the principle behind it. I mean, that's the whole idea of spiritual initiation. We're not just going to see the results of things. We want to understand the causes of things. We want to see what actually creates that thing mm-hmm. to understand the path. So let's look at another aspect. Now that we've talked about this as Rosicrucianism being originally a independent path and about developing your consciousness to be able to do things like directly perceive non-physical realities, mm-hmm. because that's the real initiators. Mm-hmm. You know, in some traditions, they just want to unify it into the one source behind everything. And so it's like God is the initiator. That's the one. That's the totality of everything. Mm-hmm. Other traditions will then go into the specific beings you're working with. Mm. Because usually if somebody says, and many people get upset with me when I say this, <clears throat> but this is my perspective. If somebody says, oh, God told me this or God told me that, it's like, well, God is the totality of all beings and all existence and all universes known and unknown. And he told you that in physical words. It's like, well, maybe. But my perspective is that, no, if you got that and it wasn't something you made up, you actually got it. There's another being at another level of existence you got it from. And so if you're going to deal with this in a brass tacks manner, then I don't just like meet somebody on the street and somebody says, oh, where did you hear, you know, that this band is playing at this show? I don't say, oh, God told me because, mm-hmm. yeah, in a sense, God told me because right. God created that being. Right. But Yeah. But if I say God told me that Iron Maiden is playing in Las Vegas next year, well, that's a little weird. Mm-hmm. But as a specific individual that told me this, and there's uh-huh. usually specific individual beings that are communicating things to you. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So that's another thing that's extremely important. That has to become like part of one's lived reality. But it has, you can't even do it unless you're able to have such a, such equanimity, such balance that being able to perceive non-physical realities doesn't throw you off your center. You know, you don't have what the Tibetans call grasping, which is like, oh, that's fascinating. I see this non-physical being or thing, and you try to grasp it. As soon as you did that, you'll corrupt it. You have to stay completely calm and just observe it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you don't shrink away from it. You may receive things about horrible things that happened to you in past incarnations. Mm-hmm. You may receive something about something horrible that's going to happen to you in this incarnation. Very mm-hmm. hard to have equanimity about that. Mm-hmm. But that's the only way to not corrupt what you perceive spiritually. Oh, yeah. You've experienced, it's experienced in meditation, I feel like, or 
even like a dream feels like you do it where you're trying to go back into it and you're like, you're in a meditation and you're like, Oh, that's yes. cool. And you're like, you're like, you start to realize something. And you're like, you try and look harder essentially. And then it disappears or like in the, you wake up sort of and you think that was a great dream. And I like, okay, what was I thinking about again? And then you can't get there again. It just disappears. It won't come to you. And it's in the surrender that you actually are now able to perceive there's no, You've got to open instead of close and narrow. That's that's what it feels like to me that I've had the experiences of. That's ab- I absolutely agree with you. That's exactly how it works. Again, to take a, a phrase from Dr. Sagan at the Clear Vision School, he would often say, I thought this was a brilliant summary, that your ability to perceive spiritually is governed by your ability to not react to what you see. <laughs> yeah. That is absolute core of everything. So, you know, in all types of personal development work, one of the first things we do in psychological self-help or personal development work is that we understand we have to get it beyond the reactive mind. The reactive mind is your enemy. The reactive mind makes you a a beast. It reduces you to the level of an animal functioning in the bad sense of that term. Mm -hmm. And you're not at a truly human stage. You're just an input-output mechanism. You're a machine. Mm-hmm. I can push this button with you and you're going to react this way because you're just so deeply programmed. You can't even see your programming. Right. And so we have to understand that we have to get past the reactive mind to do any of this. Otherwise, what people think they're seeing clairvoyantly is nothing other than the projection of their own mind substance and of their own weird crap. So this is another important part of the independent path of spiritual initiation because there are various trials on the path. Whether you do it with a group and you give your power over to an external teacher or you do it in the independent path, there's going to be what's known classically as trials, as challenges. And they have to be there. People to say, oh, I don't want to have to deal with those. Let's just get rid of them. That doesn't work that way. The only way that you develop the skill, that you develop the siddha, is by going through the trial and succeeding in it. And it will keep coming up until you can you can pass it. Often in multiple lifetimes, you'll keep getting these horrible experiences. Until finally you figure out how to get through it, and then you don't have to keep going through it anymore. Mm-hmm. It's like a grade of school that you got to get through. Mm-hmm. And so this whole idea that we need to be able to overcome certain challenges, one of the first challenges that you have on the path, and particularly this is true on the independent path. It's also true on the path of the organization, but very much on the independent path, is one of the very first challenges is ego inflation, that you think that you're way more advanced than you are. And you set up your own little spiritual group and you're the guru and you're the teacher and you're perfect and you know everything and you got all this power and this, this ego inflation happens very quickly on the path. And we see it everywhere in metaphysics today. You know, humility isn't Cancel just the group. So <laughs> <laughs> you can be a, you can be a teacher. You can have a group, but it's not a matter that, you know, you've reached some perfected state and give yourself you start giving yourself high titles and that type of thing rather than being joe blow then that's usually a sign that something's going on here you start and one of the things for the rosicrucians to avoid this is that you're not allowed in rosicrucianism now again we say you know being told what to do what not to do this is a suggestion (laughs) on the independent path you can do anything you want but you know some things just don't make sense Mm -hmm. you know you could choose to be a heroin addict, but probably that won't make sense in the long run. And one thing that won't make sense and usually goes wrong 
in the long run is when people start talking publicly about their past incarnations. And so it's like, well, I was the great so-and-so, and I did this, and I did that. Mm-hmm. That usually attracts the wrong type of attention, and mm-hmm. it usually it usually goes bad. Everybody uh, was something great in past lives, of course. That's, and Don't believe me, ask them. Exactly. Ask me. That's, I mean, I trust me. I mean, and it also leads to people getting all this ego attachment to who they were before. Mm. And again, I don't want to offend anybody, but I have literally met over a dozen reincarnations of Mary Magdalene. It's mm. like such a common thing that they have people to think they are the reincarnation of Mary Magdalene or that they were one of the disciples of Christ or they were this or that. And here's here's a, a great marker for evaluating these experiences. If you actually were these people, like let's say a disciple of Christ or something like that, mm-hmm. your memory of it is often going to be a somatic memory of suffering. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be like, I'm so great, I'm so advanced, I'm mm-hmm. this amazing person, follow mm-hmm. me, listen to me. Anytime people talk like that, it's nothing but dealing with their own core wounds and mm-hmm. compensating for inferiority complexes. Otherwise, you'd never do that crap. I mean, mm-hmm. there's no reason mm-hmm. yeah. to do it. Uh, but the for people experienced on that, the people that were disciples for around Christ, they didn't have like some fantastic, I'm an elevated person thing. They were trudging around in the desert in sandals, barely with enough to eat or drink and constantly under threat of torture and death. I mean, these were hard experiences. Mm-hmm. So when people have, you know, have hours of great so-and-so, the people that were the great so-and-so, they know the suffering that came in that lifetime. They know the, the what they went through. To be able to do what they did at that time, and they also they feel that's what so it took to be remembered. That that they there's no they don't want to talk about it publicly. It gets the wrong type of attention. People aren't going to understand it the way it actually was. It's going to be sensationalized and romanticized. And so again, the challenge is ego inflation. And so there's suggestions in Rosicrucianism like don't start talking about your past incarnations, or that can go really wrong. But also just the whole idea that you're way more advanced than you actually are. You know, all you got to do is like look at look at your romantic relationships, and usually that'll bring you down hard and fast. No, I don't want to. I mean, <laughs> I've had multiple therapists for a while. I feel like I kind of bridged the gap. I'm not saying it's gone, but let's not talk about it. <laughs> exactly, but that's the kind of thing that when you deal with family, when you deal with people in intimate relationships, they'll bring you down fast to the fact that you're not perfect and you haven't figured it all out yet. No. So, so this is another aspect of the thing of the independent path. There are certain trials and don't get caught up in, in the things like inflating your ego just because now you can hear people's thoughts and okay. you can do these other things that other people can't do. Okay. It's almost always a mistake even to talk about it. I mean, most people are not going to take well if you let them know like, Oh yeah, I can hear your thoughts. Uh, most people, that's not going to work out well in most cases. Now you're not trying to do it. There are ways that there are esoteric methods you can use to penetrate into a person's head and to get the thoughts, but that's a type of invasion. Uh, but there's a natural method that just by clarifying your own thoughts, so you have a completely clear mind, you start hearing other people's thoughts just because you're quiet enough to hear them. People are broadcasting them like they're shouting all the freaking yeah, time. That's all we're doing. That's why sensitive people have a hard time often being in like chaotic environments. Right. Because it's just like right. people are shouting mentally all the time and it's like, right. plus you're feeling their weird energies. So, <laughs> so now let me talk about, uh, uh, some other aspects on the path. There's yes. also the idea in the Rosicrucian tradition that there's certain types of initiation maxims. Again, let's call them suggestions. 
for ways to develop in a healthy way. One of them is to make the decision at the very beginning of the work that you do that all the spiritual powers and understanding that you gain on the path will be put to the service of other people. Mm. Not as an abstract thought, but as something so deep in your heart and your mm. gut that mm. it's a way of life. Mm-hmm. That you're going to put these things that you develop to the service of other people. It's for mm-hmm. service. Mm-hmm. Now, this is one of the things that when you start seeing the group of beings that are behind, let's say, Buddhism, working with all the initiates of Buddhism, the group of beings behind Christianity, Christ, archangels, high saints, masters, etc., that you would be connected to, that as you go up, let's say, a level or two, you find that the beings behind Christianity and behind Buddhism start to get a lot of overlap. There's a tremendous amount of overlap between the beings behind Buddhism and Christianity, which have to do with teachings of compassion mm-hmm. and love and non-revenge, mm-hmm. non-anger, things like this, things that have to do with developing beyond the animal reactive stage. Well, then we got to say that Taylor Swift is probably not one of those people. She talks about uh, vigilante shit and revenge and reputation. Yeah, yeah, not Taylor Swift. Got it. Well, one thing I always want to make sure to do is to leave the, the space of grace open for people. That, <laughs> no, but whenever, you know, I always, uh, whenever a celebrity, like we have a kind of thing where we like to, to like uh, build up celebrities and then we tear them down. And I think, oh, that's probably not a healthy way to it. So my whole thing is that even when celebrities are doing crazy things that are not not the great role model for for other people, because they're just people going through their lives too, mm-hmm. that in a karmic pathway, that could transform to something completely different. Yeah, that's true. And so you always just want to hold in your heart for somebody like, well, that anger is a natural human stage. Revenge is a natural stage of the path. And mm-hmm. so we see the stage that's being passed through right now, and you're making it visible. But I really hope you get to the next stage because you'll be a lot more comfortable when you get there. Oh, yeah. Exactly. That's the way I try to look at it. That's a nice way. That's a nice way to put some uh, frosting on it, on the top of that and, and be very positive. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. We always have to have compassion when people are acting out publicly. And it, it just shows that they're in a particular stage of an alchemical path. Got it. And yep. the later stages are on the way. And, and I really hope that you get to them sooner rather than later for your, relieving your own suffering. Because that's like one of the great gifts of the Buddhist thing is that when somebody hurts you, somebody does something terrible to you, somebody's not a good person and has really harmed you, the first thing you look at is how they're suffering, how they're acting out from their suffering, whether they don't, they may not even know they're suffering, but it's really a reaction to it. Yeah. yeah. And that's the way the Buddhists get, a, get past anger. It's a, it's a beautiful system. Mm. And it's the exact same thing in Christianity, because this is related to what was the Christian initiation esoteric system before the Rosicrucians. Because before we had Rosicrucianism going public around the 1600s, you had before that the Holy Grail tradition in Mm -hmm. Christianity that began around the ninth century. And the text for that was the, the, the epic poem Parsifal. And in there, the, the Grail lesson, the Grail question, that Parsifal has to learn is to ask brother or sister, what ails thee? And so brother or sister, what ails thee is the exact same thing in, as in Buddhism in asking, how does the person suffer uh-huh. to get past anger and to understand the person and see how you can help the person. Mm-hmm. 
And so that just shows you, again, an overlap of these traditions. Mm-hmm. Now, the point I want to make here then is that I consider myself to be an aspirant toward the Rosicrucian tradition. There's a, I always think of this, this beautiful response that Bono from U2 gave in an interview many years ago, like in the 80s, when he was being interviewed about being a Christian. And, uh, you know, he was talking a lot about that at the time. And somebody says, do you consider yourself a Christian? And Bono's response was, I would hesitate to give myself that high a compliment. And that's the way I feel about Rosicrucianism. Somebody says, are you a Rosicrucian? I would hesitate to give myself that high a compliment. I aspire to it. I do my best with that. I try to share what I understand and have experienced with that with other people. But again, we have to be very careful of ego inflation. Yeah. People start saying, I am the representative of this tradition and blah, 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 blah. Because ultimately, it's an ongoing process, I would it imagine. Is. There's actually not really, an, there's not an end to it. So to say you've arrived somewhere is completing it and there's really no completion. It's like, it's a, it's a life practice of, of a, it's a life practice. It really is. And you can always fall back from a state as well. In a free will universe, just because you've attained something doesn't mean you're going to hold on to it. Now, this is part. You can have your own entropy there. That's right. That's why there's a very important concept here that I'd like to talk about. Mm -hmm. I don't see it specifically in Rosicrucianism, but I think it would belong to it in the sense that it's such a core spiritual principle, which is that we have certain stages of activity. And today, everybody talks about healing. Mm-hmm. And everything is about healing. Mm-hmm. But it's often dealt with as a healing is like a goal in itself. And that's mm-hmm. not really the case. Healing is meant to make us whole. The term heal comes from the root whole. Mm-hmm. And so people get caught up in healing. And I found years ago that if I teach a class and I put the word healing in the title, <clears throat> I'll get three times the number of people if I don't, as if I don't put the word healing in the title. But it becomes like a thing where like constantly healing. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's absolutely essential because we have to become whole enough to do what we came here to do. Mm-hmm. Because the, one of the things. Are you in, saying it's not healing? It's more of like illuminating or merging or. What you're pointing toward is that there's later stages. Healing is just stage one. But people aren't always clear what comes after the healing. It's just like I'm, I'm always healing. I'm constantly healing. Mm-hmm. And yes, that's true. We are. But the fact that we're constantly focusing just on healing Mm -hmm. is like we're forgetting what healing is for. Why are we becoming whole? Why are we wanting to get all of our our Mm -hmm. act together in the first place? Yeah. And because the whole spiritual path is around remembering who am I? Why am I here? And what did I choose to do in this incarnation? Because life is a limited time opportunity, an extremely limited time opportunity. For us to achieve certain things in our spiritual development. Yeah. And so we have to keep our eyes on the prize. So after we get enough healing, we have to make sure that we don't just keep focusing. I'm going to do more healing and more healing and more healing. Yes, keep doing more healing. Keep finding new and better ways to heal. But start focusing the majority of your attention on what that's for. And so the next stage above that is activation. You need to activate your consciousness. You need to activate your heart forces. You need to activate your will. You need to activate your perception of who am I, why am I here, what did I incarnate to do. Mm-hmm. So, yes, healing is very, very important, but it's not the end in itself. You want to do that so you can activate. Inside of every person are latent powers 
again, what they call siddhas in, mm-hmm. in India, that activate our consciousness, activate our heart forces, activate our will forces, bring online hidden powers and potentials and understandings and skills mm-hmm. that we all developed in previous lifetimes that may not be fully back yet in this lifetime and to activate things so we can generate brand new skills yeah, and things we've never had before yeah. to, to integrate into our core structure. Mm-hmm. But that's not the end in itself either because mm-hmm. many people will be able to get activations, particularly when they are assisted by things like there's a huge revolution in psychotropics now. And I'm right. doing a lot of work with the psychotropics community and I'm, I'm a supporter of that. Mm-hmm. But again, we always have to have a uh, balanced perspective on it. And so it's very possible a person will have some type of trip or something and, and they'll get activated. But the question is, can you hold it in a way that serves your totality and preserves it going forward? Because it's possible to get all of these activations, but can you integrate it into your core structure so that you then stay at that level of development and then can add more to it? So there has to be stability to it. So that's why above activation is then stabilization. You have to stabilize the states. So one thing that I'm trying to get to understood in the psychotropic community is do some healing work sometimes on core things yeah. before you do massive amounts of the psychotropics, because mm-hmm. then it's going to go a lot better when you do, if mm-hmm. some of that stuff's already dealt with. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's just going to come up for you to process. And if you've taken a quantity of a substance that you're not riding the wave, but the wave is crashing on you like a hundred foot wave in, in Hawaii, then that might not be skillful action yeah. in the way to, to do this. It might be a better way to go about it. Right. But once you've got the activated state, don't just assume, oh, I'm going to be enlightened for the rest of my life. It's you have to find a way to stabilize it. Mm. And this is this is a literal thing. It has to be stabilized in the energy body. It has to be stabilized oh. in the structures of the subtle body. Stabilizing the structures in the subtle body is something that's not hardly discussed at all today. Yeah, you're. But, this is new. I'm very curious what you mean by this. And like as as an example, what would that what would be needed to do that? So a, a very simple example of it is every time that you use your mind in a certain way, you are structuring the energy patterns in your head in a very specific geometry, in a very specific shape. Mm-hmm. You're activating certain parts of the brain and you're sedating other parts of the brain. Mm-hmm. You're activating release of certain types of neurochemicals based on the, the quality of what you're thinking and you're doing and other types of stress chemicals in the body, etc. It all becomes a pattern that has a geometric form to it in your body of what things are activated and what's deactivated. Same thing with the heart. You find some people have massively expanded heart energy. Other people have almost none. Why? Because of the way that they've been using their heart energy, Mm. the attention they're giving to it. And anybody can change that at any time. But we need to be aware that one of the sayings is thoughts are things. Mm. And we need to be aware that every thought that you have, every feeling and emotion you have, every action you take, they are all causes set in motion. They Mm. all have an energetic basis to them. They will all activate certain things in your body of energy. And when you do it over time, that will then create a pattern in the energy body that then becomes your state, your mental state, your emotional state. 
yeah. your ability to take action in a destructive or a beneficial way. Biological state. Exactly. But, I mean, we could actually see this. So when a clairvoyant perceives someone's energy field, they can see, oh, this person has a very activated third eye center, but the mm-hmm. center above it may not be as activated. So they're capable of some things here, but they're not capable of what these things do. And mm-hmm. maybe their their heart is suppressed. That may be leading, if you go back to the healing level, it might go back to the fact that now they have heart problems because the way they've been using their emotions is actually destroying the function, biological function of the heart because it's a cause set in motion and it is creating an energy vibrational broadcast that's actually harming their physical heart in addition to not having a stable structure to the to the whole energy body. So anyway, this is something that we rarely hear about today. It's extremely important, something that Dr. Sagan emphasized a lot of the clear vision school, but really is a classical understanding. What is the structure of our subtle bodies? And we need to activate it to higher levels so that our mind, our heart, our will centers, the three primary centers of the energy body are all activated and working together in an optimal way and that we can stabilize that so that we can hold that so that, you know, when we use psychotropic substances, things of that kind, it introduces us to a state. And just like a neurolinguistic programming, can we entrain to that state to be able to hold it mm-hmm. without having to continue doing the substance every week or something? Now, you may need to do it on a particular basis until the pattern gets set. But again, what we're trying to do is we're trying to integrate this right. and we're trying to hold it norm. for, yeah, try to hold it over a longer period of time. Mm-hmm. Now, if I can segue into another topic with yeah. uh, the time we have, there's another very yeah. important thing I want to make people aware of that's not often discussed with Rosicrucianism. And that's done to understand that Rosicrucianism is the current manifestation of an ancient tradition, which took other forms in earlier times. Just as we take on different forms in different lifetimes, I may have looked very different and acted quite differently 3,000 years ago in Egypt than I do today. You know, we take different forms based on the culture and on whatever it is that we and humanity as a whole is working to crystallize at this particular time. If the Rosicrucian tradition came on in the early 1600s, what was it before then? Well, before then, it connected to what was called the Holy Grail tradition in mm-hmm. Europe. Mm-hmm. And at that time, people incarnated in the south of France and were part of the Bogomils, Albigensians, the Cathars, all these things that were murdered, all these groups, Holy Grail groups that were murdered by the Pope's armies mm-hmm. and were part of this whole uh, Mary lineage in the south of France that we often hear about today. But it even started even before that with what happened around the court of Charlemagne, with the beginning of the Holy Grail tradition, the writing of the Epic Forum Parsifal. It was a way to crystallize the new form of spiritual initiation for the forms that people could understand in their current culture and with an understanding of the initiation trials they have to get through right now. Because we may have gone through different initiation trials in uh, back at the time of ancient Egypt or things of that kind. You're struggling with something else. It's a different point in history. So you might need something else as a way to deal with life. And Yes, it's, it's essentially a consecutive series of uh, stages in an alchemical process. Mm, oh. So oh. as we keep moving through this alchemical process, for a lot of people, we go back to Egypt. Mm. So I, I meet so many people today 
who have a resonance with ancient Egypt, who often remember being in ancient Egypt mm-hmm. and have often connections between each other from ancient mm-hmm. Egypt. Now, this is the foundation of then of what we've called the Hermetic tradition. And the Hermetic tradition, we should be aware, is something that opens you up to working with every source of knowledge, every tradition. That's what Hermeticism is, that you take spiritual wisdom from every place it comes from. And as an independent act, as, as your own authority, you're able to synthesize it into these are broken fragments of a complete teaching. This tradition got this part. This tradition got this part. We can bring it back together. And now we have the picture of what the exact reality of spiritual reality and physical reality and their connections are. Hmm. So that's something that we in our current understanding, we take back to ancient Egypt with the Hermetic tradition. But that also became a foundation for the Rosicrucian independent path that I'm talking about right now. That's been worked on for a long time. It didn't just happen. Mm-hmm. We've worked on it for a long time. In ancient Egypt, we didn't follow a purely independent path. There were aspects of it. We were we were being trained for it to come at a later time. But mm-hmm. we were part of a temple. Mm-hmm. And you were, got trained in the temple, and there was a very hierarchical structure and mm-hmm. things of that kind. Because that's the way that the society at the time and our stage of alchemical development could do the process most effectively. Mm-hmm. Even then, some of the most active and enlightened people like Pythagoras could like go and train in Egypt and train in Babylon and do this kind of thing. You know, they could still, it still was possible, but it wasn't the mass movement that it is today. Wow. So we are an ongoing process. So we have been building on this practice since. Absolutely. And again, it took different forms. If we try to initiate someone in the Egyptian style today with all of their cultural conditions, uh, most people in modern culture wouldn't even understand what we're talking about because we don't have the same cultural references and we're not necessarily in the same stage of, of evolutionary development, okay. the same alchemical stage. Okay. Now we can learn a lot from it. Obviously with my teaching biogeometry and my, how grad, much great gratitude I have for working with Dr. Kareem, et cetera, biogeometry is incredibly important. Yeah. But let's be clear. Dr. Kareem is bringing this rediscovered knowledge that he was able to find through his research. Uh, from ancient Egypt into a modern cultural context and a modern format for what we have to deal with right now, like electromagnetic fields. They didn't have to deal with that right. 5,000 years ago in Egypt. So it, we have to always see it in context. So there's a sacred geometry of space. And that's what people tend to think of when we say sacred geometry, like platonic solids and things you see in like psychedelic imagery and these types of things. But there's also a sacred geometry of time. So we have to see the pattern in time both in our own lifetimes, to understand who am I, why am I here. But we also have to understand the sacred geometry of time when it comes to things like spiritual traditions, which we may be associated with in different lifetimes, and the whole evolution of humanity through these traditions. So there's a certain thread here that if you read the original teachings of the Greeks who went to study in Egypt and came back, like in the Pythagorean school, Mm -hmm. like the writings of Plato, says very directly that the Greeks like Solon in the writings of Plato, where they talked to the Egyptian priest, they said, all of our knowledge came from Atlantis. Now, today, Atlantis is considered to be some type of new age, hoo-hoo, fantasy, whatever. They're ignoring the fact it comes from historical documents that are thousands of years old of what the Egyptian priests themselves told their initiates. That's where the whole word comes from. And so, really, we would have to go back to the Atlantean times 
to understand this trajectory. There is an understanding of some times before that, that according to the secret doctrine teachings of people like Blavatsky and the Theosophists, they have certain names, very ancient times of the Polarian Epoch, the Hyperborean, etc. Fascinating stuff, but way too complex to get into here. Conditions of form that we had were very different then. But Atlantean, we, we can still sometimes go back to that to understand it. So the Atlantean going forward to the Egyptian, many of us having very formative experiences in Egypt. And there's the hidden sacred geometry of time that in what's referred to in Rosicrucianism as the post-Atlantean time period, which is our current epoch, the post-Atlantean epoch. Everything. Oh, we're in that now? That's what we're in now. That's a long period of time. And in the sacred geometry of time, it's divided into seven sections. The number seven is part of a rhythm that governs time. And so, you know, there's the first stage after that. And this is according to the Rosicrucian tradition. First stage after that was the ancient Indian Vedic tradition. Mm-hmm. Like literally the time of the Vedas was a founding in India of people that left Atlantis at the time of the destruction, okay. the, the founding of the, the civilization in the Indus Valley. And then that moved to the second period, which was the Persian Zoroastrian period. It was at that time that they began to perceive certain things spiritually that had not been clearly perceived before. And this is where the religion of light in Persia. Then the third epoch was the Egyptian Chaldean Babylonian. And that was the Egyptian epoch. Then the next is the Greco-Roman epoch. That's the fourth period. And at that point, you know, the Romans conquered the known world sort of thing. And they developed the foundations for modern science, etc. Then we move into the current epoch, which is referred to as the European epoch Mm -hmm. in the Rosicrucian tradition. And we can see that Europe became the dominant force in Mm -hmm. that epoch. And then the next one is going to be the Eastern European epoch. The Eastern European peoples will bring in new impulses the way that these other people brought in new impulses culturally Mm -hmm. before. And we're not there yet. We're not in the Eastern European epoch yet. We're not there yet, but it's being formed. If you observe certain things happening in Eastern Europe, it's the, it's preparing for, and that's going to become a dominant. And when force. we did this, we, when I interviewed you before, you gave the menorah as sort of like a connection of time. So is that exactly that what so, you're alluding to with this Rosicrucian teaching of time? Exactly, because if you understand that, that we have these seven periods, mm-hmm. then. Uh, the menorah that we described last time, I wanted to bring it into context with what we're describing right now mm-hmm. so we can understand where the Rosicrucianism came mm-hmm. from. It came through the evolution of these traditions. Mm-hmm. But we also have the aspect of it that the menorah is the, the original form, like what they you see in the Arch of Titus in Rome, where they stole the menorah from the Temple of Solomon uh, around 70 AD with the Jewish revolt and the Romans putting it down, that you know, the menorah they had in the Temple of Solomon, it had a uh, straight line coming down, support staff at the fourth place where you put the fourth candle. That's a Greco-Roman epoch when you see it in sacred geometric structure. The third and the fifth are connected in an arc. Mm-hmm. The second and the sixth and the first mm-hmm. and the seventh. Mm-hmm. So the third epoch is the Egyptian epoch. The fifth epoch is our current European. Mm-hmm. So the reason why many of us that have that incarnation at that time are so focused on ancient Egypt 
And I believe also another hidden reason why Dr. Cream is doing this unbelievable work releasing yeah. what had never been made public before about some of the inner knowledge of the ancient Egyptian temples within mm-hmm. biogeometry work has to do with the fact that we are working with those impulses from the old Egyptian time in a way that is mirror imaged. It's reversed. That fourth place is like a, a mirror. And all the earlier periods get reversed or mirror imaged in going the opposite direction that we went through before. And so there's a lot of things now that we're working with what we developed in the Egyptian epoch, and we're now transforming it, the essence of that, those powers, those abilities, that essence, into something that's at a higher level at this current Mm -hmm. stage. Okay. So this then brings together a, a type of movement in the traditions I just talked about, but also many people find in their incarnations that they'll find there's this Atlantean to yeah. Egypt mm-hmm. to then for quite a few people that then led into working with the Essenes mm-hmm. uh, in the Jewish tradition when the Jews left Egypt because you know, Moses was an initiate of the Egyptian temple and there's a direct evolution of that knowledge into the Jewish Kabbalah. Much of it came from the Egyptian temple, then it changed form for a different different culture. And so there's some incredible stuff that happened in the Essenes. That's another discussion. And then from there, it moves into uh, the Christian tradition, into Europe, and but then developed with aspects of uh, contemporaneous with the Essenes was the Greek knowledge and how that developed. And then developing in Europe, with Christianity, everything from the early Christian centuries, which was really fomenting in Alexandria, Egypt. Uh, and that's where the early Christian writings that are the most advanced, like those coming from origin in Alexandria, Egypt in the third century, books like On First Principles. They're mind-blowing books. Most Christians don't even know anything about these books, but it's the real metaphysical basis of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And then it came into Europe, became the Holy Grail tradition, became the Rosicrucian tradition. And so I did, wanted to make sure that as we had this discussion today, I could I could show this. And some people will find in their own karmic biography, as they remember things like, oh, this is the the pearls on the thread mm-hmm. for, for these two incarnations. But at the same time, there's a lot of richness in this uh, extract. Right. But there's also an aspect, but that doesn't mean that there weren't also incarnations in other parts of the world. So many people that have an innate resonance with the Rosicrucian tradition will have memories of incarnations in Eastern traditions, in India, China, many other cultures, because there's a a tremendous amount of knowledge there. And that shows that they're a part of the Hermetic tradition. They're a part of being able to access spiritual knowledge from all sources. And because in the deeper hidden aspects of the Rosicrucian tradition, this is related to the direct impulse coming from Archangel Mikael. Mm. Archangel Mikael is known to the Rosicrucians as the regent of the cosmic intelligence, Hmm. also known as the cosmopolitan spirit. What that means is that... He sounds cool. (laughs) Yes. Archangel Mikael is the being that understands the original gnosis how all the original knowledge that got broken up and distributed in the different traditions of the world mm. comes back into a unified spiritual science. Mm-hmm. 
And that's why at the beginning of the current age of Mikael, beginning in 1879, in the reign of the seven archangelic ages, a whole nother sacred geometry of time subject, we are living currently in the age of Mikael. That's why Rudolf Steiner, as a very advanced Rosicrucian initiate, began to teach publicly around the year 1900 and released extremely advanced Rosicrucian knowledge that they kept very secret before, and why we're getting this huge explosion now at the turn of the last century of the release of previously hidden information from so many traditions, mm-hmm. because it's the Mikaelic impulse to put back together the complete gnosis or the complete modern spiritual science. And to be honest, to do my little part toward that, that's why I'm here and why I created the Vesica Institute mm-hmm. to do my best to save people time and energy to pull together key pieces mm-hmm. from different bodies of work that will help to make coherent enough the practices, principles, etc., from multiple directions to give them the context where they could follow an independent path of initiation right. and make informed choices about what practices and directions they want to go once they start to remember who am I, why am I here, that are going to help them to actualize their potential and fulfill that path. It's not a matter of developing the way that I developed. It's not a matter of going to my particular trajectory. It's a matter of getting the pieces that you need that's going to get you to your place. I I thought it would end up being like, here's the level one, here's the level two. These are the courses. But there's so much more um, fundamental integrity to the reason for the practice. It's a way of being. It's rooted in so much integrity as to why you would go down this path. And, and, and it's... Uh, and it's a unique experience for each person to some degree. So there's not, it's not so obvious to just lay it out. But if you could sort of bring this together to why would someone, why would someone practice this? Why would someone go into the Rosicrucian teachings and try and learn about it? Like what is the goal, the fundamental reason for someone to listen to this and go, ah, that makes sense. Because until we remember who we are, why we're here, what we chose to do in this lifetime, we are amnesiacs who are wandering lost in the world, not knowing who we are, why we're here, and not using the precious moments that are ticking away in this lifetime for the essential work that we must do to develop spiritually along this path. And we will get caught in the path of unskillful action and unnecessary suffering until we take the path of skillful action and begin to work with this consciously and begin to remember who we are and take in our own hands the reins of our spiritual development. So it really is a choice between suffering or spiritual development. You can develop through the path of the school of hard knocks much longer, much harder, if that's your choice to not wake up and continue to be an amnesiac. Or you can take the path of skillful action and not only help yourself through that, but it will, for the first time, bring on your full capacity to help other people around you, Mm. which is really that whole moral core of Mm. spiritual development, particularly in the Christian and Buddhist traditions. Mm -hmm. The more that we develop ourselves, the more we can relieve the suffering of others as well as our own suffering. Mm-hmm. And then what kind of world do we live in? Do we live? Is it that our own world changes? Is that we internally have a different world? So the way we perceive everything around us changes. So essentially the world does change. 
or is it because the world itself actually does change as a result of all of us participating in the base frequency and, and, and awareness that we all have as human beings to something more? You stated it wonderfully. And as, as is so often the case with these deep, profound questions, it's usually not an either or, it's a both and. And so it'll totally transform our own lives and our own experience of our lives to something much more pleasurable, much more exciting, mm-hmm. much more rich by mm-hmm. following this type of path of development. But also when it can reach a critical mass, yeah. it does transform the world. We need to take very seriously today that the way that people lived before the founding of the American experiment and the writing of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution was very much subject to the whims of rulers and like grotesque systems of governance around the world forever. Now, this went horribly perverted in, in modern times. There's no doubt for that. But we have to see that what people pulled off in the 1700s in creating a self-governing constitutional system, as imperfect as it was, has created possibilities for us in our current lifetime that are incredible. So we've done it before. We've changed the world system before. And we can and will do it again. And seen from a metaphysical perspective, this has been foreseen for a tremendous period of time. And it's what's always been referred to as creating the new golden age. Mm -hmm. So to go back to biogeometry, in biogeometry, when we find what is a vibrational signal that actually indicates the connection to the divine plane, Mm -hmm. and not as a metaphor, but as something very real, that then creates a vibrational emanation as an energy field on the physical plane that's connected to that universal harmonizing force that we tap into in the biogeometry work, that one of the signals or markers of that energy is literally what we call the higher harmonic of gold. When we connect to the divine, when we connect to this universal harmonizing energy as something very real, not metaphoric, we create this gold radiance. The gold radiance you see around the heads and the bodies of the saints and the so this is where people talk about the alchemy and like turning things to gold. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash credit card, earn unlimited 2% cash back on purchases you want, ow. like dance lessons, ow, 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 and on what you need, like memory foam inserts. Ah, that's real life ready. Visit wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Terms apply. And what we're doing with this work is transforming our own energy field into gold and then together reaching a critical mass to transform the world we live in into the new golden age. It's actually quite a literal description of what we have as our task in front of us. If we can pull it off, then we've passed through this alchemical stage and we've graduated to the next level. If we fail, which is a very real possibility, then we're going to have to go through quite a lot of unnecessary suffering. We have to go backwards to go forwards again then? Or does it just take longer? Yeah, it will take longer. But we will go backwards because what happens when civilizations fail is that they collapse and people start living like cavemen rather than in a modern technological culture. So there's a certain movement backwards that is not inevitable, doesn't have to happen. But again, whether we reach a new golden age or we we descend into a new dark age is all dependent upon how many people wake up and transform our own lives. And then we can join together with this work. And there's a lot of good signs, and there's a lot of terrible signs today, too, but there's a lot of good signs today 
with what's happening with people waking up, moving forward, and wanting to improve the conditions that we're in. If we can keep things like social media and free exchange of ideas, opinions, etc., free and not curtailed by governments Mm -hmm. the way that they always choose Mm -hmm. to do, we have a very good chance. Mm -hmm. The hallmark of the fact that we're going down the wrong path is when governments are, are going to really crack down on the free exchange of ideas and communication. Good to know. I was going to ask you if there's any, I, 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 I was imagining that I would have, there would, you'd be able to be able to change the weather and manipulate objects and energy and whatever else. But I don't know if that, that really matters to even ask. That seemed like part of the. I think that's a very, I think it's a very mature response to that because uh, all that is possible. I have seen people very advanced who can change the weather and did change the weather in front of me. It's very mm-hmm. possible. Mm-hmm. But if they have any sense, they never do it publicly and they never talk about it publicly. Mm-hmm. It'll lead to the worst type of attention and the worst type of people trying to tap into that power mm-hmm. for the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. So all this happens naturally as a development of cities, of powers, mm-hmm. as a person develops along the path. But mm-hmm. it's not the goal. Right. It's not what happens as a natural consequence of the expansion of consciousness and energy. Okay. Thank you for getting my ego in check today. <laughs> well, really, we, we don't have to do that all the time. Yeah. I really appreciate it. I um, Thank you. I feel like we could do like Danica and Robert, the 20-part series. Yay! For now, we'll just do interviews whenever you say yes. That sounds um, great. I'd love to. But I yeah. loved that very, very deep and wide explanation from like the real roots of Rosicrucian and um, also what we talked about, about biogeometry and stem cells and all the fun stuff. And yes. um, there's just so much in this for us to chew on and get us ready for the golden age. Absolutely. I so appreciate you having me on the program. I always love talking with you because you have the power of active listening mm-hmm. and that's that's absolutely vital to be able to pull out the, the deeper information. I very much appreciate you. Oh, gosh. Well, thank you so much, Robert. You're just a wealth of knowledge, and I'm grateful for your time. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the Pretty Intense podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard today and you want to hear more, please click on the subscribe button. Okay. All right. We're going to just keep on going here. I can feel the change of the new year and I'm so I'm so grateful for the contributions that caught up for us uh uh with BBS radio. So much gratitude. Everyone. Now we can step into the new year. It was a bit of a head start here. Okay, so this is going to be Called This is called Human Design, a Framework for Alignment. Can working within personality types of human design create profound self-acceptance? Profound self-acceptance and harmonious tolerance for others. Emma... Dunwoody, a behavioral coach and expert in human design, joins Regina Meredith 
to explore a functional framework for living in alignment with our true blueprint for individual purpose. Dunwoody believes that as we, quote, make the unconscious conscious, unquote, resistance falls away and we find transformative flow. She outlines how a channel guide known as the Black Book provides specifics to honor our unique template. Dunwoody invites us to live in the experiment of our design type as a manifester, generator, projector, manifesting uh, so we can let go of society's rules, break habits, and expand into sovereignty. Okay, this is 43 minutes, and we shall begin now. the systems I find really useful is human design when it comes to understanding how we function in particular. My friends and I refer to it regularly when trying to understand ourselves and understand each other. And today, Emma Dunwoody is with us and she's going to share how the system works and why it makes for higher tolerances, not just of ourselves, but for others as well. And welcome. It's the first time I've met you. Yeah, thank you. Thank from you down me. under. Exactly. All the way from Australia. <laughs> I love it. So let's just get right into it, Emma. How did you first discover human design and how did that come into your life? Because mm. I think it's a really profound, direct system. Yeah, well, the the big thing for me was that I had spent, I'd been diagnosed very young, like at 28 with depression and panic disorder, which was this catalyst for me really starting to understand the brain, behavior, um, even quantum physics, um, psychology, all of these things. And that took me on this journey of healing my mental health and completely changing my life. And then I would say about six years ago, I had this moment where, wow, I've changed my entire life. Shouldn't I feel better on the inside? And at this moment in time, I'm like, oh my God, what am I going to do about it? Like I'm meant to feel better. And I just put this thing out into the universe. I was like, universe, please, you need to show me what's missing. And, well, human design came to me over and over and over again. So I committed to doing the experiment, which is what we talk about in human design. And, well, I went from, you know, feeling like there was something missing in here to living my dream life, to, you know, doing my purpose, to being fulfilled. And human design brought it in a way where it was my unique playbook. And I'd been trying to put myself into the playbook of life that we're all given at birth by our families and society. Mm. And all of a sudden I could live my way and it just completely transformed everything. I find it truly transformative. So you said you had to leave behind your dream life. Mm. Okay. So tell us what your dream life was. And you were already aware of human design. You've been using human design for quite a long time. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the big thing is that I was, I had created a life that I thought was going to make me happy. And I started in advertising and I had, you know, lived in the city and had the house and had the husband and, and all of those things. But I just was so unhappy. 
So I did all the things and I like love people like Tony Robbins and I followed a lot of those performance-based people and I had so much change. But it was this heart space, you know, human design was that, that heart space. And I'd realized that I'd been trying to create this, this life and fit between these lines. So we actually very early on in my human design, um, experiment, we bought a caravan and a car and we traveled around Australia. I ran my entire business from there. We took the kids and it was this moment that I was like, wow, when I follow my design, I really can live any sort of life instead of constantly being on my own case that I have to do it this way. I have to do it that way. And just diminishing my own self-worth and of course, not having the impact that my heart is hanging to have. And so you're following societal structures, the things that are passed down to us, like you say, the, the list, the dream. So let me just ask you quickly. So when you decided with your human design that you were going to actually start living your type, which really makes life nothing but a wonderful experiment mm. um, with sovereignty. Mm. How did that work with your husband? Yeah, this is such a great question. And I feel like so it's a many, big deal for everybody. It's a big deal. It's a really big deal because and, and often in our spiritual journey, one of us is on the journey and the other one isn't. And that was very similar for us, you know. But the big thing that changed for me was I was here saying, come on, you can do more, you can do better, trying to champion him. And, you know, I was juggling two kids and I was juggling studying and almost like just waiting for my turn. And then when I understood human design and this, of course, serendipitous thing happened where he was given an opportunity to take what we call a retrenchment package. So he can take a, a, a big payout and leave his job. And for some reason, something in me said, oh, I'll do it. I'll replace your income. And he was on a big wage at the time. I have no idea why I did it. But me being a manifesting generator, I was like, wow, and I'm away. And then all of a sudden, I could see him for who he is because he's a projector. Ah. So I could start to understand, like, right. So the way I live is so different. I'm passionate. Yes. I'm excited. I love to do these work, this work, and, and I can keep going. And, and, and you have the energy. 100%. Um, and he doesn't have that energy and he doesn't have that consistent, like enthusiasm driving him. And what was beautiful was just to see how we could just flip everything. You know, he's not amazing. He was living a type that wasn't his. You were living a type that wasn't you. Yeah. And then all of a sudden the resistance, like the resistance that we were experiencing, whether it was in our individual lives or relationship started to fall away and the flow just moved in. You know, he's, he's created a whole business almost by accident, just being in alignment with being a projector. I love it. And we're going to get into this in just a sec. So first of all, human design, we can't go there without talking about raw and how mm-hmm. this whole thing happened. Mm-hmm. So go ahead and, and explain what happened to this man. Yeah. So this was a man who was very disillusioned with life. He'd worked in advertising. You know, he'd had, I think by that stage, a number of, of marriages and he was looking for something more. And he was spending a lot of time in, in Ibiza, and he one day started channeling all of this information and he had this huge resistance to it. But of course, he did it anyway. And over this period of time of like eight days, I believe, he took all the information, he wrote it all down and then he, he brought it to the world. Now, what has been very beautiful about that is that we are at this time where it doesn't have the, the, the lineage, let's say, of let's say astrology but we have this beautiful ability to bring all this wisdom that he channeled in from this guide and he called it the black book. And we are now in this big experiment because ultimately that's what human design is. It's an experiment. It gives us this framework. Um, and something like the gene keys puts all the beauty around that framework. 
And so Ra basically brought it to the world. He created this model. He started to teach it and took it out into the world. And then I just feel like recently, probably the last two years, it's like all of a sudden where everyone wants to. Exactly. I've had friends in it 22 or three years Mm. and people who knew Ra, actually. And Richard was one of the people who was one of the top students of Ra. And then Richard had his own illuminating days where it was then the layers were started coming in the kind of a refinement almost like the spiritual textures of human design which became the gene keys Mm. and so it's really quite beautiful and works well together yeah one of the things about the original human design i think that so many people enjoy is it's so clear it's about how you function like you were saying this Mm. is all an experiment well it's easy to have an experiment if you have a home base to go to untethered experimenting with your life is a little more difficult, right? A hundred percent. And I think one of the biggest things, my background, I'm a behavioral coach. So I'm always thinking about, you know, how the brain works or behavioral patterns. And one of the things I'm always doing is helping people make the unconscious conscious because, of course, most of our behavior comes from the unconscious mind. And one of the things that the reason I've created transformational human design is because we so often, there's so many people out there looking for the answer. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to fit ourselves into everybody else's model. When we overlay human design, we can look at the specificity. Yes. We can really look at our specific shadows and say, where is that turning up in my life? And, you know, then we can add things like the gene keys to really see the potential that lies within us. Mm-hmm. And that for me, like I went from having a, a business that was successful in corporate coaching, C-level executives and teams, and they were already getting great results. But the moment I integrated human design into it, it just expanded because, of, of course, they, they let go of all the rules. They let go of the way they had to, they were supposed to lead or they let go of the way of the, the way they were supposed to interact with their team members or even understanding like when you understand that, let's say you have a manifesto in your team, these people are going to be initiating and so you want to give them freedom. If you have a pro- projector in your team, then you're going to ask, like if they are going to be giving you guidance, you're going to listen. And it, it really made such an instant different because of the specificity. Absolutely. So the whole thing is once you can sort of see this template and about yourself is to now start experimenting with honoring it, which might mean breaking lifelong habits and, and having to show up in the world in a new way to others as well. So let's, we're going to take a look at the chart here and you can just explain to us, starting with the very top center mm-hmm. And going down what these centers are, because it yeah. looks a lot like the tree of life in certain ways. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is. I mean, it's, it's connected to, um, you know, these ancient wisdoms. So we start at the head um, with the head center. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is all about it's what we call a pressure center. And there's all this information coming in from source. So it's about questioning, questions, questions, questions. And then we move down to thinking and it's processing, which is the next downward facing mm-hmm. triangle, which is the Ajna. Mm-hmm. And again, if these two areas have a colored in, then we call it defined. If it's undefined, we, they're white. And that's going to change how that energy flows. Then we move down to the throat center. So in a human design chart, all the energy in your chart, is it, its purpose is to get to the throat for manifestation. Now, not all of us have a colored in or defined throat. So what happens is that when we're in flow and we follow our strategy and authority, which are the two most important things in our chart. Yeah, we'll get into all of those details. Yeah then what's going to happen is the universe is almost going to move us like a puzzle piece to the right people, to the right places, so that it helps our energy throw, flow to the throat. 
Then we move down to the G center, which is a diamond shape. And if it's colored in, it's yellow. And this is the higher self. This is like unconditional love, higher consciousness. And it's all about our internal direction. Then all of a sudden, they kind of split out a little bit. Directly down, we have the sacral. Now, the sacral is a big player in human design because 70% of the global population will have that colored in. And this is all about life force, the work that we want to do, expanding energy. Yeah, exactly. Power. Then when we move off to the little triangle up and to the right, that's what we call the will center. It's also called the ego center and the heart center. It's got a few names. I'm not sure why, but it does. Mm -hmm. And this is all about, yes, will center, will energy, this willpower, determination. It's very connected to the three-dimensional world. So these people, if if it's colored in for you, you probably want to create, you're very conscious of your 3D reality, like the car you drive maybe, or the life that you're building, you're very focused on on that being a nice thing. Now we move down to the the big triangle on the right-hand side. That is your emotional solar plexus. This is a big player, and there's a big shift that's going on with this particular centre. Now, half the global population have that coloured in, and half don't. And I've often heard it explained as it's like, two completely different races of human mm-hmm. because some of us are emotional and some of us aren't. And, and I'm an emotional being and I ride this emotional wave all the time. And one of the one of the things that human design really helped me understand was as a behavioral coach and learning NLP and mindset work, I would do all the work, but I wouldn't necessarily have the change as fast as I would see other people have it. Right. And I would think like, well, it's what I'm thinking that's creating this emotion. Now, if you're defined, if that's colored in in your chart, then that's not entirely true because you have this mechanical wave that's always going on inside of you. So when you understand that and you let it be there, then all of a sudden those unresourceful stories that you tell yourself in your head. So you just don't put stories to the emotions and understand they're just going to keep waving through you. Yeah. Okay, because the stories are what take us down and waste our energy and time. That's exactly right. And the meanings we give it. You know, like if we give our emotions, so now I've given my emotional low the meaning that it's super important to actually make it really positive. Okay, I'm in my emotional low, therefore I need to nurture myself as opposed to, oh my goodness, I need to work harder, I need to do more, I need to push harder. I need to figure out what this is, you know, where's it coming from? Exactly. So you stop that. Yep. Because that can become a really neurotic game. Yeah, yeah. Especially if you've got definition and it never goes away. What about people, the other half of the population where it's not defined? Yeah, now this this is where it can be, it's a gift and a challenge because when it's not defined, anywhere that we have a white center, it's amplifying any energy that someone else has. So I have a defined solar plexus, so someone who doesn't, they're going to amplify and reflect back my emotional energy. So imagine children with an emotional defined mother Mm -hmm. or brother or sister or father, and they're not emotional, but they're feeling these really big emotions that are bigger than their own. And of course, if we think about the behavioral or the, the mindset implications of that, then they create this identity that they're emotional and they try and fix it in their adult life. And of course, they can't because it's it wasn't theirs to begin with. Exactly. So the solar plexus is a really big player and it's a really, when you understand your definition there, it can really help in your healing journey. Okay. And what about off to the left there? So off to the left, we have the spleen Mm -hmm. and that is the intuition. It's kind of like the ancient part of the chart. It's about health, well-being, intuition. If it's colored in, you're probably a person that you have a lot more Easy well-being, if you like. Gen- general stamina. Exactly. stamina. Yes. And you'll have a really consistent way of your intuition showing up. 
Whereas when you're undefined, it's going to depend on who you're around. So I'm undefined and I've got a lot of intuitive friends. So I'm, when I'm with the ones that are, let's say, clairvoyant, then all of a sudden I see a lot more images. But when I'm with friends that, let's say, are clairsentient, then I feel a lot more of their clairsentience because I'm amplifying and reflecting back that energy. And then down the bottom, we have the root center. And the root center is another pressure center. It's the energy coming up from Gaia, pushing the energy around the chart. And this is all about movement, progress, and the fuel that drives either emotional energy, well-being, or that life force energy. Mm -hmm. And then people can see also there are these lines, some red, some black, coming out. And and this is where later on you also start looking at how your chart overlays with another person's chart, where these lines link up and where they're not coming out at all. And I guess it shows you the things you have to work on that are open that you both have to work on but also areas where you can really help and and kind of finish an energy with another person exactly i was just saying to someone recently who was what we call a split definition which means they've got these areas of definition where two centers maybe are connected but they're not all connected together and if we we feel stuck in our energy and we have a split definition if we just go to the cafe or go and lie on the beach or something where there's people around us, then that's going to, in most cases, help our energy flow because that's exactly how our designs plug into each other. Exactly, and this is a collective. Exactly. And so one thing a friend of mine who's deeply into human design explained is that, going back to the emotions, because, again, it's 50-50 on the planet, let's go over to the other one, to the spleen, the Mm -hmm. center of well-being, Mm -hmm. that when you have a person that is undefined in that area, spending time with someone who's defined that the person who's undefined often will kind of relax and they also gain more of a feeling of well-being mm. or safety around that person. Why would that be? Well, I love this question because um, this is the, in many, many worlds in or groups in human design, people would have asked the opposite question. Why, when I hang out with people with a defined spleen, am I unwell and fearful? Because fear (laughs) is in the spleen. But you're absolutely right. When the person with the definition, especially in the spleen, because it's the house of fear, um, when they're aligned and they're well, they're actually amplifying the well-being of the people that they're with. Yeah, Mm. that's been my experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, Interesting. Okay, so now we're going to talk about the four types, the main types, and how they function, Mm -hmm. and what happens when we don't understand this about each other because this this leads to so much turmoil and misunderstanding between us. I mean, in my opinion, in every corporate situation, even in the schoolroom, we should have an idea of the basic nature of the functioning of each other. I couldn't agree more. So, okay, so let's start, we start out with generators. Yeah, let's do it. So, okay. generators, um, there's there's two types, if you like. Because generators make up 70% of the global population, but we have this hybrid, which is called a manifesting generator, which is part generator, part manifester. That's you. That's me. Yeah. Um, the energizer bunny, which we're often referred to. Now, generators, we're here to be lit up and excited, like inspired into action by our manifester friends in many cases. But ultimately, our sacral is saying, I've got energy for this. I've got enthusiasm for this. Let's build it. Let's grow it. Let's follow it. So they're very much here to build something they're very enthusiastic about and they're passionate about. They're also the people that are here to respond to life. Now, we're so taught to go out and take massive action, but generators are not designed that way. They're actually designed to follow what they enjoy, what they're excited, what they're lit up about. And then it's 
it's like the universe brings them opportunity after opportunity. And it doesn't have to be like the dream job. Like that's one way people can respond. But they, they're responding when they, let's say they open the refrigerator and they're like, wow, I really want to eat that chocolate mousse. You know, like that's a, that's a generator. So to be enthused is really the fuel that keeps generators moving forward on track and healthy. Exactly. And the biggest challenge is because they have this energy and this ability is in many cases, they, they don't have boundaries. They think, well, I have the energy or I can do it. I'll just put it on me. I'll take I'll it. I'll volunteer, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's probably the biggest challenge. And because they're very magnetic, a generator type is a very magnetic type. People are very drawn to them. And because of the, the other details of their chart, they often find they're very obligated to help. So it's very important that they follow that enthusiasm because their cycle is always telling them, uh-huh, yep you have energy for this or uh-uh, nope, you don't have energy for this. So if they can just trust that simple yes, no, it, it's a it's a life changer for them. But of course, the big problem is society has been programmed. <laughs> so the simple, the simplicity of saying, oh, God, that sounds wonderful. Yeah, I'd love to do it. Oh, no, I can't. I've got to get to work. I've got to do this. Yeah. I've got to do that. So how does a how does a generator or manifesting generator begin the process of breaking free of the imposed societal norms and demands so that they can literally hear that voice of, oh, yes. Yeah, I love that. So the first thing is always play. We want to connect to our sacral. And I'm always saying we need to play. I mean, all types need to play. But ultimately, we have to find that enthusiasm. We also need to reteach people how to treat us because at the end of the day, when we take full responsibility, we say, okay, wow, I've actually taught you to treat me this way. I've taught you that you can put everything on me. So it is an uncomfortable journey, but it is an important one of putting boundaries in place and saying, no, you know, my sacral, and you don't have to say to people, no, my sacral says no, but it's just like, no, um, I can't take that on and really starting to put boundaries in place. The challenge also just to be aware of is, of course, the cycle is simple and easy. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh, but the mind isn't. Then the mind jumps in and has all of these stories. So it's just about practicing because the more you act from the cycle, the more the louder the cycle is going to get and the quieter the mind is going to get because all the brain is really looking for is evidence. It just wants the evidence that it can trust it. And if you keep showing it that, yes, you can trust the gut, then the mind will get more quiet and the gut will get louder. Okay, so that's generators, and we folded in their manifesting generators. Mm. We'll get to pure manifestors in a second. Yeah. But between those two, the next is the class that's called projectors. Mm-hmm. Now, our projectors are our guides. These are the people I always love the, in my head, the projectors are the girl in the classroom who always has the answers. And you know that the teacher says, no, no, Sally, give someone else a go. And actually, no, Sally's here to answer the questions. So let her answer the questions, you know, like that's what she's here to do. Projectors are our guides. They see into people in a way that the other types don't see. They can see the way we're using our energy. Is it being used resourcefully or unresourcefully? And projectors have their specific people. So for me, for example, I have certain projectors in my life and and I'm very much one of their MGs, as we call us, manifesting generators. So they are there to guide us. Now, they could be guiding us in business. They could be guiding us in relationships, in friendships, anything. But it's really about being able to see these people because the biggest challenge for the projector is that they see all these things. They're actually on the planet to be seen and recognized. However, they've never been allowed to be seen and recognized because it's almost like it's conditioned out of them at a young age. Don't be bossy. Don't be a show-off. Don't be this. Don't be that. So 
then they get to this place where like I've got all this wisdom inside of me and they want to force it on everyone like see me see me but that it's, it's like that completely deflates their wisdom no one wants to see them no one wants to receive it and it's this this art form almost of then allowing people to come back to you and once you get into that place where you're like you see your worth and your value and your wisdom then the the people that you're here to guide like I, I will sit around my projectors for hours and listen to what they have to say now I if I may speak on a personal note I'm Please. a projector right and I remember when I was younger and gathering a lot of knowledge and my intuition was kicking in and I was so excited to share everything with everyone. I can say there was nary a person even remotely interested in what I had to say. And so, and it was frustrating. I thought, no, but this is so valuable. But the point is with projectors, there's almost, you have to be in a position to wait to be invited Mm -hmm. to speak. So what happened is the years went on. Ultimately, I started doing what I'm doing for a living. So I offer information for a living. Yeah. Um, I offer my insights for a living. And then I didn't have to try to speak to people privately anymore. It was like, no, I settled in. This is who I am. This is my job. And it's all kind of built in, you know, yeah. baked into the cake. But it was very frustrating in those decades where no one cared if yeah. I had something to say. I was just the weird person in yeah. the room. And that's, that is honestly, that's how so many projectors feel. They feel so unseen and unheard. And what is beautiful about your story is that it's important for projectors to focus on what, because they all want to obsess about something. Mm -hmm. They're all like, what is this thing and how can I make it better? Right. And when they focus on that and they just share, you know, like as they get those, as you say, it's their strategy, their, their invitation as they get small invitations to share or they're just sharing their passion. You know, I always say like, share it freely, you know, don't, don't worry about what people do with it. Or even if they pick it up, don't worry about it. Just share whatever you're obsessing about. And over time, what happens is that you will flow into that alignment. And that's your example is perfect because you get to do your work and ask the questions and share all of this information, but you don't have to ask anyone to come to you. You don't have to push it on right. anyone else. Right. Those days are over. Yeah. But the other part of the the projector is they don't have that innate energy that a manifester, mm. manifesting generator or generator has. Mm. So, and yet you try to keep up, keep mm. up with the Joneses, i.e. keep up with the generators. Yeah. It's very exhausting. Yeah. It can be a real challenge. You know, like I think my mother was a project projector and um, she, everyone used to laugh at her because she worked in the media of all things and she would often sleep under a desk at lunchtime. Yeah. And everyone would think she's hilarious. But in hindsight, I'm like, wow, well, she was just, an in alignment projector. She needed the rest. She couldn't operate that way. So the other thing that is really important for projectors and all of our non-sacral um, types, which is the manifester, the reflector, and the projector, is you have to become really aware of your energy and how much you have when you're in your own aura. Because when you're in the aura of a generator, and remember, 70% of the global population, right. You think you have all this energy and then you're not in that aura and it goes away. Mm-hmm. And not only that is maybe you leave the office with all your generator friends and you go home and you're like, wow, I feel like I've been hit like a bus. Yeah, exactly. And that's because you've been processing everybody else's energy. So you have to also have a some sort of ritual or way that you can cleanse your energy. And it could be simple, as simple as showering as soon as you get home or going for a swim or a walk in nature. But it's really important for you to be get your own that. space so that your own thoughts so you have time to really think. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Now we go to manifestors, and they're a fun lot. I didn't understand my manifestor friends till I found out they were manifestors. I thought, 
my God, she doesn't listen to anyone. She just goes off and does what she does. She's just taking control of everything, yeah. <laughs> trying to figure it out. Yeah. So that's what they're, that's and what they're supposed exactly. to do. Exactly. You know, what they're here to do is to uh, initiate inspire and inspire people into action. Yeah. But they are the child. You know, Ra said, just give a manifested child a mobile phone. And they'll be fine. You know, like very raw comment, right? Like, I do not advocate that. It was Just very irreverent. Yeah. But they are so independent. And, and from mm-hmm. a chart point of view, they're energetically independent, meaning that they don't need someone else's energy to get their energy to that manifestation place. So as children, they can tend to be harder to, um, you know, wrangle. You know, they're going to do what they want to do. Uh, and that really actually needs to be supported in the kids. And when you have a manifesting generator, I have two MG children, two boys, it's a, it's also a fine balance. You have to be very careful that you don't squash that I have to be allowed to go out and um, into the world and have that freedom because freedom and peace are a really important part of being a manifester. And a lot of manifestors, what will happen is that because they have this big, really big aura, and again, this happens for manifesting generators as well, is that often they become very aware, very young, that they have this big impactful aura and that it upsets people in whatever way that might be. So they shut themselves down, they shut down their power, and they become people pleasers. And basically they just start to die a little bit inside because they're meant to be very free. They're meant to be out in the world to be lighting the fires, starting the process, um, being the head of movement, whatever it might be. So it's a journey for them to really learn to that free, that have that freedom again. But the key to being a manifester is part of their strategies. They must inform and manifest. Explain that. Mm. Manifestors and MGs. The big thing is that a manifester isn't, it's not about asking for permission. And many manifestors will come to it and go, well, I'm not asking for permission or they ask for permission when they, they shouldn't be asking for permission. It's really, I like to say that it's, it's declaring the direction of your energy. So it's, it could be simple as I'm going down the street to pick up a bag of chips or I'm going down the street to get a green smoothie. Um, or it could be, I've had this idea. I'm thinking of building this business. I'm heading in this direction. Now, most, most manifestors and MGs, especially as they come to human design, they'll be like, I actually go out of my way not to inform people because I'm afraid they're going to get in my way. And that's all to do with their energy. They actually have this fear within them that if they tell people, people are going to stop them. Right. And they're going forward. Mm, Exactly. And the important thing to understand, especially with manifestors, is that you're going to have your people. You know, we talk in the knowledge talks about them being you know, very polarizing energy. In my experience, when the higher their consciousness goes, the less polarizing they are, but they're here for very specific people, whether it's a large group or a few people. So it's only important that those specific people follow them because they're the ones they're here to inspire. And it's important that the others don't because they can't be wasting their energy. They don't have a defined sacral to be wasting all this energy on with people that they're not actually here to mm-hmm. inspire into action. Yeah, I found that I've really grown to just deeply respect my manifester friends. Mm. I mean, they're a force. Yes. And, and, and the whole notion of just informing. Otherwise, they just kind of disappear. You don't know what happened. They don't explain anything to anyone, mm. which they do. And I, so now we've begun learning together. Just let me know what yeah. is going to happen next. Yeah. And I find that there's just so much creativity and energy 
that pours out of it. So much research. I'll say one thing and they're already on looking it up and like, okay, we can do this, 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 and this. It's like, thank you. That's yeah. great. You saved me the energy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they're, they're very powerful, very mm. powerful creators, manifestors. Mm. So now let's go to the one that's what, 1% of society? Yeah, reflectors. Reflectors, which is when you look at a chart, here's the, here's the chart we're going to look at of a reflector. Oops. Nothing is filled in. Mm. What the heck? Yeah, well, they, they are, as I said, like 1%. They're just this very small group. However, they have a very important role to play. Ultimately, their role to play, if manifestors are inspiring us into action and generators are manifesting, generators are building, and the projectors are improving on everything so far, the reflectors are reflecting back where we're at, where we're actually at. What is the truth of the matter? It's, it's like once we reflect back and we see the truth of where we're at, it's like rinse and repeat. Let's go around the cycle again. So they're very, very important. If you have a happy, healthy, um, well-connected reflector in your uh, friendship group or business, then you know you're on track. You know, it's, it's, it's a really good sign. Um, however, if you have a reflector that you feel like is lost and flip-flops a lot and doesn't know who they are or feels like they have to prove themselves then all of a sudden, like, okay, wow, they're probably reflecting back what's going going on in here. There's work to be done. The other thing about the reflector is they are incredible at seeing energy. So they can see this nuance of energy, like, um, very different to the projector. The projector, it's almost like this very, um, I often say like Yoda, you know, it's like Yoda, just like, just no, you know, you're not quite with the force yet. Whereas the reflector is almost like they can see the cycles coming mm-hmm. or they can see a d- very deep shadow in someone. Um, so they're very, very, very connected to subtle energy. Oh, the only reflector I've known well was a genius of a healer. Mm. Theoretically, they were a physical therapist, but they understood energy and how to heal in the most creative ways I've seen. Mm. So that would probably be. An and that's area. it, spot yeah. on. Yeah. And I think one of the challenges with like with a reflector is obviously that person's like they found their alignment within their work. However, let's say their relationship, it isn't, it isn't a high quality relationship. Then that reflector is going to live a very different life Mm -hmm. in other areas of their life. So we have these charts and we've seen some here where you've got uh, some filled in, some not filled in. Uh, What happens when someone has everything filled in? Does that happen very often? Um, It's it's very rare. I think it's also like 1% or 2% of the population. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually, my the first ever mastermind I ever ran was a fully defined person. I was like, wow, this is epic. I'm so grateful to have you here. Um, And that what that means is they just have a very, they're probably going to be a person that feels very certain to be around. It's a very consistent, they probably, people trust them because trust comes from consistency. So they just have a very consistent way of being because where we're colored in, it's it's who we feel we are and it's how other people see us. Where we have those white centers, this is where we're taking in and amplifying other people's energy. So this is where maybe we're empath- empathic or we're intuitive or we just um, experience our en- energetic gifts or whatever that might be. So it's a lot more fluid. We're influenced by others in those undefined centers. And then when you get together with other people, and you put your charts together, mm. you might have, say, all of them defined, mm. where each of you have half of them. Now you have them all defined. What would that bode for a relationship? Mm. Well, they actually have, if you put, let's say you put your two charts together, what you're really looking for is what isn't defined. So you might have no centers defined 
And that really means that it's going to be one of these relationships that does feel very like I have a relationship like that with my eldest son. Mm-hmm. And it just feels very easy. It feels very easy because we everything just kind of plugs in. Um, we're very consistent. Where you're saying it's all filled in between all our centers are all filled all the, in. Yeah, all yeah. the centers are filled yeah. in. Yeah. So it's almost a very it's a very consistent relationship. Now that's not actually very common. Um, most people are going to have at least one, maybe two, maybe three, maybe four centers undefined when you put the two together. When you have that undefined center or the white center. That's your area of growth. So what does that mean? That means that let's say you have a relationship that has um, still has the G center, which is the diamond in the middle. It means that that relationship is going to be um, where the inconsistency, where the growth is going to come, is going to be all about lovability because the G center is all about lovability. So maybe you come together and it feels great, and then you're probably going to have to work on lovability in that relationship. It's going to be a significant journey for you. What about, say, where if your emotions are both undefined? Mm, so you're going to have to, because if you two come together and you've got an undefined solar plexus, what's going to happen is that you're going to have to work on emotions. You're going to have to work on maybe clearing out others or the patterns that you've learned, um, maybe bringing home other people's emotions. But it could be the other side. Like maybe you grew up in a family that was very balanced emotionally and you're in a relationship and you're like, wow, I, sh- I should feel different to this. Yeah. But you're two unemotional people. So you actually get to, okay, well, maybe we we don't have those big emotions when we're together. Thank you for that. Now, someone like yourself that is very familiar and can really dive deep into it, there are layers. Now, what we've been talking about is right there for anybody to see when they pull their own chart up. Mm-hmm. Where can they go to get charts? I know, I mean, I know a couple places. Yeah, well, they can go to my website and get a free chart okay. and easy as that. Okay. So anybody can go on and get a free chart and start looking at yourselves and seeing what's filled out. And But it's a it takes some study and you need a little guidance, right? Yeah. So... Let's go into some other layers that I found fascinating, which is we also are defined in how our minds work, whether we're a very fast processor of information, I think you say processor, or whether we're a slow processor. Mm. And this has nothing to do with IQ or intelligence. It's the the speed at which the brain is taking in something. Talk about this because mm. sometimes we think, God, why are they so slow, right? Mm. Mm. And I love that you said this because there's so many layers to this as well. Yes. You know, um, what you're referring to, we find in our arrows when we look at our chart, there's four arrows when you get some, some charts have them, some don't. Um, and if we have a chart, if we have an arrow to the left, that's going to tell us that we have this focused strategic mind. You know, it's going to process information. It likes to lock on to things. There actually tend to be people that, and I actually have this arrow, that you almost forget to get up and eat or, or go to the bathroom or because once you're in there and you're processing, you don't even think, it's almost like you miss the body cues. Now, if on top of that, you have definition in the head and the, the ajna, then then you're already three steps ahead of the other people in the room if it, with undefined heads and ajnas. So so you're actually in this situation where you're influencing the thinking of the room, you're three steps ahead, you're processing as much faster than anyone else's, and it's kind of like, wow, what's going on in here? Whereas the when you're a slower processor, it's all about receptivity. It's about as the information comes in. And these people just have to be really focused, have to be in the moment. They have to be receiving the information. And it can actually be hard for them to access that information sometimes. For example, my eldest son is what we call a quad right. So all of his arrows go to the right. And when, you know, getting at school, I was like, he's not designed for for the normal school, if you like. 
So I always said to him, all you need to do is just be really, really present. If you're really present, you'll take in everything you need. It was a game changer for him because he would be putting all this pressure on himself to try and work it out. Whereas if he could just stay there and be present with the teacher or whatever his study partner was saying, all of a sudden he was retaining all of this information differently. The other thing that's important to understand is like these people who have definition, um, so colored in in the head and the ashen, they're influencing the thinking of a room. So wherever we have definition, we want to be responsible for that because we're going to influence those people. It's the same with emotions, like take responsibility for the emotions we're bringing into, into the room. Because you're going to have an inordinate impact on everyone around you, especially those who are undefined in those areas. Exactly. Okay, another one that I found interesting was the notion of whether you're an active or passive person. And that's kind of interesting, those definitions in themselves. Mm. And it came about because um, my friend was reading for a group of three of us, and one of them just has to go, go, go. Everything has to be structured and go. It's like, can't we just chill and have a cup of tea? And the answer is, no, not really. And he was explaining why. So let's talk about active versus passive. Yeah, this this, again, this is in our arrows. And what it tells us is that we have an active or a passive body. And it's what's really helpful about this is because it does go down into the details, it really helps someone like me, for example. I'm a manifesting generator, and I'm told that I am this energizer bunny. I have all the energy in the world. I can do all the things. But when I first came to human design, I was like, well, that's true sometimes. Um, and then when I started to understand this, I have a passive body. So I have this real polarity in, in so many areas of my chart where with my passive body, for example, that I am someone who... I get up very early, I do a lot of exercise, I go to the gym, I, I, I have a horse, I ride my horse. But then for the rest of the day, I am very happy to sit at my desk and do my work. Like my body thrives in that in that quiet state. Exactly. You know, there's so many of my um, clients and colleagues who they might stand at their desk on their like their treadmill yeah. or this, and I couldn't think of anything <laughs> worse. So I'm like, but those are active. Exactly. And when when the body is active and you have this active arrow, it's going to help you think better. And it's the same with the passive. So when I allow myself that passive state, then, of course, everything else is easier for me. Thank you for that. Um, there are so many of these. And as you said earlier, and I just want to get to it before we, we wrap it up, and that is you say when you're looking at your chart for the first time as a beginner, the most important parts to look at are your strategy and authority mm-hmm. and explain that. So I like to explain it this way. Your strategy is kind of like the way the universe speaks to you. Your authority is your internal guidance system, and it's the communication loop that's constantly moving, okay? We find our strategy from our type. So, of course, for you, the, the strategy is to be invited, okay? For me, it's to be in response and to inform. For a manifester, that is to initiate and inform. And what about reflectors? Well, they have to wait a 28-day lunar cycle. Because they don't have definition, they actually have to wait for the moon to move all the way through their chart so that they uh, can know how they really feel about things. They have to wait that 28 days. Wow. That takes some patience. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so we're almost out of time. You have a podcast, right? Yes. So people can kind of dial in and find out what's going on by listening to your podcast. They can go get a, a free chart there. And um, I think the beauty of it, and I would like you to make your final thoughts, I think the beauty of it is it helps us to see ourselves and others more clearly so mm. we can have more compassion and everything settles down, drop judgment. Mm. We're just more accepting of each other. Mm. That's what I find about the beauty in it. Mm. What do you, what, what about you? I actually think that that is, that is absolutely spot on. I know for me in all of my relationships, like even in my, my, my marriage, everything changed because 
what is so important is that we see the world, our brain is set up to see the world as we are, not as it is. And what human design gives us is the ability not only to treat people as we perceive they want to be treated, but even better than that, we get to treat people as they're designed to be treated. We get to see them truly as they are and who they are. It's quite a gift, and we all have Rod. Thank you. He's no longer with us. Yep. And then we have Richard Rudd, who carried it forward into Gene Keys. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Emma, thank you so much for explaining all this today. I really appreciate it. Thank I think you. it's very useful for a lot of people. Thank you. To learn more about human design with Emma, you can go to emmadunwitty.com. Also, check out some of Ra's original talks on human design on YouTube. They're pretty wild. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. I don't quite know what to do with the time, but I think um, I'm just on something here. It's about finding homes for young people. So I'm just thinking I'll play a little section of this. we got a few minutes here. Let's just see what's this all about. Here we go. Mm. I'm part of the big family, and after I had my son, Styles, I didn't want him to be an only child. In 2006, I was matched with Lennon. Lennon was six years old. He had entered into foster care at two months old, and he bounced around from home to home, not knowing if people were going to feed him, treat him right, beat him. That broke my heart. I just remember crying until I got to the next home when my mom asked me, would you like to be adopted? Changed my life forever. Six years later, my boys and I decided that we would adopt again. Ian was six and his brother, Jobert, was four years old. They were living in separate foster homes and they were part of a horrific child abuse case. I felt scared and confused because we've been separated for a lot of time. When I first met my mom, we knew that everything was going to be okay. The day of their adoption, there wasn't a dry eye in sight. I'll never forget that moment, seeing their smiles. Watching them grow and become in, I realized that my reward is now. Coming up through the foster care system, I was told I wasn't going to see the age past 15. I got told I wasn't going to graduate high school. Not only did I graduate high school, but I also received a wrestling scholarship to college. The goal is to become something with that last name, Black on it. He's thriving. He's doing well. He's happy. He graduated high school and decided that he wanted to go to culinary school. Before I was adopted, it was really hard to find times to be happy. Eating food really made me happy. And the goal was for him to open up his own restaurant. My big dream is to have all of my family come over to my restaurant and eat all the food that I made. He's going to touch hearts in many different ways. I know he will. He's going to make a difference. Jovair is 16 years old. He is an honor roll student. I love school. If I don't get an athletic scholarship for a track, I want to try to push myself and get an academic scholarship. Jovair is our track star. Lennon and Styles, they are always there encouraging him. Jovair, that's the superstar right now. Yeah, I think he can become a big champion. Sky is the limit. He can pick whatever he wants to do. When I adopted my boys, I thought that life couldn't get any better. Then I realized that something was missing. My boys are getting older and they need a male role model. 
Stephen was a friend of mine at the time. He was a single dad raising his daughter. He jumped right in, and my kids love him dearly. We got married in 2018. We've been married five years. Now it feels like it's just always been this way. He's that missing piece, so my puzzle is now complete, and I love that. When I was younger, one time on my Christmas list, I just asked to get a dad. Our bond was straight father-son right from the beginning. I'm truly am grateful for him, for being in my life, giving me someone to connect and bond with. Let me be the man I am here today. My family has been my biggest support system in helping me become who I am today. Without adoption, I wouldn't have had that. I want to give back to people. You know, the happiness I feel for my family, I want other people to experience that. Like, they chose me. I deserve to be here. Families can look a lot of different ways, and I cannot imagine my life without the boys or without Veronica. My family couldn't get any better. I truly am blessed. The seven people in this household got each other through thick and thin, and I love that about us. The family that I created through adoption is forever. My boys understand that there will always be a place that they can call home. Please welcome Comics. The
that I'm loved. I can't believe it's been 11 years since Ethan joined our family. He's just so much a part of, of who we are and, and made our family complete. Since graduating Syracuse with a degree in psychology, something I've become pretty passionate about is all the different ways that I can try to give back. I joined the National Guard. When Ethan told us that he wanted to join the National Guard, we were ecstatic. Not only because following in my footsteps, but just because he made his choice on his own, I thought, he's becoming a man. My dad and I spent a lot of time together. He got me into officiating football. We do a lot of family dinners, a lot of time with our neighborhood friends. And I started coaching rowing at my sister's high school. I joined crew because of something that me and my brother do together. Charlie most definitely looks up to Ethan. And she has pride when all of her friends compliment Ethan on how cool he is as a coach and as a big brother. Ethan has been an inspiration to me and the kids on the team. Knowing what he went through to get to where he is and the fact that Ethan has become such an amazing grown-up is what's really incredible. I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for my adoption into my forever family. And they've given me a future that I wouldn't have had otherwise. We wanted him to have a loving family. And we gave it to It's the God and the goddess in all of us, everybody. It's what's within us. And we share it. And we take a little break while we're sharing, everyone. So thank you for this. It's an amazing time. I'm expecting the unexpected every minute. What do you say, Rama? Ditto. <laughs> okay. Thank you, BBS Radio, and I'm so grateful again. Uh, what a surprise. I remember Omina, the Thursday before last, she said before Christmas that she wanted to see that we would get something in our stocking from Santa. <laughs> well, we got it. And it's going to keep on coming, and we pass it on. And so we'll take a little break now, everyone. We'll see you for some music when we come back and a message from Richard about the stars, what's going on up in the heavens here, and uh, Tanya Gabrielle, and love, love, love. See you soon. We'll be back about 10 or so minutes. Pass the talking stick to you, Richard. Thank you, sir. And good evening, everybody. All right. It's the 30th of December, and the sun is at 10 degrees of Capricorn. Hmm. Yeah. A little over nine, but we round up, remember? The ninth degree is done. We're in the 10th degree. Now... All right. The problem here, as I look at this, is Mercury retrograde conjunct Mars mm. in late Sagittarius square Neptune. 
right, that's challenge number one. All right, Mars is at 27 Sag, so that's right there on galactic center. Mercury still retrograde, and it's backed up now to 23 Sagittarius, and we've got another week, another whole week of Mercury Mm -hmm. retrograde. Yeah. It might be eight days or nine days, but yeah. So that's problem number one. Now, problem number two, which I noted last week, is we've got Venus at 2 Sag, square Saturn at 4 Pisces. Yeah. Okay. Saturn in Pisces is going to be a problem for humanity. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you got Venus squared Neptune and Mercury Mars. Mercury Mars squared Neptune and Venus squared Saturn. And Pluto squared Jupiter. Okay, Jupiter has gone direct. But right now it's not moving very fast and it's at Six degrees of Taurus. Yeah, so yeah, Jupiter is basically stationary this week. It's not moving at all right now. It says minus zero for the speed. All right, Mercury is backing up a fifth of a degree per day. All right. Not even, yeah, 20 minutes of arc, yeah, a fifth of a degree. Uranus is retrograde. It's it's only backing up a little over one sixtieth of a degree per day. So very slow. You know, Neptune less than a de- less than a minute of arc. Neptune's essentially stationary. Pluto stationary. Uh, all these, all these outer planets. The fastest outer planet is Saturn, moving at five minutes of arc per day. Right. I mean, it takes twelve days for it to move one degree. Now, Chiron, stationary, direct, also very, very slow. But Venus is moving fast, over a degree a day. All right. I think that covers everything, doesn't it? Yeah. Kind of like we still know what's happening just in the slow time. Oh, well, in the flow time, Venus is in late Leo tonight. So it's square Uranus and square Venus and opposite Saturn. But that's, you know, that's good for today and tomorrow. All right, tomorrow the moon will go into Virgo and it'll be opposite Saturn in early Pisces. 
and the 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 supposedly helpful trines, the 120 degree angles, you know, Venus to Neptune, not really helpful. Doesn't bring any stability anywhere. Right? right. Venus is not known for stability. Right. That's our stability is our friend Saturn. Yeah. And Uranus to a certain extent. So, uh, yeah, it's a very troublesome chart. Enough said. Let's go listen to Kaipacha. Okay. Thank you. Christmas, Happy New Year, it's Guy Potcher with the weekly Paleo Report, no matter frickin' what. Ow! Down here at the American River. Oh, yeah. We got the ducks flying, we got the kids playing. Yeah, it's uh, really something here. Wednesday, December 27th, right in between the holidays, in the middle of the holidays. But nature it's just the solstice around here and i gotta say some things don't change as fast as others anyway yeah the moon is in cancer still okay uh moves into leo tomorrow and yeah we had that full moon right on boxing day the day after uh christmas and uh i'm going to be talking about that cancer capricorn axis full moon in cancer opposite that sun in capricorn and uh but one thing yeah i'm going to be talking about family but look at this it's a little stinky down here uh these are uh salmon the salmon run is over and i just learned yesterday that Salmon are actually look at look at the, look at the size of this guy. Yeah, salmon uh, spawn and then they go out to the uh, saltwater ocean for seven years, and they come back to the same river that they were born in seven years later, and they find that river by smell. They smell the river where they were born. So talk about Cancer Capricorn. These guys uh, go right back to their origins after being out in the ocean for many, many, many years. Nature and her natural laws, as represented by Sagittarius, Jupiter, and the ninth house, we do have a Mercury-Mars conjunction happening today mercury retrograded back into sagittarius just past the galactic center joining together with mars i'm going to read the uh sabian symbol for that degree the 25th degree of sagittarius two degrees off of the uh galactic center in the meantime so many aspects happening i mean that is square to neptune over there in pisces okay um 
Meantime, the sun is trying Saturn, uh, uh, Jupiter. Sun trying Jupiter, Earth to Earth, Capricorn to Taurus. How about that one? That goes on for a few days. You got to give it an orb. So it has been going on. That's, that's very wonderful. Beautiful for uh, gatherings, getting together, things like that. Mars is exactly square Neptune, okay, uh, tomorrow, Thursday. And uh, then Jupiter, speaking of Jupiter, stationing, sitting right there, goes direct on Saturday. After like six months, we're going to have a doggone direct Jupiter. The social forces will be going forward. I will read you the Sabian symbol for that degree. Okay, that's, uh, that's an awesome one. And uh, a lot to tie together here today. Uh, so in the meantime, Venus is moving into Sagittarius. Yeah, that's exact on Friday. She jumps into Sagittarius and then squares Saturn over there in Pisces by Monday. And finally, Mercury stations and goes direct at 23 degrees of uh, Sag on Monday. So hallelujah, thank God, uh, direct Mercury. (laughs) I will be happy for that once again. And yeah, the moon moves into uh, Leo uh, tomorrow, like I said, bops through there and goes into Virgo on Sunday, squares Venus opposite Saturn. Sunday is like a uh, 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 uh kind of day. <laughs> and then Monday, Venus squares Saturn. It kind of stays a little uncomfy, perhaps. Uh, but, uh, yeah, by Tuesday, then, uh, the moon opposes Neptune, trines Pluto, and moves into Libra. Let me just uh, find a rock to sit on. Oh, my God, there is a whole freaking salmon that is still got a body. And the sense of smell is really a very interesting sense. But, yeah. The good, the bad, and the ugly. I mean, you know, uh, uh, a Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva. Yeah, (laughs) birth, life, and death. Nature has got it all. She is our great teacher. I may get up a little bit off the water, though, for the smell. (laughs) So I can talk at the camera without getting tripped out. All right, everybody. Let's see where to begin. Let's begin at the beginning. <laughs> oh. uh, so with uh, the laws of reincarnation, uh, we choose from, uh, with the help of other higher spiritual beings, we choose the time, day, place, mother, father, DNA, language, culture, religion, uh, you know, financial, whatever, uh, to incarnate into, to evolve according to our soul intention for this particular lifetime, right? Boom. So, and a lot of times, we've incarnated with these family members before, in previous lifetimes, we have a karmic history <laughs> going on with family. And I guess I would like to uh, use the metaphor of like the family is the soil. So uh, you know, we as the seed, uh, the individual, right, grows up, you know, within this soil of the family with expectations, conditioning, programming, 
demands in some cases, abandonment in other cases. I mean, oh, but like, this is the fertile or unfertile soil that we choose and have chosen unconsciously, spiritually, okay, to mold and form our conscious ego issues, stories, problems, identity. Well, this is what the, this is the thing now, the identity. So the identity is like, so we come out of like a plant. We break through that soil into the light of day. We get our own sunbeams. We get our own drops of rain. We get, you know, you know, and we open up and, and, and we flower. And, you know, so we have to kind of like deal with, and that's what the mantra today is about. This week is about emerging into our independent, unique individuality out of that family stream, defining ourselves. And then, like I'm going to get into with the Jupiter stationing direct, then and only then, it's like after we define our individual role, identity, purpose, truth, that's when we can fully contribute all that we are to the collective. Boom. So that would be like the fruit that we offer. Yeah. You know, uh, the flowers that we, you know, that, that, that bring forth, that we bring forth out of our, out of our core, out of our truth. So it's, 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 it is this process and we cannot fully contribute all that we have to contribute unless we break free from all those, uh, you know, societal, cultural, parental, governmental, religious, whatever, you know, all those layers and layers and layers that, you know, the onions got to, you know, we got to peel back all that stuff, right, in order to, you know, emerge out of that. So we want to, you know, this is kind of all brought up. I'm, I'm kind of going backwards a little bit to that full moon, Sun opposite moon, mom opposite dad, okay, you know, conscious will, uh, you know, solar purpose, uh, you know, as opposed to the subconscious inner child need for, you know, emotional connection, nurturing, protection, you know, so there, you know, there's, there is this uh, stress and strain in this pull. Of course, uh, sun's going to go up, you know, in a, in a couple of weeks here and conjunct with Pluto. And this is the family axis. This is the security axis is what I call it. This is, you know, having to do with our genetic, uh, uh, definition. It has to do with our gender definition. And, uh, we can see that, you know, all those kids, Pluto went into Capricorn in 2008, right? And it's there until next year. So, you know, all these kids that are, you know, up to zero to 15, have done a recent gender switch. Yes, Pluto in Capricorn, Cancer, the fourth house or the tenth house indicates a recent gender switch. So the little boys have a strong feminine and the little girls have a strong masculine and, you know, and whole family dynamics now are, you know, shifting and changing and, you know, so it's kind of, you know, a lot of things in the limelight. Yeah. You know, with this full moon really brought up and, and, and how perfect right at the frickin holidays. 
course, I mean, the sun goes through Capricorn, you know, every, you know, uh, every uh, Christmas, Hanukkah, New Year's, whatever, you know. So, you know, it's, yeah, it's all, I call it a spiritual setup. <laughs> We're all, it's, we've been set up. Oh, my God. <laughs> what do I do now? And so I just want to, you know, look a little bit at this because, you know, when, when we get together with, uh, you know, family members or not, or, or we avoid getting together with family members <laughs> one way or the other. We want to understand that when we are triggered, yeah, emotionally triggered, when something, when somebody says something or they ignore us or they, you know, contradict us or they challenge us, da, 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 and we get emotionally triggered, we get stirred up, we get, you know, we either get defensive, reactive, angry, you know, shut down, run away, you know, fight or flight, uh, you know, adrenaline, you know, your face flushes or what. I mean, you know, and this is, you know, this is what family does because it goes right down to the seed, right down to the root. You know, it's like, geez, Louise, man, your parents, you know, kind of know you since you were, you know, a baby. Your kids know you since you became an adult. <laughs> Your grandkids know you, for, you know, as just some old fart, <laughs> whatever. But, you know, yeah, it's, you know, it's just like we are like in this kind of a container, uh, you know, of this family with all of that. And when you are triggered, that emotional trigger is, a, is triggering that there is shadow. There is some part of you, some part of your unique individuality that you have suppressed, denied, not spoken of, avoided, you know, not wanting to show, not wanting to be vulnerable, not wanting to speak from that place, act from that place because it would upset other people or make them angry. So you shove it. And, you know, this is, you know, this is, this is what comes up during these things. And, and, uh, working with family constellations, I just remember one thing was even that, you know, uh, mothers who keep their, you know, children away from the bad dad, uh, you know, uh, this is like, uh, if the child doesn't make a bond with the bad dad, it takes on the shadow of the dad when it grows up. Right. So, you know, we've got even with absentee parents. OK, you know, where, you know, the parents are triggered and the kids get the fallout and all. I mean, there's just like so much karma, so much history, so much power. I mean, this is the other this is the other aspect we inherit you know, for better and for worse, we, uh, you know, assets and liabilities. And so, you know, every person has assets and liabilities. Everybody's got faults and everybody's got gems and jewels and gold. So, you know, it's like sorting through, sorting through, sorting through, sorting through. Ideally, ideally, and this may not happen in one lifetime, but ideally, you stop getting triggered. I mean, I, I know that in, in past uh, Christmases and past family gatherings, you know, when I wasn't, you know, treated as the dad or the authority or special or powerful or the know-it-all or whatever, it triggered me, right? You know, like, 
way more than, you know, this last time here now. You know, I'm with family now, and it's like, okay, same kind of dynamics, same kinds of things, but not triggered as much. So the emotional reaction, you know, you can not like something, or, and, and not, and it, but you can shrug it off. When you can shrug it off, you get the you get this sense that okay, wow, I am more centered in the core, in the truth, as opposed to being, you know, blown over or broadsided or you know, uh, you know. So you know that is that's a signal, a sign that the more calm, cool, and relaxed, and the less triggered that you can be in these family environments, the more you have individualized. Right. And then, well, let me read. Let me read the uh, this is a great one. I mean, it's it's perfect. <laughs> uh, the, so the Mercury and let's see, Venus is moving into Sag. Mercury and Mars are already in Sag. These are the three personal planets. Right. And the moon moving through Cancer and Leo, the most personal signs. So we have a lot of this personal stuff that what is, you know, Sagittarius, ninth house. Venus, Mercury, and Mars is my truth and my future, my expansion of my consciousness. So the degree that Mercury and Mars are conjuncting at is the 25th degree, and it is a chubby boy on a hobby horse. You can just see that for Christmas. <laughs> Maybe uh, you, you, found, you saw a hobby horse. The anticipatory enjoyment of powers one can only as yet dream of utilizing. The horse has always been a symbol of power and in many instances of sexual energy. Until very recently, the horse gave us a greater possibility of conquering more space and what that space contains. Mounted on his hobby horse and experiencing the to and fro rhythm of its motion, the well-fed boy, unconsciously and perhaps nowadays half-consciously, may anticipate the rhythm of the sexual act. In a sense, it is also a kind of make-believe and growth through the imagination but here, the imagination is active at the organic body level. There is something of an initiation in the play. So, yeah, we see here the foreshadowing of the mature experience of manhood. Yeah. This is the time. New Year's is approaching. This is really the New Year's Pele report, right? You know, anticipation, the future, the astrology on that. Yeah, the astrology of 2024. <laughs> There's a link down at the bottom of the YouTube here. Yeah, you know, and go to my website, newparadigmastrology.com. I'm doing a weekend on the astrology of 2024. And you know, it's the future. And here's the kid on the hobby horse. I mean, we're all, we're all kids in one way. We all have an inner child, you know. We all anticipate 
you know, what's coming? What's coming next year? You know, what flowers are bursting? You know, what am I going to do? What, what new projects? What new relationships? What new things? Do I, you know, it's like, yeah. So, you know, there is this looking ahead, this looking ahead. And the thing is that we can get ahead of ourselves. If we don't do our inner work and we don't do this family work, okay, like I said, we don't really get in touch with the unique gift that we are and that we have for the collective. And our sole purpose is always to manifest in, with, and through greater circles of activity. Yeah. So, and here we have, okay, and this is Venus square Saturn, and this is, you know, Sun trine Jupiter. Saturn and Jupiter are the social planets, okay? And the, the, the last half from Libra to Pisces, okay, is all about social integration leading into cosmic spiritual integration through the last three signs, Capricorn, Aquarius, and Pisces. So this brings me to this Jupiter stationing direct. Jupiter went up to 15 degrees of Taurus. Came all the way back now to five. And it's stationing direct. I've been waiting for this day. <laughs> when Jupiter goes direct and moves on, baby. And it's going to come into a conjunction with Jupiter. Yeah, I mean, a conjunction with Uranus in Taurus in a couple of months from now. I'll tell you more about that later. But, you know, there, so there, we have a lot to anticipate. 2024 is a big freaking year. Pluto moving into Aquarius, the sign of society, of the collective consciousness. Pluto, the symbol of transformation. We have a lot of, yeah, there's going to be a lot happening here in the realms of social integration, society, technology, everything like that. But what I really want to bring forward here is the degree, the Sabian symbol for the degree that Jupiter stations direct, because I think it has something important to share. Yeah. And that is cantilever bridge across a deep gorge. It is the conquest of separativeness through group cooperation. The person who has suffered deprivation and loneliness can give new substance to his or her emotional life by participating in a collective project. All great evolutionary challenges imply the overcoming of basic difficulties. A step ahead must be taken. Yet an abyss confronts the evolving person. It is no longer a personal void, an open grave, but a chasm that is an integral part of the land upon which our evolution must proceed. A link must be built through the power of the collective mind of the group 
or of the community at large on the basis of the legacy of the past to make a bridge over the canyon. The man-made bridge with the collective skill gives substance to and demonstrates our capacity to conquer obstacles and to achieve evolutionary continuity as well as an expansion in space. That's the thing. We are not alone. We do not exist within a void. There is the law of one. Like these people or not, we are connected. We are a collective. And it's not just groups of like-minded souls. Ultimately, we are able through Saturn and Neptune and Pisces to have compassion and forgiveness for all soul beings. Because... For some reason or another, probably beyond our comprehension, <laughs> we need to build bridges collectively. It's, it is a collective process. We each have a gift, but we need the other gift and the other gift and the other gift. You know, we need the architect. We need the concrete guy. We need the, you know, the, the metal guy. We need the, uh, I mean, Everybody's got this little, you know, their own unique gift to contribute so that together we can evolve this planet. We can evolve this solar system. We can evolve this race, this species of beings. So, yeah, there is this, you know. The, we have to emerge out of the soil of our past, out of the roots, and discover ourselves in order to fully contribute to making that bridge. So this Mercury-Mars and this Venus coming into Sagittarius, this is, to ex this is the time of expansion, of understanding our truth, understanding our philosophy, Talking about it, sharing about it, writing about it, publishing about it. I mean, this is like, and it's by the Galactic Center. So we're getting downloads as to, yeah, this is who I am. This is what I believe. This is what, you know, I envision. And, and then that sun moving through Capricorn wants to bring it down to Earth, wants to manifest it. Let's build those bridges. Let's overcome the separation. Saturn in Pisces now is wanting to dissolve. Neptune Pisces 12th house is the, the, the process of dissolving. Water dissolves the sugar cube, right? You know? So it is, a, you know, it's about dissolving these walls of separation to experience the divine spiritual love, connection, oneness, beauty. And this is what the little hob, the guy, the little guy on the hobby horse is imagining, you know, in some way, shape, and form, you know, even with the sexual act, anticipating this union, yes, not just of body, but of heart, mind, and soul. So, like, this is what can, like, really come once we individualize, gain our independence, we then give back. Yes, 
our unique special gifts. So let's not put the cart before the horse. <laughs> let's stick <laughs> today with our mantra for the week. My family helps me develop my core identity by challenging me to speak my truth and act independently. Mercury conjunct Mars and Sagittarius. My truth, the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. This is who I am. Ah, moon going through Leo. <laughs> and then it gets humbled in Virgo, but comes back out again in Libra, you know, just in time for New Year's. <laughs> it's going to be great, man. Wild, wild. Let's see. Uh, 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 Monday is the, the, the first. So, yeah, I mean, that depending where you are on planet Earth, the moon is either going to be in Leo for your New Year's, right, you know, or Virgo. But, yeah, that is that is what's uh, going on these days. Yeah, as that moon, you know, she's actually after full again. She's waning. That is, you know, disseminating. That is, you know, re-entering into, you know, social relationship, you know, romantic, beautiful, loving relationships. And then those relationships contribute further, whether it's children or bridges or companies or, you know, art and paintings, you know, you know, you know, people come together and, you know, and, and contribute to the collective. So let's build those bridges, baby. <laughs> Feliz Navidad. Yes, indeed. And I will see you on the other side of New Year's. And again, mark your calendars, Jan- January 13th and 14th. And, uh, and I will maybe see you for the astrology of 2024. Saturday is what's going on for the collective and Sunday is what's going on for you personally. It's two different, you know, but they can, you can obviously you can do both. <laughs> yeah. Ow. Wishing you the best. Namaste. Aloha. So much joy.
tell everybody what you were telling me. They were showing whales, humpback whales, up near the Arctic Circle. <clears throat> and as we understand, whales have human <clears throat> souls. Pass the talking stick back to you, Richard. <laughs> Hello, Richard. Are you there? <laughs> if it was 15 seconds to go by, it's a 15 seconds now. Are you there, Richard? Hello. Hello. Uh, he is there. Oh. Should be. Okay. I'll hang up on him and try back. Okay. All we can say while we're waiting, everybody, is that um, the awesome energies that are here are just... Uh, well worth being here. Uh, I am so glad I keep on telling people that I'm glad I'm breathing and I'm alive. <laughs> yes, I do too. <laughs> and uh, we have an opportunity to correct any courses in our lives that we care to do. We have the energies available No matter where the uh, majority are, I just that really stuck with me that the majority of the people are adolescent souls. Yet uh, uh, the example. Oops. All right, now does that mean Richard's back? Yes. Hi, Richard. Pass the talking okay. stick to you. What? Pass the talking stick to you. Okay. Let me turn off. Uh, let, me, let me read this. All right. If I got the talking stick, I misspoke a bit earlier about Mercury retrograde. As uh, most astrologers think about Mercury retrograde, they're thinking that Tuesday, Mercury goes direct, mm. but that's only the first half of the Mercury retrograde cycle. It went retrograde at 8 Capricorn. It won't get back to 8 Capricorn until January 20th. Oh, my. Oh. Right? Uh-huh. It went apparently reverse for three weeks here and then it's going to turn around on uh, sometime Monday night Tuesday morning like in two days, three days here mm -hmm. but it won't get back to 8 Capricorn until January 21st 
which mm. will be which will be when the sun moves into Aquarius. So oh, that's I wanted, perfect. I wanted to uh, correct myself on that. And uh, while one might consider the uh, first half of the retrograde cycle to be full of delays and miscommunications and screwed up electronics, etc. That's certainly true of the first half of this cycle. So things will be easier beginning this coming week, but the cycle is not complete until the 20th. Thank you. Thank you for that correcting the course of Mercury. Thank you. Well, again, it's it's just relative positions relative to Earth, right? Because when you, you think about it, if from the position of the Earth, the Sun is in Capricorn, from the position of the Sun, the Earth is in Cancer. Right. Right. Looking at yeah, you know, that's why that's why you always work these energies in pairs. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see here. Now I'm looking at next week's chart. Next week, uh, the moon will uh, advance into Scorpio. The thirteenth. I think that is, what is that, the 19th. Moon will be in 1920 Scorpio next Saturday night. Venus will be at 11 Sag. Mercury will be at 23 Sag. Mars will be at 2 Capricorn. And the Sun will be at 17 Capricorn. So that's how those guys are going to be rolling here over the next week. So uh, that's that. Everything else basically the same, right? Um, how long did you say Tanya is going to be tonight? 20 minutes. One Six. minute. Uh, 20 so, minutes. Yeah, huh? 20. 20 minutes. 18 seconds. All right. 20, yeah, it's probably time for us to... Yeah, let's... Uh, I, I had something. I've got something. I'll just hold it in reserve, a little reading from a book. Okay. But I'll hold that. I can hold that till next week. Good, good, Richard. All right. All right, All right then. Uh Let's go Not ahead and go. Yeah. Well, Let's I want to. See. See, I want to see what uh, Tanya's Tony. got to say about this. Uh, oh, this new moon coming up here is. I got to. I got to. If, if I can survive the next the next couple of weeks, I'll be fine. <laughs> okay. Look, look, look at my at my at my chart. Next, next. Actually, it was this this week. What was it? What are, uh, let me see here. Uh, let me go back. Yeah. 
Yeah, she... No. All right. Never mind. <laughs> okay. Never mind. I was just saying, well, see, I've got... My son is at 12 Scorpio, and my Mercury is at 25 Scorpio. Mm. And my moon is at 15, Can- uh, 15 Capricorn. Okay, so I'm getting ready to have sun conjunct my moon. Oh. When the sun gets there, the... All right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sun conjunct moon and Capricorn. The sun conjuncts moon and Capricorn next Friday for me. But that's Saturday, okay. you know. Sun conjunctions last seven or nine days because the sun's so powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Rounded you so shall the moon, be for the, the moon, new year. The moon next Saturday will have going to conjunct my sun. moon will be at 19... Scorpio, and my son's at 12. But anyway, enough about me. All right. I will bid you adieu, and I will be listening on the Internet, and I'll talk to you next week. Thank you, Richard. All right, here we go. Let's do something. I want to stick around and see what Tanya might have, because sometimes she has little gems of wisdom. Mm -hmm. She does. Here we go. Okay. Welcome to Star Codes. This is the podcast where we look at an upcoming event in the stars and numbers to get clarity and be able to just move through the energy with the highest intentions and the best flow as possible. And today we have reached the end of the year forecast, the transition moment And so this podcast is called Transitions and Transcendence. And what we are going to focus on is the move from the first part of the 2020s, which began with that powerful 500-year event, the stellium with Saturn and Pluto, the Sun and Mercury on January 12th, 2020. And we are now reaching or bridging into the middle three years of this decade, 2024, 2025, and 2026. And these will be pivotal because they literally bridge us to the the new Earth moment, which will then really take hold in 2027 and beyond. So what does this mean? Well, we get one clue to start off with from the new moons, which signify new beginnings. And since November of 2023, we have started five consecutive new moon cycles where the sun and moon are at 20 degrees in their sign. So in Scorpio, November, Sagittarius in December, etc. Now, that means we have two in 2023 and three to begin in 2024. 
these are new moons at 20 degrees, 2020 is perfect vision. The sun and moon will be right next to each other in each of those signs from Scorpio to Pisces. And that literally is a moment for us to see that we are going to see a lot more. We are going to be awakening a lot more. Seeing with clarity, having that perfect vision means that we are collectively waking up. And in order to awaken, we get information, data, wisdom that transforms us, that transcends us. The truth of what we discover about ourselves, our history, our beliefs, whatever the case may be, is going to show us that, hey, maybe there's a new perspective that I can see the world with. Maybe what I was assuming to be the only way is is not actually the only way. Maybe there's so much more for me to discover. So we're becoming all collectively, consciously aware that we are first and foremost eternally unified with source, with God. And there's no other state that actually exists for us because spirit, source, God is in all things. It is all that exists. And so when we look at life that way and see that that means it's so beyond the beyond, right? It's like, it's like the, the human comprehension of, of that understanding brings us into galactic timelessness because we can't comprehend it with our, our mind. So our egos are trying to decipher things and in doing so, we get caught up in these stories that our ego entices us with to be fearful of something that might be coming up because our mind cannot comprehend timelessness. So our fears then convince us that we are permanently at risk of something, some calamity or, or illness or death or whatever the case may be, poverty. And so we are constantly steering our life in order to avoid whatever said calamity our ego is trying to steer us away from. And that is no way to live because truly, when you look at the divine, it is all about abundance and the eternal support that is there for you. There is no fear in love. So how do we get to that place? And this is where the 2020 new moons are saying, well, we've got to see things a little bit differently. Because when our ego stirs up all these doubts, these doubts create uncertainty. The uncertainty makes us feel lost and confused and abandoned. And when we feel that way, we are going to respond to life or react to life in a very different way than when we trust that goodness shall prevail at all times. Because nothing could be further from the truth that we are abandoned. So what this all leads up to in 2024, which is an eight universal year, and eight is the number of empowerment and leadership, is where do we come in individually in our own unique way to bypass that trap of feeling that abandonment, that that sense of being lost. 
that's the first step to that is happening right now. As I'm recording this, we're in the holiday season and it is actually creating quiet time. The holiday spirit, the new year, no matter where you live in the world, no matter what the weather is, is all about spending some quiet time. Whether it's with like-minded people, like-hearted people, I should say, or by yourself. Because we're conditioned to just go, go, go and do, do, do. And we've been taught that that's the only way or the best way. It's the most valuable way. It carries great value to always be doing something. But then we forget about the sine wave, the ebb and flow, the light and dark, sleeping, resting, and then acting. Meaning we need to incorporate that naturally. That recharge moment is just as important as the action. And being quiet doesn't mean you're not supportive of others or you're not doing your spiritual work or fulfilling your purpose. It's that you're prioritizing putting replenishment on the agenda, on your to-do list, right? Even though it's not doing something, it literally is being, you are making it a priority. So we are now in the season of Capricorn. The sun is in Capricorn. We just had the solstice. And Capricorn is a leadership career number. It is about standing up for something, fulfilling your destiny, your purpose. And it's also and very much related to creating boundaries because in order to fulfill your purpose and stand up and lead, you have to eliminate, you have to say no to things and only say yes to those that actually enhance your life. So those boundaries specifically that you're now setting help to sustain your resonance and maintain your frequency. And this is very important because You don't want to lower your vibrational frequency when you relate to others. This is really the biggest key during times of shift and transcendence and transformation is to sustain your resonance and then allow others to come to you. Otherwise, you're going to be depleted. And this is why the quiet time is so important. This is truly the art of living. When you maintain that vibrational frequency that you naturally are connected to the divine with, you allow the divine energy to guide you, to flow through you. If you drop into a lower vibration in order to somehow in your mind relate to somebody else, you also limit yourself and your connection to the divine isn't as strong. It's it's like being half full as opposed to glass full, fully being overflowing with your energy. You don't want to be depleted in that sense. So if you share your energy at that lower resonance, it doesn't carry the clarity, the 2020 vision. It doesn't carry the the sense of complete connection, the the unfiltered impact isn't there. It's more filtered in order to fit into some box that you're trying to 
relate to. So it's very important not to do that, to be quiet or to just speak or write or be in presence with the divine. So never to dilute that, right? So Capricorn is also about security and protection. And here's the thing, when you maintain your vibrational frequency, it actually gives you that protection. Now, it's very important to know that maintaining your resonance does not mean that you're necessarily saying something. It could be just being, not doing. So just being a living example of someone who lives in that frequency. And so when others feel that, they are elevated by the very nature. It's just like listening to beautiful music. You're elevated by the harmony, the peace, the joy of the music just by hearing it. You don't have to understand or know why it was written and who's playing the instruments. It's just that you are naturally impacted. And in the same way, human beings resonate. They are instruments of vibration. So to get there, again, quietude, serenity are very, very important to be replenished. And this is a prime time in the year to do that, to turn to your heart quietly every day and invite source to enter your heart and embrace and comfort you because source will. When you are open to receive, source will come. And by nurturing yourself, you energize yourself. And you fill your heart. And so your heart has plenty to give because you have replenished. And there are many ways to do this while you're in quietude. Getting out into nature, one of the big ones. Connecting with friends. Laughing. As I said, listening to beautiful music. Listening to a channeling or a meditation. Deep breathing playing with your pet, playing with animals, playing with children, reading an inspiring book, many, many ways. And you'll receive little messages, very subtle messages throughout those moments. And you will more and more not doubt those messages. You will see that they carry, they come on wings of truth. And it's just up to you to listen and then fulfilling your obligations becomes much easier because as you nurture yourself, you fill yourself with this beautiful divine energy, which energizes you. You have an overflow of love to give and because as you nurture you, you nurture others and then you naturally trust in all instances that goodness shall prevail no matter what. Now, speaking of which, regarding what is happening in the world these days, you can't control what the world does. That is clear. But what you can do is control your own energy and how you show up. And that's where your true power lies. This is not about trying to control the situation. This is about you maintaining a frequency throughout the awakening process. And this way, you can't be controlled. You can't be manipulated by the information. And that's the key. 
if you're choosing how you want to feel, how you want to act in the midst of anything, you are literally in the driver's seat. You cannot be controlled. So manipulation can only happen when you actually allow it to happen, when you're not consciously realizing that a game is being played, mind game. When people who want power over others engage with those people, they assume that you've forgotten that you can stand in your own power. And many people have forgotten that, but you don't need to forget that ever. So across the world, people are waking up to this truth. And it's actually happening paradoxically, as so much does, due to increased conflict. The conflict is bringing to light the actual opposites of the energies that we have at our disposal. Even if you are in conflict and not seeing the other side, you are still in an awakening process because by taking a side against another side, you are amping up the energy and it will put you in a certain state. And that state will come with a result that will impact you. And that result itself will bring you what you need to wake up. And for everyone, that process is different. For everyone, that process takes a certain amount of time. So it's never to judge. It's just to know that we are in it. It's so exciting in so many ways because we've been waiting a long time for this moment and now it's finally happening and though it may not be apparent to many people because of the conflict itself it is very very important during these times to deal with whatever is showing up because whatever is coming up in your life at any moment whether it's a challenge or a very harmonious moment What's important is that you face it. It's in the present moment that we gain our power. It's only in that moment that we become empowered. So whatever is showing up, whatever is coming up in your life, in your present moment at any given time, it will keep you empowered. It will keep you present. And if you're present, you are heart-centered. Being present and being heart-centered are the same thing. So whatever shows up for you is literally meant to bring you into the moment. And that's why it's so intense right now. When things are just flowing, which is beautiful and we love that, we sometimes can forget to be present. When things are intense, we literally have to pay attention. And so being in that present moment a full attention of 2020 vision, seeing clearly, means our heart is engaged. So if you can just remember that being being heart-centered and being present are the same thing. And you don't have to go look and read up on and watch about what you can do to be heart-centered or be present. Because they are the same thing. It just literally means whatever shows up to face that challenge or face that harmonious moment. And in being present, that's where your power is.
Now we dive into this amazing awakening on earth in a free masterclass I've created at spiritualmasteryclass.com. Again, it's free. It's amazing. You get so many lovely tips, the secrets to spiritual mastery, the true meaning of your rising sign, meaning your ascendant, the important difference between uniqueness and individuality and your natal sun and moon's real profound impact on living a life of abundance and happiness and how to instantly connect with spirit and many more secret tools. It's a really fun masterclass. It's free and you can watch it at spiritualmasteryclass.com. So I want to leave you with that and I want to wish you a beautiful Christmas if you celebrate a wonderful new year, which of course we all celebrate. And I just want you to know that this year that's coming up in 2024 is absolutely extraordinary. There's a lot of good news and there's a lot of intensity that's truly going to emerge. And so being in that heart-centered place, being in the place of trust and being in a place of having faith in your abilities and knowing that you are in charge at any given moment. Nobody can take that away from you. That is going to be the key to having a remarkable year. So sending you lots of love and I will see you next week in our next Star Codes forecast, which will be on the Capricorn new moon. Lots of love. everybody. Rama will give us the phone connection to our conference call. Uh, 720-716-7301. And the pin code is 353-863-POUND. One more time, honey. 720 Seven three zero one, and the pin code is three five three eight six three pound. And I just want to read one little statement here before we go and talk on the conference call here. And this has been on all the news networks, but I think it's pretty much what Tanya was saying. So here we go. I am mindful that no Secretary of State has ever deprived a presidential candidate of ballot access based on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. I am also mindful, however, that no presidential candidate has ever before engaged in insurrection. So we'll leave you with that thought. Mm. (laughs) Happy New Year, everyone. We'll see you on the conference and discuss whatever we want to share. Here we go. Namaste. See you on the conference, everyone. Oh, that was beautiful, Rama. Thank you. That was Deepa Primal and Nitsin. 
They uh, are consorts together. Lord of the Full Moon. It's a, a poem from Rumi. Well, maybe we can play that. No, I don't know if we have any time at the end. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we're going to do one more with Regina Meredith, and then we're going to do the... Uh, oh, i got to find it. Okay, you find it, Rama. Um, Rolling Stones and the Rock and Roll Circus is on tonight, too. Oh, my. I mean... Mick Jagger's 84. Mick Jagger's 84. I see. Tommy more. Smothers was, I learned he was 86 when he went over the rainbow the other day. Mm. Two more years he had on him than we thought. But, uh, did you uh, Did you find this one now, Rama? Yeah. Okay, I'll reread this. If we stop demonizing lower frequencies, will we harmonize our full energetic spectrum? Sounds good to me. Eileen McCusick. We've heard her before. She's pretty matter of fact. (laughs) Is a healer and practitioner of biofield tuning, a method to identify and release blockages, which are root causes of disease. This subtle work helps individuals become more regulated, coherent, and resilient by cleaning trauma held by the subconscious so we become less reactive Mm -hmm. when faced with perceived difficulties. Mm -hmm. McCusick explains, raising our vibration does not necessarily reduce noise in the energy field. Instead, harmonizing lower frequencies can increase the electrical current in the body to balance our energy. McCusick mm-hmm. believes the power of voice and use of specific words can heal our quote-unquote sonic anatomy and offer protection from illness. And so that's the word, and it's 45 minutes, so we better get started. Mm. we got two and a half hours of music ahead of us. Well, there's a few commercials. Mm. So we'll cut that short. Eileen McCusick is back with us today to share her expertise on healing the energy field surrounding us. As this epoch in history continues to roll out its surprises, human anxiety mounts. According to Eileen, by tidying up the first line of defense, our energy matrix, we can avoid the illness that could eventually follow because your body knows exactly what to do once your field is clear. Welcome back, Eileen. It's so good to see you again. Yeah, it's great to be back with you too, Regina. So we have so many things to tidy up here. First of all, I just have to say, because we were talking off camera, you're known worldwide. You have practitioners all over the world in biofield tuning I didn't know until today that you got your very first tuning forks from Gaim, way back when Gaim had a store. 
That's where you got your first tuning forks? I did in 1996. I love it. I was reading books about the use of color and sound and music and healing. That was when this journey with sound started. And just as soon as I finished my little stack of books, I got a Guyam catalog in the mail that had a set of tuning forks for healing in it. And that was what got me started. I love it. So here we are full circle all those years later. But there's more to that circle. You've got a long way to go. So first of all, there's something else that you have said that I find interesting because so many, you deal with frequencies, you deal with sound. As so many people say, well, you just have to raise your vibrations and raise your frequencies. We were talking about, and you say, oh, that irks me when people say that. So let's get your take on it. Well, as a writer, as a wordsmith, and as a sound therapist, I realized it's so important, the specificity with which we use words. Mm-hmm. And when we heal, we're not really technically raising our vibration. Uh, this idea that, that somehow higher is better, or that we're going up in this one kind of linear way. What I find happens is that we clarify our vibration. We bring our vibration in tune. We want to get the noise out of the signal. And when we do that, we raise our voltage, we raise the amount of electric current that's flowing through us, and we actually have an experience of expanding our field. We expand mm-hmm. out into our potential. Like, Why limit it in just one direction when what is really happening is we are expanding out in every direction and and accessing our potential as human beings? Yeah, absolutely. And when you think about it, it's like raising when you, so if we're talking about it in terms of music, right? It's as though somehow a C is more lowly than an A or a B. And you're, and actually that is not true. It's more harmonizing the total effect of all of these frequencies, right? right. We want all of them to be in tune. And this sort of demonization of these low frequencies, you know, I joke about like, well, how does that make the bass players feel? (laughs) And the drum players. And the drum players. (laughs) Or, you know, we need the low frequencies for sleep. So the whole spectrum of frequency we want to avail ourselves to, uh, to be, to experience and, and to get all of those in tune. And you've also said that the low frequencies actually help us take up oxygen in the body. So, I mean, I like the tabla, for example, the sound of the tabla, that deep Indian drum. What's actually going on there when we hear these deep resonant sounds? Most people feel it on a really primal level. It kind of wakes you up. It feels like it's feeding you. You say it's more than that. Well, the work of John Stuart Reed, who is a cymatics expert, he observed that the these low frequencies, these bass rhythms and like the tabla cause the blood to uptake oxygen. I mean, that's fascinating when you think about it when you go to different experiences where you're doing a trance dance or whatnot it's really those lower frequencies that kind of get you into this ecstatic state exactly interesting so then you're talking about getting rid of what we would call the static or the dirty noise that is taking away from the harmonization from all of all these frequencies Mm -hmm. we all have noise in our signal if you think that of your body with an electrical system and Mm -hmm. everything is running in different rhythms and expressing different tones. Uh, Trauma, multi-generational trauma, accidents or injuries, uh, a a vicious inner critic being inwardly divided and having just a lot of noise in your own mind all create static that diminishes us, self-doubt, low self-worth. 
all of these things stop us from having that experience of accessing our potential. And everybody knows that they have greatness within them. That's certainly been my experience. Many people are stuck feeling like they can't get to that self-realized place. And the mean girl thing, you've also said that this has a lot to do kind of mean inner voice. And I'm using females because of a, a subject we had talked about before, which has to do with digestion. And so many people are having chronic digestive disorders now. It's like, it's like we're allergic to everything. But you say what we're actually allergic to is our own thoughts. Our own thoughts. Yeah, that's, you know, I've worked with thousands of clients over the years. And that is really what stands out to me more than anything, that the enemy is within. And people are inwardly divided into judge and the part that's judged into victim and perpetrator. And they have very unkind dialogues going on inside of them. So there's this experience of being inwardly split. And then this voice that is just, or maybe multiple voices that are mean, that are punitive, that are critical, that if that was a person who was following you around and saying those things, you wouldn't stand for it. You wouldn't, you're like that, you're a really bad friend, like (laughs) get out of here. And yet somehow we've been conditioned to accept it in our own mind. And it's very, very destructive. In fact, I observed a pattern, everybody that I treated who had, uh, that were diagnosed with Crohn's disease just had a vicious, vicious inner critic. They're like eating themselves alive with acidity within their own minds. So these are, this is highly critical type of thought you're talking about here. But what about something that seems like it's kind of more ordinary and it's definitely ubiquitous, I see. And that is the subject of self-doubt. I'm just seeing this a lot in people around me questioning themselves. Very few people actually don't question themselves and say, what am I doing? I mean, why am I bothering? Is this, am I on the right path? This kind of chronic self-doubt, what does that do to a person? Well, you know, I see that too, Regina. And I think this this past year, that really sunk in for me that I was noticing the same thing. Me too. Yeah. So I teach the advanced classes in biofield tuning. Mm-hmm. And we do a number of exercises in that that really gets people centered and grounded and embodied. And what I really notice is that after people go through those experiences, they're self-confident and you can see it in them. They, they, they all look like they're like the star of their own show. Like everything that we are, if we can let ourselves be our authentic self, we're all amazing. And when, and it's really there, you don't have to go out and get it. That is in you. And self-doubt becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because that creates a lot of noise in the signal. Right. And then you're just in the noise instead of in that comfortable, clear, like I'm awesome kind of place because everybody is. I mean, that's really been my observation. It's interesting though, because it's almost come hand in hand with after the pandemic came and went, it changed the nature of reality and the questions people ask and the way people want to allocate their time and energy. So a lot of people have taken a courageous step to say, you know, I'm not going back to that job, which, you know, we have shortages in fields all over the world because workers aren't showing up. But many people are saying, I can't do that job anymore. And they're trying to put it back together. They can't, you know, I've always wanted to do this or that. But then comes that sticky old subject of survival and money. And as soon as a price tag seems to be attached to something someone really wants to do, Self-doubt and anxiety seems to take over. Mm-hmm. Have you know? Do you notice this as well? Sure. And and I've been through that myself. 
you know, do what you love and the money will follow. But sometimes there's a gap. Yeah, there's a gap. Exactly. (laughs) And and I definitely struggled when I was first creating biofield tuning, working in the field. I wasn't sure about what I was doing. I think it takes you can't shortcut experience. Right. Like the self-doubt is appropriate. But as you gain more experience and more comfort with what you're doing, Mm -hmm. then then it goes away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is true. And then there's something that's just chronic where people continually their entire life doubt themselves. Yeah. How does that tend to play out in the body, that level, that kind of emotion? Well, you're going to see that in digestion because that, okay. that is creating noise in the signal. It's creating low level stress and mm-hmm. discomfort. So anything that you've got that is a signal jammer that is stopping the body from accessing a clear blueprint is going to show up. One of the places where I see self-doubt and the inner critic really show up is in people's right hips. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. So that's just a pattern that I've observed when self-doubt and self-worth and constantly criticizing ourselves within, it creates an imbalance in the field in that sort of right root sacral area. And then because there's noise in the signal there, the body can't repair itself properly. So it starts radiating out to the hip joints. Exactly. And the right hip in particular. In particular. Oh, pay attention if you have anything going in your right hip. So we're here, we're talking about, you know, we're talking about an electromagnetic field. And I love the work you do in the biofield tuning because you actually, you can read a person, you and your practitioners around the world. When someone comes to you, you start assessing out what's going on with them by reading, I think, believe it, you start with the left side of the field, using your tuning fork and finding resistance when certain ages come up. And that's where the trauma may have started and so forth. Talk about that a little bit for people who don't already know your work. Sure. It's, it's very, it's sort of an odd practice and it took me a very long time to get over my concern about how strange it was. But now we have thousands of people, like you said, around the world doing it and it's normalized it a bit. But biofield tuning is a little bit like using a tuning fork, like a needle on an album. It's like dropping a needle on an album and reading the vibrational record of somebody's life. So in this model, our memories are stored in standing waves in our body's magnetic field. And there's a very specific anatomy and physiology that I mapped over many years. I discovered that there was a pattern. And every time I heard what sounded like sadness through the overtones and undertones of the tuning fork, it was off the left shoulder. Every time I came across things that sounded and felt angry, it was off the right side of the solar plexus. Hmm. And, and I essentially discovered that just like you and I have pretty much the same digestive tract, we have the same biofield anatomy as well. And so the essence of my work is this biofield anatomy map. So it, we're sort of striated and different emotions produce different frequency signatures. And then those are stored in different areas of the field. The field is also timelined. So as we generate information, we go through our day, we have our thoughts, our feelings, our actions, our experiences. That's all electrical impulses in the body. And those get recorded in the field and they move away from us. Mm-hmm. Right. So so most people's fields extend about six feet around on either side. And what I discovered was that the outer boundary of the field, because there's a boundary, it's a torus or a bubble with a spiral channel, that 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 outer boundary contained information from gestation and then birth. 
And then as we went along, the fork was literally reading these this track as it was laid it's down. It's almost like tree rings is how I see it. Yeah. So you've got rings. the rings of the tree, the years of the tree. So you're coming in. And so when you're you're using the fork, all of a sudden the tone shifts for you and you, or you find a resistance of some kind. You say, ah, what happened at age three? Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Uh, just for an example, I was working on a, on a gentleman not that long ago and I got to uh, this place in his field where the sound went so wonky and he could hear it and I could hear it. And he was like, what's that? And I plotted it on the timeline and I said, this is something that happened when you're around 18. And he's like, oh, that's when I went through the windshield of a car. Ah. Right. And you think yes. about the chaos of that experience, the pain, the resistance, the aftermath, the shock. shock, right? Those are all very dissonant vibrations mm-hmm. that got laid down in his record, in his memory. Bank. Yes. Well, I did a session with you years ago when we first met, and I, what I thought was interesting is definitely hit on the primary times when things happen. I mean, you you got them exactly what happened at this age and this age. But then as you went along, there were more, and I thought, oh, no, oh yeah, wait a minute. And things that I wasn't even remembering anymore, but they were actually profound. So it actually helps us reflect back in our own memory the things that we may have even suppressed. Absolutely. Or we can also find the things that are precognitive that happened from gestation at three mm-hmm. that we don't remember that might have been really formative where we form beliefs. Like if you were a baby who was left to cry it out, bottle fed on a schedule, you form a belief early on that nobody listens to me. Yeah. Okay. So now you've gone through. This is on the left side of the body. You've read the tree rings. What happened here? Ooh, ooh, okay. All right. Then you go to the right side of the body. And this is, as I, as I understand it, how, what the lingering effects of these traumas have been on you, what you're still carrying? Well, not so much. The, the left side is these file drawers. So mm-hmm. the left side is more the yin inward kind of mm-hmm. feelings, frustration, powerlessness, sadness, yeah. holding things back. And right? so this is more wet, more inward. Whereas the right side is more hot or fiery. It's anger. It's um, overdoing. It's being a caretaker. Is it how it expresses itself? It's how it expresses itself. I see. Yeah. So we might find issues in the right shoulder because you keep saying yes when you mean no. Or we might find issues in the left shoulder because you have a lot of sadness that you're not expressing. And it's just sort of piling up. So the biofield anatomy, each each energy center has a particular theme off each side of it. So mm-hmm. I don't always start on the left. I often do. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes I might start on the right. If your right shoulder and right hip hurt, come start yeah. over there and then come follow up on the left. So what happens if you have two frozen shoulders? Well, we work on both of them. <laughs> <laughs> and that, you know, if you have two frozen shoulders, I would say that, that you're really stuck in your life. Yeah. You're trying to take care of everybody else and you're not taking care of yourself and you're sad about it. Let's get into the subject of cancers for a moment. Where does that, how do you see that showing up in a person's field? Well, you know, it's interesting that you ask about cancer, Gina, because in biofield tuning, we don't treat cancer. Yeah. You know, in the United States, you're not allowed to treat cancer with anything other than gotcha. than drugs or surgery. But it has to show up. It, it does show up. It shows up as, as stuck energy, as places where where there's traumas that have been present. Well, for example, women with breast cancer, I've often observed that they get it on the right side um, if they've been putting everybody else's needs ahead of their own and neglecting themselves. And then cancer often becomes a gift and an opportunity. Mm-hmm. You realize that it, it's time to 
take care of you. Right. Right. And that's usually it. You're giving yourself away. Yeah. At your own expense. Yeah. Okay. So now you've identified these things. So now where does the healing part come in with the tuning fork and uh, vibration? Well, you know how we talk about having charge around certain things mm-hmm. like that divorce you went through 10 mm-hmm. years ago and it still gets you upset. Mm-hmm. So that's a place in your memory bank in your field where you literally do have charge. And and that is uh, the electrical voltage that should be flowing through your body is stuck in that particular So is it just making experience. a jaggedy, stuck kind of place in you, yeah, over-amped that, place? That's the way I see it. It's it's sort of like a memory that's, that's over-amped. That's why we feel resistance when we hit it because mm-hmm. there's charge and it's stuck there. And so, and it's usually trapped in chaos waves because of the, all of the upset that was involved. So it's a sort of pocket of chaos and stuck energy. Mm-hmm. And we could call it our emotional baggage, right? The things that weigh us down, that we haven't digested, that we haven't integrated, that we haven't forgiven. Uh, and so a tuning fork is both diagnostic in that it helps us to locate these places in our memory bank where things are jammed up. But it, it is also immediately therapeutic because it starts giving the body the information of order. So, so when you first you first are um, using the tuning fork and it sounds maybe a little discordant mm-hmm. when you first discover it. So what what starts happening in that transformational process? So it's the physics principles of resonance and entrainment. The mm-hmm. tuning fork will initially resonate with whatever the story is that is there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then a strong coherent signal will overtake and entrain a weak incoherent signal. Mm. So I describe it as it sort of acts like a mirror mm-hmm. in that it reflects to the body what's going on. Like the, the guy with the car accident, you're like, oh, what's that? Right? It's an opportunity for that kind of reflection. It's like you don't know that your hair is a mess and that you have a poppy seed in your teeth and you don't have the opportunity to fix it until you see it reflected, yeah. right? So yeah. it's the same thing. The moment we see ourselves out of order, we immediately go to put ourselves in order. And so the body's organizing intelligence does this. It has a mirror. The tuning fork acts like a metronome. It's producing a steady rhythm that the body can order its rhythms against. And so as the, the, the information and the rhythms that are present there start to harmonize, the energy that's been stuck sort of decouples. And then the tuning fork acts like a magnet. And, you know, sort of odd as this is, I'm able to do what I call click, drag and drop, where I use the tuning fork like a magnet. I hook into that little pocket of energy that was stuck and I bring it back to the midline of the body, the central channel, where it goes back into circulation. So how does this, these, how do these tree rings of trauma and events that happen and our reactions to them correlate with maybe just making visible the subconscious? Mm. Well, that's exactly what it is because this is our biofield is our, it's our conscious mind. It's our subconscious mind. It's our memories. I would even go so far as to say that it's our soul. Mm. So it's allowing you to see what is serving as a hindrance in the subconscious. Yeah, absolutely. And it gets right into it and people don't even need to talk about it. it, That's one of the things I think is beautiful about it. You know, talk therapy only does so much. After you've talked and talked and talked, it seems to me oftentimes you just reinforce the story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we can do this without even saying what happened when you were three. I can just be like, well, I hit a, a, a stuck spot here. Where are you feeling this in your body? What are you noticing? Just make it somatic so that you can tell. Because all of these places where we have jam ups in the field, we have tension in the body. So these these areas of tension create inflammation. 
And we know that inflammation is the root of disease. So if you end up with excess in one place, you get deficiency in the other, and then you're out of balance. So really on a very fundamental level, this is just helping you to relax subconscious tension that you're still holding from old trauma. So how does this then resonate out in the subtle bodies? Okay, so let's say how does it resonate out into the mental and the emotional bodies? Well, I would say that it settles people down. It helps you to go from being maybe habitually dysregulated to being more regulated, mm-hmm. from being incoherent and upset and, and feeling like you have ants in your pants or you know discomfort of some kind to just being more at ease. So once you can bring the field into coherence through the tuning, because first there's the recognition, the person saying, ah, yes, that happened at 18. So now it's on the table. You're going through those sub-frequency sounds. You're doing the over, you say, overarching um, harmonics or coherence mm-hmm. in the forks. From that point, that's going to then start automatically radiating out and making those corrections in the emotional body and the response it's been holding on to. Yeah, and the responses. So those knee-jerk places where, you know, your parents got your goat in this way, all of a sudden you find yourself less reactive, less triggered, more able to keep a calm center in difficult situations, certainly more resilient. I think that that's a really big part of it. If you're holding a lot of tension from a lot of trauma, you can't take much more. Right. But if you're sort of big and soft and relaxed and you've released tension, you can handle those difficulties with a lot more ease and grace. Well, you've had to go through a lot of these transitions of your own or these transformations. You had a lot of digestive issues, for example. We talked about that earlier at one time. But as you've moved through the process of using the tuning forks, you literally can, you don't have any of those issues anymore. No, I used to have terrible digestion, gas bloating, heartburn, stomach aches. Everything, everything, everything miserable, you know, go to bed miserable. And, and, but at the time I was giving my power away. I didn't have good boundaries. I was under stress and running on adrenaline. So all of these things contribute to not being in that sort of solid place of rest and digest. And over the years through receiving tuning, I started teaching this in 2010 and uh, my first students started working on me. And right from the very beginning, my digestion started to improve. And I also learned a lot about boundaries, about saying no, about how to not put myself in situations where I was under time pressure, under money pressure, revving, Mm -hmm. stressing, feeling like a victim. You know, I've learned a lot of hard (laughs) lessons and gotten myself to a place where, uh, you know, for the most part, I enjoy being in a coherent, regulated state. And so that, and I'm gotten way better at boundaries, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now I can eat anything and everything, you know, and I don't suffer at all. I, 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 I think everyone's ears are perking up, the women in particular, yeah. ears are perking up at this one, to think of how to actually do that instead of taking yet another digestive aid, going to another gastroenterologist or whatnot you finding it's mostly emotion. And I find that too. It's mostly emotion. It really is. And you know, it's also really important that we express our emotion. I had a very difficult emotional thing happen a few months ago and, uh, and I tried to suppress it and my stomach immediately protested. Like immediately I got a stomach ache. I was like, Oh, this isn't going to work. Like I absolutely have to express my emotions. And I can do that diplomatically. You know, we can we can figure out ways to express our emotions that are appropriate, mm-hmm. that don't hurt or damn. I mean, they might hurt other people, but they don't. You know, we don't have to go off the hook or be uh, wild and uncontrollable. But suppressing it is not going to work. Suppressing it doesn't work. We really have to learn to dance in a healthy way with our emotions and not suppress them. 
So how long did that process take you in the beginning once you had your student work on you? How long did it take you to work through all of this? Well, you know, I've had a lot of tune-ups. I was just, <laughs> you're in a lovely position yeah. where you can have a lot of tune-ups. Exactly. I've, I've had a lot of tune-ups. I've, and I've learned a lot as, as a tuner mm-hmm. because I work in people and I see their bad habits or their imbalances and I go, oh, I do that too. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. So, so I've had kind of a window into the imbalances of human nature and seeing that kind of behavior in myself. Um, but I've worked with people and I've seen them completely turn their digestion around and, six to 10 sessions. Wonderful. Yeah. And we're going to get to it at the end in terms of what we can do for ourselves if someone doesn't have access to a practitioner. But right now there are thousands of practitioners. But another interesting thing is that through this field, we have, of course, quantum entrainment and entanglement. So this can actually be done at a distance. Remote tuning can be done. Can you talk about this and how long you've been doing it when you discovered that the person didn't have to be in the room with you anymore? Well, people would ask me for years if I could do it at a distance. And I thought that was the most ridiculous thing to ask me. I'm like, this is sound waves on the body. This is physics people like, I am not doing this at a distance. And I I was sort of arrogant and snide about it, mm-hmm. uh, as people can be. Right? <laughs> you know, there's a lot of people out there who who feel this way about distance tuning, and I was no different. Um, but I am a scientist and I do like experiments. And so I think it was probably in 2011, I was working on my master's thesis mm-hmm. and I was working with a fellow by the name of Dr. Carl Merritt, who is very, very knowledgeable about the biofield and energy medicine. And he's a physician, an MD, and he was helping me with my thesis. And he said, I mean, how about if we try a distance session? And I said, okay, I'm game. Let's give it a try. But I went into it not believing it was possible. Mm-hmm. And what he did was he lay down in his office in California and I approached my treatment table in Vermont pretending that he was there. We had no open line of communication at all. Now at this point I had mapped the field and I learned the language of vibration pretty well. Mm-hmm. And so I just went and did a session as if there was a body there. And much to my amazement, all of the same patterns of information that would show up when there was a body there showed up. And so I went through and I took notes and I observed the years that were really stressful, um, the the organs in his body that weren't quite up to snuff, where he had inflammation, the personality of his mother or the personality of his father, head injury at five, like all the things that I had learned to figure out by reading the field. And then we got on the phone afterwards and I went through my notes. And he said, I mean, all of that is correct. So how'd you feel? I felt like I had to eat crow. I was like, wow, I've been so rude <laughs> about weren't this. weren't you incredibly relieved to know it's possible? Yeah, well, I, I, and I was a little mortified because I'd been <laughs> so adamant that it wasn't so once possible. Once you got done being ashamed, yes. ashamed of yourself. <laughs> yes. Then I was amazed because it opened up a whole new world of possibility to actually be able to do this at a distance with no open line of communication. Now, after that, I did, you know, I did some with people without open line of communication, but now we do it all like through Zoom or right. through the phone. And mm-hmm. so your practitioners have been taught this as well? Yeah, every single person who's a biofield tuning practitioner knows how to do so this. So now this makes it a lot easier because if people want to get tuned up, they can do it on a more frequent basis because they don't have to be 
obviously in physical proximity. So let's talk about something else because we're going to get on to the notion of our own voices as our tuning forks. This is something you're really charged about and really involved with right now, going beyond the forks back to the most primitive thing, okay, Mm -hmm. our own voices. But right now there's some studies going on, and I think this is really important. I know almost 40 years ago my group of beings told me, the most profound accepted new healing that will happen in my lifetime is going to happen through sound. And they said, including sound beyond the ability to hear it auditorily and that which we can hear. And I remember thinking, that's interesting. So let's talk about some of the great strides that are being made now. In these studies. This is how well, we did a works study uh, in December of 2020 that was originally going to be an in-person study, but because of covid we decided to move it to remote and it was on anxiety. So things that are rhythmic, that are tonal, like for example, anxiety is just a pattern in your electrical system. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty easy to treat at a distance. But if you have um, a pinched nerve in your neck and it's going down your arm, I would rather see you in person and if there's physical things. But these these things like anxiety that are purely energetic are very, uh, very readily treated through at a distance. Mm -hmm. And so our first study was just a feasibility study. We had uh, 15 people and everybody came in with clinical anxiety and everybody left without clinical anxiety. Uh, and, And the markers were very dramatic. Like there were very dramatic drops. And we wrote both a quantitative paper with all the graphs and P values. And we wrote a qualitative paper that was about people's stories and experiences with it. And basically it changed their relationship to themselves. People said things like, I know when I'm hungry, I know when I'm thirsty, like I know what my needs are, that they just really settled down into greater regulation. So this was very, and it was very consistent across the board with all of the participants reported the same thing. Um, so we, this is important because there are rising levels of mass anxiety everywhere. This was just three one hour sessions at a distance that dramatically changed people's quality of life. And you're saying they knew when they were hungry. They knew when they were thirsty. Are you saying that the anxiety was blocking out their ability to even be in tune with the simplest things about their own functioning? Yeah. When you're, when you're very full of anxiety and you've got all of those pulsing currents running through your body all the time, it, that's a strong signal that interrupts your ability to perceive your more subtle signals. If, if all you are aware of is your fear and your discomfort and things like that, you're not aware of the, the subtle signals that your body is sending you about what its needs are. Well, because things are changing rapidly, because we have changes and changes happening in the cosmos, on our planet, you know, societally in every which way, everybody can feel changes upon us. And most humans don't respond that well to change, the yeah. notion of change, you know, yeah, that's true. means you don't know the outcome. So what are you seeing in your practice in terms of rising levels of fear and anxiety at large throughout your all of your practitioners practices as well? Well, it definitely got worse in COVID. Yeah, this sure. feeling of just a collective fear and discomfort mm-hmm. and anxiety. And and certainly in the younger people, it's absolutely rampant. Uh, you know, kids, teenagers, they're struggling more than the adults are. They're, well, they're, everybody is struggling. Mm-hmm. Everybody is struggling. But they don't know their futures. Yeah, and their futures don't seem to work, right? At least you and I grew up in a world where we could have a job and get an apartment. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. things kind of work, but it's become so stressful and so uncertain and, and so endemic to the whole population of them. Right? The whole morphic field yes. of young people is is just rife with this and social pressure. Um, but the mus- amazing thing is, is that 
young people respond very quickly to this work. So somebody who's 15, I only need to do a few sessions with them, give them a little bit of instruction about self-regulation and self-care, and we're going to see significant shifts. Uh, if I'm working with somebody who's 70 and they have patterns that have been going on for a lifetime, it's going to take more sessions. It's going to take a longer duration mm-hmm. to get the body to shift and start adopting new patterns. So there was another study too, as I recall. Are there two? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we're, we're currently underway in a three year mm-hmm. study, the fully funded by grants that we have uh, 60 participants in and a control group. So, and we're repeating the same study on anxiety, taking a, a diverse group of people. And in this one, we're going to do six sessions instead of three. Mm-hmm. So we're going to really see what is the difference. What happens when you have six biofilters? So what happens sessions? with the control group? Um, to be honest, like yeah. in this moment, Regina, it's we've been all over the place with that. Yeah. And I'm not sure yeah. what we settled on. I'm working with another organization, a research organization, yeah. the Consciousness and Healing initiative that's founded by my uh, friend and colleague Shamni Jan mm-hmm. and uh, and so they are working on the IRB submission right now because mm-hmm. you have to get permission for right. these kinds of things and make sure it's it, I'm just trying to imagine what the control group experience would look like because they have to think they're getting the same thing yeah or have something that might be comparable but comparable, is different but is different yeah mm-hmm. well that'll be interesting so three years 60 people we'll see what comes out of that sounds like the first one you do great with yeah we were so pleased with yeah. with the outcome the way that it got written i've been getting accepted into peer review so they've this those, is the deal yeah mm-hmm. that is the deal and that's what my guides were telling me back then this will be accepted in our lifetimes as a powerful mode of healing that is non-invasive compared to everything that was going on at the time yeah this was in the area era of aids and all that too so at the time, I thought, wow, that would be great if that happened. Here you are. It's happening. It's happening. So now let's go even further into the most simple thing we carry with us all the time, our voice, and the work you're doing with that now. Mm-hmm. So I paired up with these two wonderful Australian brothers, Isaac and Torald Corin, And I initially worked with them because they are specialists in helping people to overcome their fear of seeing. And they work with you to co-write and record uh, some songs so that you can just overcome that fear. And I think this is a fear that so many people have, and I certainly had it. I'm so comfortable speaking in front of thousands of people, but the thought of singing was absolutely terrifying. And I didn't really feel connected to my voice or to that authentic place where, where your voice really comes from when you sing. Uh, I'm a big fan of meeting fears head on because where we have fear, we also have power. And so the the exercise in addressing and overcoming fears is really one of the best things that we can do for ourselves. It's, mm-hmm. it's so expanding, mm-hmm. right? And so I started working with them to write and record some songs, but then COVID happened and I couldn't get to California to do the recording with them. And and to be honest, I didn't feel ready. I still had felt like I had all these blocks and places in my body and I still had fear and tension around it. And so without even trying, and I, I don't even really fully remember how it happened, this whole body of work that we call the sonic anatomy came through us. And what we discovered was that there were very specific tones, like sounds that resonated in very specific areas of the body. 
And they're all primitive sounds, like sounds that babies make when mm-hmm. they're exploring their human instrument. It sounds like ga and wa and ma and pa and da. Mm-hmm. Um, but the discovery through our own uh, shared experience that, for example, wa resonates in the tailbone. <laughs> and ya comes from the front of the heart or ha is in the throat. And so we developed a program called Sing the Body Electric where we take people through what we call the tones and the demitones of the sonic anatomy. And it is an incredibly powerful and liberating experience to make all of these sounds because you don't have to sound good. You don't have to be in pitch. Um, The metaphor that I use is that we're all like pipe organs and we've got all of these pipes that have been shut down in Mm -hmm. us, right? Places we don't go, emotions we don't express, old traumas, and so many people have voice trauma, mm-hmm. right? You got a mouse nest in this pipe, and the key to this yeah. one doesn't work. Yeah. And so we don't feel comfortable singing because we don't have our full instrument available to us. So it's really like an exercise in pipe cleaning where you just go to these different areas in the body and you make whatever sound is there. And it might sound awful because that's just what is held there, right? Whatever emotion or tension that you're holding, the sound of the heart might come out, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you just keep on adding air, and it kind of blows out the pipe, and then all of a sudden you're like, yeah, and you're <laughs> yeah. really able to to make sounds. So when we take people through, um, it's like an eight or nine hour workshop. At the beginning, we have them sing "Happy Birthday" to themselves mm-hmm. because everybody knows how to do that, and then we just make all of these vowel sounds, and we really play in in you know tuning up our instruments. And then we sing happy birthday at the end and everybody has a completely different experience. They're more soulful. They're more creative. They're more playful. Oh, I can feel the truth in this. Yeah. Right? They're just like, Oh my God, I can sing. And we, we didn't even sing. All we did was just make a whole bunch of noise, um, very freely and as loud or as quiet or as oddly as we want to. And then suddenly, because you've opened up your human instrument, you get to enjoy. And I think this is one of life's greatest pleasures is to enjoy singing and how it resonates in you. It's energizing. They've done a lot of studies that show that singing in groups is so good for our health. Yes. And so many people, I would say Sheldrake, I think, was involved in some of them. Yeah. 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 Um, And so many people, probably 90% of the population doesn't get to enjoy this process. But it's more than that because it's really by our word that we create our life. Right. Mm-hmm. The word is created mm-hmm. and we speak our lives into being. And if you're just using your voice in one little place and then your life is going to be like that. It's true. I, I years ago was friends with a woman named Annie Williams and she has a, this voice spectrum analyzer. So you would sit and chat with her and she's a beautiful, beautiful singer. But this was what she did in the daytime. Uh, analyze your voice and it would go through and show which notes were missing from your voice, for example. And you could tell a lot about, she could tell a lot about a person on an emotional level in particular by which notes simply weren't there that you don't utilize in your own spectrum. Did you find this as well? Yeah, absolutely. And then those are parts of you, right? Again, coming back to this idea that we all have this incredible potential, Mm -hmm. but we struggle to access it. Yeah. And so if you can really open up the spectrum of your voice and have it be a full body experience, then your voice is reflecting more of who you are. And then your life follows suit. So is it fair to say if we even so much as when we're driving in our car, 
okay, roll the windows up so no one can hear you, but um, just sing to yourself, singing to ourselves, singing to ourselves in the shower, in the car is the beginning of this vibrational healing process without having to even go to a workshop. Then we'll talk about the workshops. Right. Well, when you're singing, one of the things that's happening is your mental, your mental body, that inner critic, the fussing, the worrying isn't taking place. Mm-hmm. So if you can really sing with your whole being, then you get to experience yourself as whole and undivided. Mm-hmm. If you can sing with with just the, the play and the pleasure without what Isaac and Troll call the small voices coming in and criticizing and judging, then all of a sudden you've created a wholeness in yourself and wholeness is where healing happens. Let's talk about the workshops. Are you actually doing these workshops yeah. with these two men? Yes, we do. We do workshops uh, online and in person. And what uh, are they called? So if people want to look for so them. So it's called Sing the Body Electric and uh, Sing the Body Sing Electric. the Body com. And and it's great for for all kinds of people. So we have a lot of biofield tuning practitioners who learn this and then you know, they might be working with somebody and they're all jammed up in the heart. They're having trouble giving and receiving love. So as they are tuning the heart, they'll also have the person say tone yaw. And mm-hmm. and so people might not them like ah. <laughs> So it's really making your original bio uh, bio tuning practice even more rich and more subtle. Yeah, because we're getting the sound from the inside. Yeah, and the sound from, from the, the outside, outside at the same time. Oh yeah, no, I just listening to you, I can feel the truth in that. So what about using the forks on ourselves? Mm-hmm. Is it as good if we try to do it ourselves? And how do we know which fork and which tone and everything that's going to work for us? Well, I would say the the best one to start with for self-care, and actually this one, a lot of people have reported to us that it's helped their digestion, is a a weighted tuning fork that I call the Sonic Slider. And I originally created that more for vanity and and rejuvenation, sort of ironing your face at the end of the day with this vibrating tuning fork handle. Um, But then over the years, people have discovered that it's great for pain, for arthritis, for digestive stuff, for headaches, for TMJ. It's just a really pleasing frequency that's based in the Schumann resonance, the mm-hmm. Earth's natural mm-hmm. background pulse. And uh, and we recommend that people use it every day because you're putting coherent sound and energy into your body. And it helps you to just look and feel better. So that's one is the sonic slider. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just brought you a 528 yes, I love fork. this. I love the feeling of it. It's really, for me, it's all kind of moving and flushing upward from the eyeballs from the sixth chakra up. That's my experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's a really brightening, Very lifting, bright. lightening mm-hmm. fork. So it's nice to just sit with with meditation if you want yeah. to quiet your mind and sort of bathe yourself in coherent, bright, uplifting. Takes you right out. Frequencies, it'll quiet your mind right away. Oh, yeah. right away right yeah. and this is what what we've been talking about like people need to learn mm-hmm. this sort of mental discipline of, of quieting the unkind voices in the head right right whether it's because you're singing and you're fully present yeah. or you're just sitting listening very deeply your brain goes into that alpha brainwave state where you're just very present and listening and that again is where health happens when we're whole when we're present, when we're regulated when we're harmonized when we're harmonized any we're out of time any final thoughts Hmm, any final thoughts? Um, well, use your voice. You use your, you know, explore the beauty of, uh, and the, the gift to yourself 
in believing everybody can sing. Everybody can sing. I couldn't sing for so long. And this work has opened my voice where I can lead sing-alongs now. Oh, I love lead sing-alongs at the end of these workshops where even a year ago, Regina, I wouldn't even, I didn't even want to sing in front of Isaac <laughs> and Toral. And just practicing these tones over and over again has given me so much more confidence and presence and enjoyment of my voice. I love it. Yeah. So sing to yourself sing and you can yourself. feel, you can feel the harmonization happening anytime you even start humming to yourself, your vibration immediately starts immediately shifting. Starts shift. So believe that you can have a beautiful voice and make it a goal that to get there. I love it. Well, I'm so glad you took on this new body of work to add to your already amazing body of work. So next time we see you, who knows what, who knows what study you'll have going and what you'll be up to, but I'm very appreciative you took time to come in because you're a busy, busy lady. Yeah. You bet, Regina. It's such a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. You can connect with Eileen's work and tools and even find sessions with one of her certified practitioners by going to biofieldtuning.com. You can also check out my other interviews with Eileen here in the Gaia archives. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. Okay, we made it. Now we go to the final score here. Let me just see. It's almost there. One second. It's getting past the commercials here.
Without Borders, our teams provide a lifeline to millions of people. Most success. 
successful singers of all time, knocking down barriers, crashing glass ceilings with 75 charted hit songs, and the first African-American vocalist to win a Grammy Award in the pop category. was the soundtrack of our lives. You let us know that it wasn't enough for us to just be wishing and hoping and thinking and praying, planning and dreaming. But instead, we had to tell somebody what we feel. Go and do something about what matters. That is exactly what has made you so iconic, so legendary, and so inspiring. Your heart has always embraced your community, your family, the world. Your courage and strength has compelled you to not just stand and sing, but be heard and heard loud and clear in a voice that truly has changed the world. That's what friends are for. Let's start out with a 1974 hit, Then Came You. Please welcome country music diva Mickey Guyton and the Spinner.
And clearly it's a sentiment you've embodied your whole life and something that I've tried to follow as I chart my own path as an artist. Thank you so much, Dion, for showing us all how to fearlessly break new ground while never compromising that special magic that makes you, you. Now make way for Dion Warwick as told by Jennifer Hudson. Let's try to make her over. Hello. 
Those exact words she used to stand up for herself and straighten them out became her very first hit, Don't Make Me Over. And also cemented one of the greatest musical partnerships in the industry. That is superpower. That is destiny. That is Dion Warwick. Here with one of my favorite songs to come from that legendary partnership, singing Alfie. Please welcome the beautiful Cynthia Arrivo.
it starts the trip. It continues with Gladys Knight and Club. Plus, Lin-Manuel Miranda, Meg Ryan, Whoopi Goldberg, Jay Leno, and Robert De Niro come together in honor of Billy Crystal. And later, Little Big Town, Michael Buble, and more sparkle in a celebration of the iconic Severi gift you don't want to miss. The 46th Kennedy Center Honors. This is CBS. Sponsored by Progressive Insurance. Round up your protection with life, phone, and pet health insurance. Hold on, everybody. Hold on. Page 60. Tonight we celebrate someone who brings joy to the world with her extraordinary voice. She sang for the congregation, finding her gift and her calling that now spans seven decades. Her voice and heart make us feel something deep within ourselves. It's a privilege to wear this. It means that the recognition of the 62 years that I've given to you is now being recognized. Please welcome actress and comedian, A. Goldberg. Leon's been just about everything in her career. The only thing she's never been is at a loss for words. Even now, when people ask about all that she's done, she says, I don't know why people are so curious about my life. They need to get their own. (laughs) I remember when I had the honor of doing my Dionne Warwick impression opposite the actual Dionne Warwick on SNL. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. Let's, thank you guys. Thank you. Let's just say the stakes weren't exactly low, so I was incredibly nervous. On top of being face to face with Miss Dion, the sketch ends with the two of us singing a duet of what the world needs now on live television. So I wanted to rehearse it over and over and over again. And after the third time, someone asked Miss Dion if she wanted to run it again. And she kindly said, I know the song. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> of course she did. It's her song. It's like I forgot for a second I was pretending to be her and she was actually her. So come on, Ego. And as decent as my impression may be, it doesn't come close to all that Miss Dion is. She is so uniquely herself. Lena Horne once told her, always, always be you. You cannot be anyone but you. And Miss Dion, you have certainly taken those words to heart. It's the very reason you will always, and I mean always, be relevant. Please give it up for Chloe. If you see me walking down the street and I start to cry each time we meet,
award-winning music producer, Clyde Davis. Those songs, those magical songs, walk on by, say a little prayer. Alfie, do you know the way to San Jose? Anyone who had a heart, there simply is no song that Dionne Warwick cannot sing. The lexicon of our hits is as great and as deep as any artist who has ever recorded. And in 1980, Dion did what no other female artist had ever done before. She won the Grammy for both Best Female Pop Vocal Performance for I'll Never Love This Way Again and Best Female R&B Vocal Performance for Deja Vu in the very same year. Dan Warwick has inspired musicians all over the world as to how long an artist can remain truly relevant and continue always to soar. I'm really so proud of my relationship with Dion and what we've been able to do together. All these years, she's always shown up for me, and it is my deep privilege to be here tonight and celebrate this honor that she so greatly deserved. Thank you. And now, please welcome 2022 Kennedy Center Lottery.
showman with a heart of gold. What I admire most about him is his heart that reminds us of love and care for one another. To quote a certain vice president, this is a big deal. My two girls are here tonight, and I know they're looking at me right now with this beautiful medallion on my neck. And I know what you're thinking. Who's going to get that when he's gone? Thank you, Kennedy Center. I toast you. Thank you all so much. Oh, my God. 
William Shakespeare wrote all the world's a stage, and one man in his time plays many parts. Now he's been on virtually every kind of stage the world has to offer, and on every stage, there's been one constant. Unlike Shakespeare, Billy Crystal has always been Billy with a Y. Not William, not Bill, Billy. Ladies and gentlemen, Billy Crystal. So hold on my folks' hands. We walk into that Kutch's nightclub, and that's where some of my very first comedians. Good evening, ladies and Jews. And I'm only nine years old, and I had this epiphany. I said, look at this guy, look at this guy. I could never play baseball like Mickey Mantle, ever. But this, woo, I could do. He's Billy because we see a piece of ourselves in him. He's our dad. Yeah. Our brother. Suck out the voice. Our friend. What? Suck out the voice. What? Our Billy. No matter the medium, he elevates the platform into a stage to entertain us. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the reason for a five-second delay. Stop it. He gives us laughter like no one else can. Wow. As always, my nipples are hard. I hate when that happens. Holy cow. He loves staying up late with us. Broadway stage, he's poured his heart out. Don't get me started. On TV, he broke new ground. You didn't know? Dobre vice, Dorogia Zuzia. Ya, Broadway Americansi comic work must be. And in his films, he never fails to connect with the audience. I think I should, but I would be proud to partake of your pecan pie. Hi, Carolyn. Kill anyone today? Take a look. Avoid a DWI. I'm sorry, everyone. Making his debut at the Kennedy 
I'm surprised they even let me back in this place. <laughs> the scene came really naturally to me, and I really have Billy to thank for that. I've actually never been around anyone who made faking an orgasm easier. Thank you, Billy. Somehow, even a million years later, when Harry met Sally, is still at the top of every list when people talk about their favorite rom-coms, which is flattering, amazing, and humbling. Who really knows why it's lasted Rob's brilliant direction, Nora Ephron's perfect script, Mark Shaman's fantastic musical score, and then there's chemistry. Chemistry is, well... No one really knows what chemistry is, but Harry and Sally had it. And all I know is that acting with Billy was effortless. The characters just came alive. And just meeting him, I don't know, how could you not love Billy Crystal? Of course, Harry is a very flawed character, obnoxious, insensitive, and terrified of commitment. But if you strip away all of Harry's flaws, what you have underneath is pure Billy. And what he brings to all of his characters, heart. Harry listened to his heart because Billy listens to his. And as his wife Janice has known for over 50 years, falling in love with Billy is a pretty easy thing to do. Never forgot his roots. 
And I want to acknowledge that the person who also should be standing here with me is our brother Rama. You are my family. You're my big brother. And you have no idea what an honor it is to see you get your due. I love you. You're a mensch. You're a, you're a national treasure. <laughs> national treasure. Billy, congratulations. part of Billy's life and career and a big part of our friendship. But beyond that, we're friends because we have so much in common. We're about the same age. We have the same initials. We're each just a shade under six feet tall. <laughs> what? And we both grew up on Long Island in the 50s and 60s, rooting for the New York Yankees and idolizing Mickey Mantle. This is Mickey Mantle's 1958 baseball card. And as any kid of our generation knows, on the back, you see the guy's stats. And in Mickey's case, they're obviously incredible. But what if Billy had a baseball card? Well then, the stats would be just as impressive. 79 film and television appearances as an actor. Hosted nine Academy Award shows. Three Grammy shows and nine comic relief specials, won six Emmys, a Tony, and is a recipient of the Mark Twain Prize for American Humor. And like so many of our generation, Billy was drawn to Muhammad Ali. In fact, his first big break came when an unknown Billy did a spot-on impersonation of Ali in front of the champ himself. And it came full circle when he delivered a magnificent eulogy at Ali's funeral, a brilliant, and poignant testimony to what Ali meant to Billy and to the world. It was Billy Crystal at his best. Funny, heartfelt, both personal and universal. It was a tribute all of us who were there will always remember. For all that and so much more, congrats, Billy. And next up in the batting order, Robert De Niro. <laughs> Center honors the OG Billy Crystal on this, the 50th anniversary of hip hop. <laughs> My brother. <laughs> Billy, looking at that video and seeing your friends and admirers talking about everything you've done, I had no idea you'd done so much. And You've done it all in such a relatively short amount of time. You're only 75. That means you're just about six years away from being the perfect age to be elected president.
yourself one of the funniest people to ever walk this earth. As a comedian, you'll be remembered along with such greats as... As... Um, <laughs> well, whatever, you know, you know, you know the unforgettable guys. Whatever. But I'd like to talk for a moment about Billy Crystal, the actor, because you're able to shed the silliness of Billy, the comedian, to completely inhabit your characters and resisting exaggeration and shtick, you, you never raise an eyebrow one millimeter higher than it needs to be to capture a moment and the feeling. You're one of our best comic actors, Billy, which is, in essence, I'm saying simply you are one of our best actors. And I was honored to receive this award for acting 14 years ago. Uh, they were a little more selective then. <laughs> but, but it means a lot more to me tonight because I'm sharing with you, my friend. You and me, Billy. Me. Me. Yeah, me, me. I'm very good, me, me. I'm, I got it. Yes, my friend, I got it. Yeah, I do, yeah, I do. And Billy, so do you. It had to be you. This friendship, who knew? To prove it ain't fake, I'll even make me by singing the best I can, my dear. Because nobody is like you, Billy. Nobody. Distinguished artists for their transformative impact on our country and on our culture. And make no mistake, even though this event is 46 years old, we continue to evolve, always aware that as art reflects culture, we must recognize new art forms alongside the classics. 
We have done this to help demonstrate the importance of the arts to our lives. We have done this to remind all Americans of the importance of the arts to our civilization. And we have done this to honor the legacy of President John F. Kennedy, for whom the Kennedy Center is a living memorial. Without the arts, our country and indeed the world would be a much less... I just got to remind everybody, Jack will be back. He's alive and well. And I believe this next birthday he'll be 106, something like that. Here we go. Best enjoyable place for today's adults as well as for future generations. Your interest in and support of the arts is greatly appreciated by everyone at the Kennedy Center and the country. We thank you and we congratulate and thank this year's class of honorees for inspiring us, for bringing light into what at times can seem to be a dark world and for enriching us and our nation. Queen Latifah, you've become the first female hip-hop artist to receive a Kennedy honor. If we did anything as possible, when we discover our own voice, write our own story, and share it with the world. My father is here. Daddy, stand up. You help make me. So very grateful for this beautiful honor. I'm so very appreciative to share this with you, Renee, with you, Billy, with you, Miss Warwick, with you, Mr. Barry Gibb. Man, how much I dance to your music. I was in the stream. What are you even? <laughs> I'm proud to be part of the class of 2023, and I will never forget this moment. Thank you. force that drives creation and demands transformation. The heart beats to that rhythm, to that push and pull, to that internal drum as it gives way to revelation and manifestation. Because if you listen, you can hear your destiny calling. Please welcome Emmy Award winner, Carrie Washington. practice shared by different cultures around the globe. The exact traditions or rituals may vary, but the intention behind them is always the same. At age eight, Dana Elaine Owens divined her own ceremony. She flipped through a book of names and chose one as her own, Latifa, an Arabic name meaning gentle, kind, and pleasant. This is how she saw herself. And then at age 17, when it was time to create her professional moniker, she added the title Queen. And in doing so, this young black woman from East Orange, New Jersey, crafted the lens through which the world would forever see her. I've spent many years admiring her, looking up to her example, and being inspired by her strength, her resolve, her elegance, her artistry. She started as a rapper and MC when success was an anomaly because the genre was mostly male, but she went on to dominate, becoming one of the best rappers of all time, male or female. She's conquered acting, yes, yes. She's conquered acting on screens both big and small, earning an Academy Award nomination, an Emmy, and the Golden Globe. 
what's most important to her. What matters most to Dana are the people who know her best. And we couldn't honor her tonight without hearing from them, her family. The particular name of this queen. queen. You may know her as Queen Latifah, but let me introduce you to Dana Owens, Lance and Rita's daughter. She's always been a star. There's music in the family. My mother had a bit of a musical background at church. I had drums throughout the house. A couple of times I had so much noise that the police department got several calls on us to come and put the noise down. Her mom was a very artistic person. I do believe that that contributed to her rapping. Dana is a rebel. You say left, she's definitely going right. Her mom and dad always said to her, you should be treated like a queen. That's not something that she took lightly. That's just the way she was brought up. There's nothing else you can tell her yet. Like she was not intimidated to express herself in any way she wanted to. And she was always trying to pull me in, be with the big kids, but I was shy, so that song touches me deeply. That Equalizer show is just the bomb, as young folk would say. When I can't sleep, it's not because of all the things I've done. It's because of all the people I can say. she has, the love that she pours out is all based on everything that was poured into her from my mom. I thank God for allowing me to share her with the world. Everything that she has done. Hey, hey. Music. What's good, y'all? What's good, y'all? Movies. Television shows. She's a businesswoman. She's a mogul. She is amazing. It's not fake. She's just real. She's not afraid to go for what she wants. She will never forget where she came from. What she knows is the sky is the limit. She's proven herself to be not only a queen, but the queen. to hip-hop's queen. We felt that it was necessary to surround her with some fellow hip-hop royalty. So please welcome MC Light, Moni Love, Yo-Yo, D-Nice, and a princess who's following in Queen Latifah's footsteps, Van Van. Good evening, everybody. My name is Van Van, and we're here tonight to honor Queen Latifah. Thank you for being an inspiration. We salute you.
right there. Something that I was so accustomed to hearing, but now I'm hearing ladies first. And then I sat there, I said, who is this girl? And I looked at the bottom of the screen and it said, Queen Latifah. Not Latifah, but Queen Latifah. That only said to me that she was saying, you will respect me. Get into it now. I will be a leader. I will be a provider. I will be an inspiration to many. I will be the blueprint to success. I won't be just a part of the culture. I'll be royalty to the culture. I won't set the bar. I am the bar. Let it marinate. Okay. She can't, wait a minute. She can't be boxed in because it's too many levels to what she do. She's taking the lid off of it. Let it marinate. She is queen, but she is mother with an A. I know y'all like, what? With an A? Yes, mother with an A. I see you, La. But what Latifah has taught us, Queen Latifah, forgive me, is unity, to believe in yourself, and to love a black woman from infinity to infinity. The culture, myself, we thank you. We thank you so much. Now, next artist credits Queen Latifah to be her mentor, her big sister, and Kennedy Center, I want y'all to give an applause for Grammy-nominated artist Rhapsody. She emerged the goddess among mortals, not knowing but flowing, finding power in her poems, using words to paint a new reality. First with her name, then with her title. She became an idol, and her flavor would change the palettes of many. Not just any Jersey girl, she is our queen. A vision to behold on any side of screen. She inhabits every character she plays. She breathes life into every song she writes. She gives of herself in every endeavor, all without a flaw. And we witness it all as she makes it look effortless. And maybe it is because she's poetry. We're going to take it down to 275 Hall Stead. Kennedy Center, how you feeling tonight? Yeah. 
tribute to American soprano Renee Fleming is next. Featuring icons of theater, film, and opera, including Dove Cameron, Spagorni Weaver, Christine Baranski, and Titus Burgess. The 46th Kennedy Center Honors will continue. This is CBS. Oh, that everybody. Wow. <sighs> there is hope. Healing of planet Earth all the way, everybody. It's us. Okay, let's see. Super Bowl 58 on CBS. Renee Fleming. On a cold January day in 2009, she'd be formed as Barack and I were first inaugurated. I'll never forget it. I felt like a choir of angels singing. Celebrating artistic achievement as we are tonight inspires coming generations. This moment and sharing it with such magnificent fellow honorees fills my heart with so much gratitude. Thank you so much. And now, Emmy Antonio Award winning actress, Christine Baranski. of Renee Fleming. How to describe in words the sublime beauty of that sound? I would prefer to use the music of Verdi or Mozart so as to literally sing her praises, but then I'd want the voice of Renee Fleming. <laughs> I first met Renee at a benefit for Juilliard, our alma mater. We quickly bonded, talking about the challenges of raising two daughters, managing busy careers, the importance of women's education. Then I attended her opening of La Traviata, and she came to my premiere of Mamma Mia. <laughs> Seems that I love Verdi, and she loves Alba. Well, imagine having Renee Fleming as a girlfriend. I mean, being an opera fan, I was in the audience shouting, Brahma Diva, the night she became the first woman to solo headline an opening night of the Mets' new season. And being a football fan, I watched from my living room shouting, You go, girl! As she became the first opera singer to perform the national anthem of the Super Bowl. <laughs> To being America's greatest cultural ambassador, Renee has garnered five Grammy Awards, sung the top ten list on Letterman, and picked up eight honorary doctorate degrees. Oh, and while also appearing on Mr. Blackwell's Best Dress List, because I mean really, she looks drop-dead glamorous and gorgeous in those designer gowns. <laughs> One of the arias she's become most famous for is Song to the Moon, from Dvorak's Rusalka. And what better way to honor Renee than with a totally unique performance? And by totally unique, I don't mean that I'm going to attempt it. <laughs> Here in a once-in-a-lifetime tribute are Julia Bullock, Eileen Perez, Angel Blue, and Nadine Sierra, joined by Renee's dear friend Patrick Summers, conducting his own singular arrangement of the score.
mysterious, slightly unpredictable, have taken me to unimaginable places. Quality of human that Renee is. 
And besides Renee's stunning opera career, she received a Tony nomination when she appeared on Broadway in Carousel. But she doesn't just have the musical theater chops. She's performed jazz, recorded an indie rock album, and recordings of her voice have even been incorporated into Oscar-nominated scores. That's Renee Fleming, consummate diva and nurturing friend, champion, mentor, and mother. they always talk about her incomparable voice. I get it. But what has always knocked me out about her work on stage is her acting. I mean, there she is, surrounded by these... Yeah, I mean... Thank you. She's surrounded by these towering set pieces, a full orchestra, elaborate costumes and wigs, a huge chorus sometimes even large animals lumbering around. And Renee just cuts through all that pomp and size and gives us a real, breathing human being. But oh, that double cream voice. It has inspired desserts and new flower species. It has brought us comfort and joy. But what is amazing about Renee is that she doesn't hold back and conserve that voice, you know, swathing herself in scarves and 
You know, no, she doesn't do any of that. She uses her voice to call out for change, helping us understand the intersection of music, health, and neuroscience, working with National Institutes of Health and the Kennedy Center to lead the Sound Health Initiative. She has raised millions of dollars to fund research and raise global awareness of the benefits of the arts on health and wellness. She was recently honored at Davos with a Crystal Award from the World Economic Forum and was appointed as a Goodwill Ambassador for Arts and Health by the World Health Organization. Not too many singers have played those venues. And it all springs from that amazing voice. And yes, it is a God-given gift. But it's what you've done with your voice, Renee, that brings all of us here to the Kennedy Center tonight. And now, please welcome Emmy-nominated actor and singer Titus Burgess. Oh, my God. 
I think we've got another grand finale coming up here. Oh my goodness. Alright, let's hang in here here. Oh, here. Ankle monitors. <laughs> When you think of the Bee Gees, it's an infectious beat, simple human truths that the lyrics contain, so often captured and grip our hearts. Uh, I'm a fan. Thank you all. This is the most incredible honor of my life. Renee, I'm never going to be able to sing like you do. I admit it. But I can still do it. Without my brothers, I wouldn't be standing here. We were a family of music and a family of love, so I salute Morris, I salute Robin, and I salute Andy. Please welcome back Katie Santorini and Gloria Estefan. There's a special connection that songwriters share. We're always reaching for that perfect song. I've learned that the perfect song is the one that moves your soul, makes you cry, gives you goosebumps, or touches your heart. And sometimes, a single song does all of this. I get moved by many genres, many artists, but no one more than Barry Gibb. He effortlessly blends harmony and heart, melancholy and melody, all while creating some of the catchiest, most popular, and universally beloved music ever. 
And he's been doing it since he was nine years old. The Bee Gees are one of the best-selling groups of all time. And sure, they defined the disco era. That alone would have been enough for Barry to receive this honor. And yet, that barely even scratches the surface of his contributions to music. Writing material not just for himself, but for other artists, the greats, the best of the best, Diana Ross, Elton John, and one of tonight's honorees, Dionne Warwick, just to name a few. You could call it the Barry Gibb effect. Grounded in emotional truth, his work spans across genres and generations, cultures and continents, connecting with people no matter who they are or where they're from. His music isn't just good, it's the best in a way that goes above and beyond words and can really only be experienced through song. Don't believe me? Hear it for yourself. It was just an amazing sound. Great dance to the Bee Gees. Great dance to some of Barry's music. Barry Gibb is one of the greats. I didn't really know what the sprut was until I heard Staying Alive. He taught us all how to walk. Barry is so responsible for so many great hits. Barry Gibb, the songbook to American music. To this day, we're still singing. How deep is your love? It's a beautiful song. I should have written it. Islands in the Stream turned out to be one of the biggest country songs in the history of country music. He was wonderful to work with. Do you feel guilty? He was good to look at. We had fun. We came from different worlds of music. And he really got me.
songs and performed on stages all over the world. He's a superstar. But where the real magic happens, where the Barry Give effect really takes hold and continues to impact generations of music lovers, is in the studio. So to start us off, please welcome Little Big Town. Tonight, baby, we want to pay tribute to you and your brothers with our version of this song that demonstrates your true genius. Thank you. 
contributes to Harry Gibbs continues with Michael Duclay, Ben Flat, and the finale by Academy Award winner Ariana DeBose. The 46th Kennedy Center Honors will continue. This is CBS. Hold on, everybody. Dougie, if you can hear us, can you get Rainbird a little bit early? Because I think this is going to end sooner than later. <laughs> uh, hope you heard me, Dougie. I'm wrote it down, too, on the board. Okay, we're getting there. Moment here, almost there. I'm getting there. How can you mend a broken heart? As fortune would have it, I made a demo and it made its way to the songwriter himself. Barry not only had words of advice for me, but was generous enough to give this bubble guy some heat and record it with me. Which is why this next song means so much to me and why it is a tremendous privilege to be here celebrating the great Barry Kemp. <laughs>
Clark. My name is Stephen Gibb, and Eric Gibb just happens to be my father. So you can probably imagine that I had a front row seat to some of the best music this world has to offer, right? Well, some of my fondest childhood memories would be of the weekends we would spend in the backyard at our house or my Uncle Morris's house. But I found out very young that there's a special alchemy that occurs when you have three brothers harmonizing together. Even as a kid, I knew this was something so special. When he was in the studio with his brothers, he was always pushed to new creative heights by them. They were always trying to impress each other with their ideas. Like most brothers, they were very competitive. Yet they thrived under so much pressure and managed to create these perfect little diamonds for all of us to enjoy. Sadly, with the loss of his brothers, my uncles, we realized that life would never be the same, but the songs are forever. One of the gifts for me, as his only living musical collaborators in the family, is that I've been here for the ride my whole life. And when we performed together at Glastonbury in 2017, I can clearly recall his surprise at the size of the crowd, the biggest of his entire career. Everyone was singing and dancing, even the security guards. <laughs> I looked over at him and my only thought was, damn, that's my dad. And from day one until now, he's been my hero. He's the coolest cat I know. Some people listen to music and some people make music. And then some people simply are music. And for my dad, music is who he is. He lives and breathes it start to finish. Dad, I can't tell you how incredible it feels to be here seeing you receive this honor. And I couldn't be more proud to be your son. So here, performing what I think are some of the best songs ever written, please welcome classical pianist Chloe Flower, an Academy Award winner, Ariana DeBose. Oh, 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 oh. 
God, that was really good, everybody. Really, really good. I think that we did it tonight. We did. <laughs> Rob was in the peanut gallery here. I think that Rainbird, all of the feathers of that emerald serpent feather is on this talking stick, where every feather represents mother's future self. Through us, Lady Master Ma'at, all the affirmations of ascension are here with this talking stick. Here it comes, Rainbird. Oh, my. What a talking stick. <laughs> was that good enough music for tonight? Oh, yeah. That was good. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, happy New Year. Happy New Year. It's actually New Year's in your town and in my town, too. I think we've got a little more time for the Pacific time time zone to get here. Yeah, well, it happens tomorrow at, we'll be with Cheryl. Oh, my. Everybody, please. Cheryl has a way of knowing and sharing and bringing music and color and sound to the work that she does. Let's let me give that number. How about that, Rainbird? Yeah, I packed that talking stick. You do that. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for your service every time. Rainbird's right here. Even if I forget I get knocked over the head here. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. So Cheryl has um um Affirmation, meditation, transformation, music, sound, and color presentation, and it's on, uh, and it's invoking divine government. And let's dance to that one. So it's at Sunday evenings, as well as Monday evenings. It's about quarter of ten of seven mountain, quarter of ten of nine. Eastern, and everybody can adjust to the middle points there, Central and Pacific. And it goes for about three hours. And so let me give you the number here. It's 425-436-6260. And the PIN code is 946-7441-POUNDS. I will repeat the number, 425 436 6260 and the pin code 9467441 pound and let it strengthen us to leave everything that's unlike love behind let it all go 
and send more love to those who are acting ornery and angry and anything that's unlike love, like I said. Send more love. And that's an order. <laughs> and so Rama's going to share with us. This has been a long time since we played from Robbie Gass, right, Rama? What's the name of the song you're going to play? Uh, Om Namah Shivaya. Oh, very appropriate. Om Namah Shivaya. Happy New Year. Prosperity, manifestation, abundance, infinity. Namaste. Here we go. May all good things come to all. And uh, we can do it together because this is the era of world group service. And this night of the music of the spheres here that we heard tonight really demonstrated they gave in their hearts to the place where they were really having fun up there on that stage. Don't you think so, Ronald? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So see you in your dreams on the bridge, everybody. And thank you, BBS Radio, for being there with us. And I'm so grateful. Thank you for supporting this radio network and all of us. And Sarah now. No, sorry now. Namaste, everyone. Peace. Out. Aloha. Mahalo nui loha. And I'm going to figure out what the Happy New Year is in Hawaii. And I'm going to have to tell you next Thursday or Friday. So, namaste for now, everyone. Aloha. <laughs>